Now for it. Now for the last gasp, said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will he staggered up, and then he fell upon his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him, and then pitifully he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. "'I said I'd carry him if it broke my back,' he muttered, "'and I will.' "'Come, Mr. Frodo,' he cried. "'I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. "'So up you get. "'Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. "'Sam will give you a ride. "'Just tell him where to go, and he'll go.' "'As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosely about his neck, "'legs clasped firmly under his arms, "'Sam staggered to his feet.' and then, to his amazement, he felt the burden light. He'd feared that he would have barely strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that he had expected to share in the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting and sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than if he were carrying a hobbit child pick-a-back in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. They'd reached the mountain's foot on its northern side, and a little to the westward. There its long grey slopes, though broken, were not sheer. Frodo didn't speak and so Sam struggled on as best he could, having no guidance but the will to climb as high as might be before his strength gave out, and his will broke. On he toiled, up and up, turning this way and that to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward, and at the last crawling like a snail with a heavy burden on its back. When his will could drive him no further, and his limbs gave way, he stopped and laid his master gently down. Frodo opened his eyes and drew a breath. It was easier to breathe up here, above the reeks that coiled and drifted down below. "'Thank you, Sam,' he said in a cracked whisper. "'How far is there to go?' "'I don't know,' said Sam, "'because I don't know where we're going.' He looked back, and then he looked up, and he was amazed to see how far his last effort had brought him. The mountain, standing ominous and alone, had looked taller than it was. Sam saw now that it was less lofty than the high passes of the Eiffel Dueth, which he and Frodo had scaled. The confused and tumbled shoulders of its great base rose for maybe three thousand feet above the plains, and above them was reared half as high again its tall central cone, like a vast oast or chimney capped with a jagged crater. But already Sam was more than halfway up the base, and the plain of Gorgoroth was dim below him, wrapped in fume and shadow. As he looked up, he would have given a shout, if his parched throat had allowed him, for amid the rugged humps and shoulders above him he saw plainly a path or road. It climbed like a rising girdle from the west, and wound snake-like about the mountain, until before it went round out of view it reached the foot of the cone, upon its eastern side. Sam could not see the course immediately above him, where it was lowest, 
for a steep slope went up from where he stood, but he guessed that if he could only struggle on just a little way further up, they would strike this path. A gleam of hope returned to him. They might conquer the mountain yet. Why, it might have been put there a purpose, he said to himself. If it wasn't there, I'd have to say I was beaten in the end. The path was not put there for the purposes of Sam. He didn't know it, but he was looking at Sauron's road from Barad-dûr to the samath the chambers afar. Out from the dark tower's huge western gate it came, over a deep abyss, by a vast bridge of iron, and then, passing into the plain, it ran for a league between two smoking chasms, and so reached a long, sloping causeway that led up on to the mountain's eastern side. Thence, turning and encircling all its wide girth from south to north, it climbed at last, high in the upper cone, but still far from the reeking summit, to a dark entrance that gazed back east, straight to the window of the eye in Sauron's shadow-mantled fortress. Often blocked or destroyed by the tumults of the mountain's furnaces, always that road was repaired and cleaned again by the labours of countless orcs. Sam drew a deep breath. There was a path, but how he was to get up the slope to it he did not know. First he must ease his aching back. He lay flat beside Frodo for a while. Neither spoke. Slowly the light grew. Suddenly a sense of urgency, which he didn't understand, came to Sam. It was almost as if he had been called. Now, now, or it'll be too late. He braced himself and got up. Frodo also seemed to have felt the call. He struggled to his knees. I'll crawl, Sam, he gasped. So foot by foot, like small grey insects, they crept up the slope. They came to the path and found that it was broad, paved with broken rubble and beaten ash. Frodo clambered onto it, and then moved as if by some compulsion he turned slowly to face the east. Far off the shadows of Sauron hung, but torn by some gust of wind out of the world, or else moved by some great disquiet within, the mantling cloud swirled, and for a moment drew aside, and then he saw, rising black, blacker and darker than the vast shades amid which it stood, the cruel pinnacles and iron crown of the topmost tower of Barad-dûr. One moment only it stared out, but as from some great window immeasurably high there stabbed northward a flame of red, the flicker of a piercing eye, and then the shadows were furled again and the terrible vision was removed. The eye was not turned to them. It was gazing north, to where the captains of the West stood at bay, and thither all its malice was now bent, as the power moved to strike its deadly blow. But Frodo, at that dreadful glimpse, fell as one stricken mortally. His hand sought the chain about his neck. Sam knelt by him. Faint, almost inaudibly, he heard Frodo whispering, Help me, Sam. Help me, Sam. Hold my hand. I can't stop it. Sam took his master's hands and laid them together, palm to palm, and kissed them. And then he held them gently between his own. The thought came suddenly to him. He's spotted us. It's all up, or it soon will be. Now, Sam Gamgee, this is the end of ends. 
Again he lifted Frodo and drew his hands down to his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Then he bowed his head and struggled off along the climbing road. It was not as easy a way to take as it had looked at first. By fortune the fires that had poured forth in the great turmoils when Sam stood upon Kirithungol had flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes, and the road on this side was not blocked. Yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by gaping rents. After climbing eastward for some time, it bent back upon itself at a sharp angle and went westward for a space. There at the bend it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone once long ago vomited from the mountain's furnaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned the bend, and even as he did so, out of the corner of his eye he had a glimpse of something falling from the crag like a small piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. A sudden weight smote him, and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that still clasped his master's. Then he knew what had happened, for above him, as he lay, he heard a hated voice. "'Wicked master!' it hissed. "'Wicked master cheats us, cheats Meagle. He mustn't go that way. He mustn't hurt precious. Give it to Smeagol, yes, give it to us, give it to us!' With a violent heave, Sam rose up. At once he drew his sword, but he could do nothing. Gollum and Frodo were locked together. Gollum was tearing at his master, trying to get at the chain in the ring. This was probably the only thing that could have roused the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will. An attack, an attempt to wrest his treasure from him by force. He fought back with a sudden fury that amazed Sam, and Gollum also. Even so, things might have gone far otherwise, if Gollum himself had remained unchanged. But whatever dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless, he had trodden, driven by a devouring desire and a terrible fear, they had left grievous marks on him. He was a lean, starved, haggard thing, all bones and tight-drawn sallow skin. A wild light flamed in his eyes, but his malice was no longer matched by his old griping strength. Frodo flung him off and rose up quivering. "'Down! Down!' he gasped, clutching his hand to his breast, so that beneath the cover of his leather shirt he clasped the ring. "'Down, you creeping thing, and out of my path! Your time is at an end. You cannot betray me or slay me now!' Then suddenly, as before under the eaves of the Emin wheel, Sam saw these two rivals with other vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with a hideous lust and rage, and before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white, but at its breast it held a wheel of fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. "'Begone, and trouble me no more. If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom.' The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet at the same time insatiable desire. Then the vision passed, and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet, resting on his knees with his wide-splayed hands upon the ground. "'Look out!' cried Sam. "'He'll spring!' 
he stepped forward, brandishing his sword. "'Quick, master!' he gasped. "'Go on! Go on! No time to lose! I'll deal with him! Go on!' Frodo looked at him, as if at one now far away. "'Yes, I must go on,' he said. "'Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell.' He turned and went on, walking slowly but erect, up the climbing path. "'Now,' said Sam, "'at last I can deal with you.' He leapt forward with drawn blade, ready for battle. But Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. "'Don't kill us!' he wept. "'Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost, we're lost!' And when precious goes, we'll die, yes, die into the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved, and also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart there was something that restrained him. He couldn't strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. "'Oh, curse you, you stinking thing!' he said. "'Go away, be off! I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you. But be off, or I shall hurt you, yes, with nasty, cruel steel!' Gollum got up on all fours, and backed away for several paces, and then he turned, and as Sam aimed a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him. As fast as he could, he trudged up the road. If he had looked back, he might have seen, not far below, Gollum turn again, and then, with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes, come, swiftly but warily, creeping on behind, a slinking shadow among the stones. The path climbed on. Soon it bent again, and with the last eastward course, passed in a cutting along the face of the cone, and came to the dark door in the mountainside, the door of the Samarthnar, the way now rising towards the south. The sun, piercing the smokes and haze, burned ominous, a dull, bleared disk of red, but all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. Sam came to the gaping mouth and peered in. It was dark and hot, and a deep rumbling shook the air. "'Frodo! Master!' he called. There was no answer. For a moment he stood, his heart beating with wild fears, and then he plunged in. A shadow followed him. At first he could see nothing. 
In his great need he drew out once more the file of Galadriel, but it was pale and cold in his trembling hand, and threw no light into that stifling dark. He was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron, and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers were here subdued. Fearfully he took a few uncertain steps in the dark, and then all at once there came a flash of red that leapt upwards and smote the high black roof. Then Sam saw that he was in a long cave or tunnel that bored into the mountain's smoking cone. But only a short way ahead its floor and the walls on either side were cloven by a great fissure, out of which the red glare came, now leaping up, now dying down into darkness. And all the while, far below, there was a rumour and a trouble, as of great engines throbbing and labouring. The light sprang up again, and there, on the brink of the chasm, at the very crack of doom, stood Frodo, black against the glare, tense, erect, but still as if he had been turned to stone. "'Master!' cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred and spoke with a clear voice, indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use, and it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. "'I have come,' he said, "'but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine!' and suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment many things happened. Something struck Sam violently in the back. His legs were knocked from under him, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor as a dark shape sprang over him. He lay still, and for a moment all went black. And far away, as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samoth Nower, the very heart of his realm, the power in Barad-dûr was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye, piercing all shadows, looked across the plain to the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a vast black smoke to choke him, for he knew his deadly peril and the thread upon which his doom now hung. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran, his slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly stearless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry, in a last desperate race there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgul, the ring-wraiths, and with a storm of wings they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Sam got up. He was dazed, and blood streaming from his head dripped in his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum, on the edge of the abyss, was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. 
To and fro he swayed, now so near the brink that almost he tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising and falling again. And all the while he hissed, but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger, the red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upwards to his mouth. His white fangs gleamed, and then snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was wrought of living fire. Precious, 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 Gollum cried. My precious, oh, my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail. Precious, and he was gone. There was a roar and a great confusion of noise. Fires leapt up and licked the roof. The throbbing grew to a great tumult, and the mountain shook. Sam ran to Frodo and picked him up and carried him out to the door. And there, upon the dark threshold of the Samathnar, high above the plains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood still, forgetting all else, and gazed as one turned to stone. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it, towers and battlements, tall as hills, founded upon a mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits. Great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons, sheer as cliffs, and gaping gates of steel and adamant. And then all passed. Towers fell and mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave, and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And then at last, over the miles between, there came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and Orodroin reeled. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder, seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain. And into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, shooting like flaming boats, as caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky they crackled, withered, and went out. Well, this is the end, Sam Gamge, said a voice by his side. And there was Frodo, pale and worn, and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will, nor madness, nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweeter days in the shire. Master, cried Sam, and fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world, for the moment he felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. 
His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. "'Your poor hand,' he said, "'and I have nothing to bind it with or comfort it. I would have spared him a whole hand of mine, rather. But he's gone now, beyond recall, gone forever.' "'Yes,' said Frodo. "'But do you remember Gandalf's words? "'Even Gollum may have something yet to do. "'But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. "'The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. "'So let us forgive him, for the quest is achieved, and now all is over. "'I am glad you're here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam.' Chapter 4 The Field of Cormelan All about the hills the hosts of Mordor raged. The captains of the west were foundering in a gathering sea. The sun gleamed red, and under the wings of the Nazgul the shadows of death fell dark upon the earth. Aragorn stood beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away. "'but his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as the night deepens. "'Upon the hilltop stood Gandalf, and he was white and cold, and no shadow fell on him. "'The onslaught of Mordor broke like a wave on the beleaguered hills, "'voices roaring like a tide amid the wreck and crash of arms. "'As if to his eyes some sudden vision had been given, "'Gandalf stirred, and he turned, looking back north where the skies were pale and clear. Then he lifted up his hands and cried in a loud voice, ringing above the din, "'The eagles are coming!' And many voices answered, crying, "'The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming!' The hosts of Mordor looked up and wondered what this sign might mean. There came Gwaihir the Windlord, and Landreval his brother, greatest of all the eagles of the north, mightiest of the descendants of old Thorondor, who built his eyries in the inaccessible peaks of the encircling mountains when Middle-earth was young. Behind them, in long swift lines, came all their vassals from the northern mountains, speeding on a gathering wind. Straight down upon the Nazgul they bore, stooping suddenly out of the high airs, and the rush of their wide wings as they passed over was like a gale." But the Nazgul turned and fled, and vanished into Mordor's shadows, hearing a sudden terrible call out of the dark tower. And even at that moment all the hosts of Mordor trembled. Doubt clutched their hearts, their laughter failed, their hands shook, and their limbs were loosed. The power that drove them on and filled them with hate and fury was wavering. Its will was removed from them. And now, looking in the eyes of their enemies, they saw a deadly light and were afraid. Then all the captains of the West cried aloud, for their hearts were filled with a new hope in the midst of darkness. Out from the beleaguered hills, knights of Gondor, riders of Rohan, Dúnadain of the North, close-serried companies, drove against their wavering foes, piercing the press with a thrust of bitter spears. But Gandalf lifted up his arms and called once more in a clear voice, "'Stand, men of the West, stand and wait. This is the hour of doom.' And even as he spoke, the earth rocked beneath their feet. 
then rising swiftly up, far above the towers of the Black Gate, high above the mountains, a vast soaring darkness sprang into the sky, flickering with fire. The earth groaned and quaked. The towers of the teeth swayed, tottered, and fell down. The mighty rampart crumbled. The Black Gate was hurled in ruin, and from far away, now dim, now growing, now mounting to the clouds, there came a drumming rumble, a roar, a long echoing roll of ruinous noise. "'The realm of Sauron is ended,' said Gandalf. "'The ring-bearer has fulfilled his quest.' And as the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor, it seemed to them that, black against the pall of cloud, there rose a huge shape of shadow, impenetrable, lightning-crowned, filling all the sky. Enormous it reared above the world, and stretched out towards them a vast threatening hand, terrible but impotent, for even as it leaned over them a great wind took it, and it was all blown away and passed. And then a hush fell. The captains bowed their heads, and when they looked up again, behold, their enemies were flying, and the power of Mordor was scattering like dust in the wind, as when death smites the swollen, brooding thing that inhabits their crawling hill and holds them all in sway, ants will wander witless and purposeless and then feebly die. So the creatures of Sauron, orc or troll or beast, spell-enslaved, ran hither and thither mindless, and some slew themselves, or cast themselves in pits, or fled wailing back to hide in holes and dark, lightless places far from hope. But the men of Rune and of Harad, Easterling and Southron, saw the ruin of their war and the great majesty and glory of the captains of the West, and those that were deepest and longest in evil servitude, hating the West, and yet were men proud and bold, in their turn now gathered themselves for a last stand of desperate battle. But the most part fled eastward as they could, and some cast their weapons down and sued for mercy. Then Gandalf, leaving all such matters of battle and command to Aragorn and the other lords, stood upon the hilltop and called, and down to him came the great eagle, Gwaihir the Windlord, and stood before him. "'Twice you have borne me, Gwaihir, my friend,' said Gandalf. "'Thrice shall pay for all, if you're willing. "'You will not find me a burden much greater than when you bore me from Zirakzigl, "'where my old life burned away.' "'I would bear you,' answered Gwaihir, "'whether you will, even were you made of stone. "'Then come, and let your brother go with us, "'and some other of your folk who is most swift.' for we have need of speed greater than any wind, outmatching the wings of the Nazgul. "'The north wind blows, but we shall outfly it,' said Gwaihir, and he lifted up Gandalf and sped away south, and with him went Landravel and Meneldor, young and swift, and they passed over Udun and Gorgoroth, and saw all the land in ruin and tumult beneath them, and before them Mount Doom blazing, pouring out its fire.' "'I am glad that you are here with me,' said Frodo. "'Here at the end of all things, Sam?' "'Yes, I'm with you, Master,' said Sam, "'laying Frodo's wounded hand gently to his breast. "'And you're with me. "'And the journey's finished. 
but after coming all that way, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. Maybe not, Sam, said Frodo, but it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail, an end comes. We have only a little time to wait now. We're lost in ruin and downfall, and there's no escape. Well, Master, we could at least go further from this dangerous place here, from this crack of doom, if that's its name. Now, couldn't we? Come, Mr. Frodo, let's go down the path at any rate. Very well, Sam. If you wish to go, I'll come, said Frodo. And they rose and went slowly down the winding road, and even as they passed towards the mountain's quaking feet, a great smoke and steam belched from the Samathnar, and the side of the cone was riven open, and a huge fiery vomit rolled in slow, thunderous cascade down the eastern mountainside. Frodo and Sam could go no further. Their last strength of mind and body was swiftly ebbing. They had reached a low, ashen hill piled at the mountain's foot, but from it there was no more escape. It was an island now, not long to endure, amid the torment of Orodruin. All about it the earth gaped, and from deep rifts and pits smoke and fumes leapt up. Behind them the mountain was convulsed, great rents opened in its side. Slow rivers of fire came down the long slopes towards them. Soon they would be engulfed. A rain of hot ash was falling. They stood now and Sam, still holding his master's hand, caressed it. He sighed. "'What a tale we've been in, Mr. Frodo, haven't we?' he said. "'I wish I could hear it told. Do you think they'll say, "'Now comes the story of nine-fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, "'and then everyone will hush, like we did, "'when in Rivendell they told us the tale of Beren one hand and the great jewel. "'I wish I could hear it.' "'and I wonder how it'll go on after our part.' "'But even while he spoke so, "'to keep fear away until the very last, "'his eyes still strayed north, "'north into the eye of the wind, "'to where the sky far off was clear, "'as the cold blast, rising to a gale, "'drove back the darkness and the ruin of the clouds. "'And so it was that Gwai here saw them "'with his keen, far-seeing eyes, "'as down the wild wind he came, "'and daring the great peril of the skies "'he circled in the air. Two small dark figures, forlorn, "'hand in hand upon a little hill, "'while the world shook under them, "'and gasped, and rivers of fire drew near. "'And even as he espied them, "'and came swooping down, "'he saw them fall, worn out, or choked with fumes and heat, or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay, and down swept Gwai here, and down came Landravel and Meneldor the swift, and in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away out of the darkness and the fire. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed, but over him gently swayed wide beechen boughs, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. He remembered that smell, the fragrance of Ithilien. Bless me, he mused, how long have I been asleep? 
for the scent had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank, and for a moment all else between was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. "'Why, what a dream I've had!' he muttered. "'I am glad to wake.' He sat up, and then he saw that Frodo was lying beside him, and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head, and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand, and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud, "'It wasn't a dream!' "'Then where are we?' "'And a voice spoke softly behind. "'In the land of Ithilien, "'and in the keeping of the king, "'and he awaits you.' "'With that Gandalf stood before him, "'robed in white, "'his beard now gleaming like pure snow "'in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. "'Well, Master Samwise, "'how do you feel?' he said. "'But Sam lay back, "'and stared with open mouth, "'and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped. "'Gandalf! I thought you were dead! But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world?' "'A great shadow has departed,' said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land.' And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing he sprang from his bed. "'How do I feel?' he cried. "'Well, I don't know how to say it. "'I feel... I feel...' he waved his arms in the air. "'I feel like spring after winter, and sun on the leaves, "'and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard.' "'He stopped, and he turned towards his master. "'But ours, Mr. Frodo,' he said. "'Isn't it a shame about his poor hand? "'But I hope he's all right otherwise. "'He's had a cruel time.' "'Yes, I'm all right otherwise,' said Frodo, sitting up and laughing in his turn. "'I fell asleep again waiting for you, Sam, you sleepy-head. "'I was awake early this morning, and now it must be nearly noon.' "'Noon?' said Sam, trying to calculate. "'Noon of what day?' "'The fourteenth of the new year,' said Gandalf. "'Or, if you like, the eighth day of April in the Shire Reckoning. "'But in Gondor the new year will always now begin upon the twenty-fifth of March, when Sauron fell, and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. He has tended you, and now he awaits you. You shall eat and drink with him. When you are ready, I will lead you to him.' "'The king?' said Sam. "'What king? And who is he?' "'The king of Gondor and lord of the western lands,' said Gandalf. "'And he has taken back all his ancient realm.' He will ride soon to his crowning, but he waits for you. "'What shall we wear?' said Sam, for all he could see was the old and tattered clothes that they had journeyed in, lying folded on the ground beside their beds. "'The clothes that you wore on your way to Mordor,' said Gandalf. "'Even the orc rags that you bore in the Blackland, Frodo, shall be preserved. No silks and linens, nor any armour or heraldry could be more honourable.' 
but later I will find some other clothes, perhaps. Then he held out his hands to them, and they saw that one shone with light. What have you got there? Frodo cried. Can it be? Yes, I brought your two treasures. They were found on Sam when you were rescued. The Lady Galadriel's gifts, your glass, Frodo, and your box, Sam. You will be glad to have these safe again. When they were washed and clad, and had eaten a light meal, the hobbits followed Gandalf. They stepped out of the beech grove in which they had lain, and passed on to a long green lawn, glowing in sunshine, bordered by stately dark-leaved trees laden with scarlet blossom. Behind them they could hear the sound of falling water, and a stream ran down before them between flowering banks, until it came to a green wood at the lawn's foot, and passed then on under an archway of trees, through which they saw the shimmer of water far away. As they came to the opening in the wood, they were surprised to see knights in bright mail and tall guards in silver and black standing there, who greeted them with honour and bowed before them. And then one blew a long trumpet, and they went on through the Isle of Trees beside the singing stream. So they came to a wide green land, and beyond it was a broad river in a silver haze, out of which rose a long wooded isle, and many ships lay by its shores. But on the field where they now stood a great host was drawn up, in ranks and companies glittering in the sun. And as the hobbits approached, swords were unsheathed, and spears were shaken, and horns and trumpets sang, and men cried with many voices and in many tongues, Long live the halflings! Praise them with great praise! Cuyo Iferiainanan, Anglan Iferianath! Praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise, Dara Behail, Conan and Anrun, Eglerio, praise them, Eglerio, Alaitate, Laitate, Andave, Light of Almet, praise them, Koma Colindor, Alaitatariena, praise them, the ring bearers, praise them with great praise. And so the red blood blushing in their faces, and their eyes shining with wonder, Frodo and Sam went forward, and saw that amidst the clamorous host were set three high seats built of green turves. Behind the seat upon the right floated, white on green, a great horse running free. Upon the left was a banner, silver upon blue, a ship swan-proud faring on the sea, but behind the highest throne in the midst of all a great standard was spread in the breeze, and there a white tree flowered upon a sable field beneath a shining crown and seven glittering stars. On the throne sat a mail-clad man, a great sword was laid across his knees, but he wore no helm. As they drew near he rose, and then they knew him, changed as he was, so high and glad of face, kingly, lord of men, dark-haired with eyes of grey. Frodo ran to meet him, and Sam followed close behind. "'Well, if that isn't the crown of all,' he said, "'Strider, or I'm still asleep.' "'Yes, Sam, Strider,' said Aragorn. "'It is a long way, is it not, from Bree, where you did not like the look of me? "'A long way for us all, but yours has been the darkest road.' And then, to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, he bowed his knee before them. And taking them by the hand, 
Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, he led them to the throne, and setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so that his voice rang over all the host, crying, Praise them with great praise! And when the glad shout had swelled up and died away again, to Sam's final and complete satisfaction and pure joy, a minstrel of Gondor stood forth and knelt and begged leave to sing. And behold, he said, Lo, lords and knights and men of valour unashamed, kings and princes, and fair people of Gondor, and riders of Rohan, and ye sons of Elrond, and Dúnadion of the north, and elf and dwarf, and great hearts of the shire, and all free folk of the west, now listen to my lay. For I will sing to you of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. And when Sam heard that, he laughed aloud for sheer delight, and he stood up and cried, Oh, great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. And then he wept. And all the host laughed and wept. And in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords, and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. And at the last, as the sun fell from the noon and the shadows of the trees lengthened, he ended. Praise them with great praise, he said and knelt. And then Aragorn stood up, and all the host arose, and they passed to pavilions made ready to eat and drink and make merry while the day lasted. Frodo and Sam were led apart and brought to a tent, and there their old raiment was taken off, but folded and set aside with honour, and clean linen was given to them. Then Gandalf came, and in his arms, to the wonder of Frodo, he bore the sword and the elven cloak and the mithril coat that had been taken from him in Mordor. For Sam he brought a coat of gilded mail, and his elven cloak all healed of the soils and hurts that it had suffered. And then he laid before them two swords. "'I do not wish for any sword,' said Frodo. "'Tonight at least you should wear one,' said Gandalf. "'Then Frodo took the small sword that had belonged to Sam, "'and had been laid at his side in Kirithungol. "'Sting I gave to you, Sam,' he said. "'No, Master. "'Mr. Bilbo gave it to you, and it goes with his silver coat. "'He wouldn't wish anyone else to wear it now.' "'Frodo gave way, and Gandalf, as if he were their esquire, knelt and girt the sword-belts about them, and then rising he set circlets of silver upon their heads. And when they were arrayed, they went to the great feast, and they sat at the king's table with Gandalf, and King Eomer of Rohan, and the prince Imrahil, and all the chief captains, and there also were Gimli and Legolas. But when, after the standing silence, wine was brought, there came in two esquires to serve the kings, or so they seemed to be, 
One was clad in the silver and sable of the guards of Minas Tirith, and the other in white and green. But Sam wondered what such young boys were doing in an army of mighty men. Then suddenly, as they drew near and he could see them plainly, he exclaimed, "'Why, look, Mr. Frodo! Look here! Well, if it isn't Pippin! Mr. Peregrine Tuke, I should say, and Mr. Merry! How they've grown! Bless me! But I can see there's more tales to tell than ours!' "'There are indeed!' said Pippin, turning towards him. "'And we'll begin telling them as soon as this feast is ended. "'In the meantime you can try Gandalf. "'He's not so close as he used to be, "'though he laughs now more than he talks. "'For the present Merry and I are busy. "'We're knights of the city and of the mark, "'as I hope you observe.' "'At last the glad day ended, "'and when the sun was gone "'and the round moon rode slowly above the mists of Anduin "'and flickered through the flattering leaves,' Frodo and Sam sat under the whispering trees amid the fragrance of fair Ithilien, and they talked deep into the night with Merry and Pippin and Gandalf, and after a while Legolas and Gimli joined them. There Frodo and Sam learned much of all that had happened to the company after their fellowship was broken on the evil day at Path Garlan by Rauros Falls, and still there was always more to ask and more to tell. Orcs and talking trees and leagues of grass, and galloping riders, and glittering caves, and white towers, and golden halls, and battles, and tall ships sailing, all these passed before Sam's mind until he felt bewildered. But amidst all these wonders he returned again to his astonishment at the size of Merry and Pippin, and he made them stand back to back with Frodo and himself. He scratched his head. "'Can't understand it at your age,' he said. "'But there it is. "'You're three inches taller than you ought to be, or I'm a dwarf.' "'That you certainly are not,' said Gimli. "'But what did I say? "'Mortals cannot go drinking ent draughts "'and expect no more to come of them than a pot of beer.' "'Ent draughts?' said Sam. "'There you go about ents again, but what they are beats me.' "'Why, it'll take weeks before we get all these things sized up.' "'Weeks indeed,' said Pippin. "'And then Frodo will have to be locked up in a tower in Minas Tirith and write it all down. "'Otherwise he'll forget half of it, and poor old Bilbo will be dreadfully disappointed.' "'At length Gandalf rose. "'The hands of the king are hands of healing, dear friends,' he said. But he went to the very brink of death ere he recalled you, putting forth all his power, and sent you into the sweet forgetfulness of sleep. And though you have indeed slept long and blessedly, still it is now time to sleep again. And not only Sam and Frodo here, said Gimli, but you too, Pippin. I love you, if only because of the pains you've cost me, which I shall never forget. "'Nor shall I forget finding you on the hill of the last battle. "'But for Gimli the dwarf you would have been lost then. "'But at least I know now the look of a hobbit's foot, "'though it be all that can be seen under a heap of bodies. "'And when I heaved that great carcass off, I made sure you were dead. "'I could have torn out my beard. "'And it's only a day yet since you were first up and abroad again. "'To bed now you go, and so shall I.' "'And I,' said Legolas, 
shall walk in the woods of this fair land, which is rest enough. In days to come, if my elven lord allows, some of our folk shall remove hither, and when we come it shall be blessed for a while. For a while, a month, a life, a hundred years of men. But Andwin is near, and Andwin leads down to the sea, to the sea. To the sea, to the sea, the white gulls are crying, the wind is blowing, and the white foam is flying, west, west away, the round sun is falling, grey ship, grey ship, do you hear them calling, the voices of my people that have gone before me. I will leave, I will leave the woods that bore me. For our days are ending, and our years failing, I will pass the wide waters, lonely sailing. Long are the waves, on the last shore falling, Sweet are the voices, in the lost isle calling, in Eresea, in elven home that no man can discover, where the leaves fall not, land of my people forever. And so singing, Legolas went away down the hill. Then the others also departed, and Frodo and Sam went to their beds and slept. And in the morning they rose again in hope and peace, and they spent many days in Ithilien. For the field of Cormallon, where the host was now encamped, was near to Henethanun, and the stream that flowed from its falls could be heard in the night as it rushed down through its rocky gate and passed through the flowery meads into the tides of Anduin by the Isle of Kyrandros. The hobbits wandered here and there, visiting again the places that they had passed before, and Sam hoped always in some shadow of the woods or secret glade to catch, maybe, a glimpse of the great Oliphant. And when he learned that at the siege of Gondor there had been a great number of these beasts, but that they were all destroyed, he thought it a sad loss. Well, one can't be everywhere at once, I suppose, he said, but I missed a lot, seemingly. In the meanwhile the host made ready for the return to Minas Tirith. The weary rested, and the hurt were healed. For some had laboured and fought much with the remnants of the Easterlings and Southrons until all were subdued. And latest of all, those returned who had passed into Mordor and destroyed the fortresses in the north of the land. But at the last, when the month of May was drawing near, the captains of the West set out again. And they went aboard ship with all their men, and they sailed from Caer Andros down Anduin to Osgiliath, and there they remained for one day.
And the day after, they came to the green fields of the Pelennor, and saw again the white towers under tall Mindolwin, the city of the men of Gondor, last memory of Westerness, that had passed through the darkness and far to a new day. And there, in the midst of the fields, they set up their pavilions and awaited the morning. For it was the eve of May, and the king would enter his gates with the rising of the sun. Chapter 5 The Steward and the King Over the city of Gondor doubt and great dread had hung. Fair weather and clear sun had seemed but a mockery to men whose days held little hope, and who looked each morning for news of doom. Their lord was dead and burned. Dead lay the king of Rohan in their citadel and the new king that had come to them in the night was gone again to a war with powers too dark and terrible for any might or valour to conquer. And no news came. After the host left Morgul Vale and took the northward road beneath the shadow of the mountains, no messenger had returned, nor any rumour of what was passing in the brooding east. When the captains were but two days gone, the Lady Eowyn bade the women who tended her to bring her raiment, and she would not be gainsaid, but rose. And when they had clothed her and set her arm in a sling of linen, she went to the warden of the Houses of Healing. Sir, she said, I am in great unrest, and I cannot lie longer in sloth. Lady, he answered, you are not yet healed, and I was commanded to tend you with a special care. You should not have risen from your bed for seven days yet, or so I was bidden. I beg you to go back. I am healed, she said. Healed at least in body, save my left arm only, and that is at ease. But I shall sicken anew if there is naught that I can do. Are there no tidings of war? The women can tell me nothing. There are no tidings said the warden, save that the lords have ridden to Morgul Vale, and men say that the new captain out of the north is their chief. A great lord is that, and a healer, and it is a thing passing strange to me that the healing hand should also wield the sword. It is not thus in Gondor now, though once it was so, if old tales be true. But for years we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. Though we should still have enough to do without them, the world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden, answered Eowyn, and those who have not swords can still die upon them. Would you have the folk of Gondor gather you herbs only, when the Dark Lord gathers armies? And it is not always good to be healed in body, nor is it always evil to die in battle, even in bitter pain. What I permitted... In this dark hour I would choose the latter. The warden looked at her. Tall she stood there, her eyes bright in her white face, her hand clenched as she turned and gazed out of his window that opened to the east. He sighed and shook his head. After a pause she turned to him again. "'Is there no deed to do?' she said. "'Who commands in this city?' "'I do not rightly know,' he answered. Such things are not my care. There is a marshal over the riders of Rohan, and the Lord Hurin, I am told, commands the men of Gondor. 
but the Lord Faramir is by right the steward of the city. Where can I find him? In this house, lady. He was sorely hurt, but is now set again on the way to health. But I do not know. Will you not bring me to him? Then he will know. The Lord Faramir was walking alone in the garden of the Houses of Healing, and the sunlight warmed him, and he felt life run new in his veins, but his heart was heavy, and he looked out over the walls eastward. And coming, the warden spoke his name, and he turned and saw the Lady Eowyn of Rohan, and he was moved with pity, for he saw that she was hurt, and his clear sight perceived her sorrow and unrest. "'My lord,' said the warden, "'here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan. "'She rode with the king and was sorely hurt, "'and dwells now in my keeping. "'But she is not content, "'and she wishes to speak to the steward of the city.' "'Do not misunderstand me, lord,' said Eowyn. "'It is not lack of care that grieves me. "'No houses could be fairer for those who desire to be healed. "'But I cannot lie in sloth, idle, caged.' I looked for death in battle, but I have not died, and battle still goes on. At a sign from Faramir, the warden bowed and departed. What would you have me do, lady? said Faramir. I also am a prisoner of the healers. He looked at her, and being a man whom pity deeply stirred, it seemed to him that her loveliness amid her grief would pierce his heart. And she looked at him and saw the grave tenderness in his eyes, and yet knew, for she was bred among men of war, that here was one whom no rider of the mark would outmatch in battle. "'What do you wish?' he said again. "'If it lies in my power, I will do it.' "'I would have you command this warden, and bid him let me go,' she said. But though her words were still proud, her heart faltered, and for the first time she doubted herself. She guessed that this tall man, both stern and gentle, might think her merely wayward, like a child that has not the firmness of mind to go on with a dull task to the end. "'I myself am in the warden's keeping,' answered Faramir, "'nor have I yet taken up my authority in the city. But had I done so, I should still listen to his counsel, and should not cross his will in matters of his craft, unless in some great need.' "'But I do not desire healing,' she said. "'I wish to ride to war like my brother Eomer, "'or better like Theoden the king, "'for he died and has both honour and peace.' "'It is too late, lady, to follow the captains, "'even if you had the strength,' said Faramir. "'But death in battle may come to us all yet, "'willing or unwilling. "'You will be better prepared to face it in your own manner, "'if while there is still time you do as the healer commanded.' You and I, we must endure with patience the hours of waiting. She did not answer, but as he looked at her, it seemed to him that something in her softened, as though a bitter frost were yielding at the first faint presage of spring. A tear sprang in her eye and fell down her cheek like a glistening raindrop. Her proud head drooped a little, then quietly, more as if speaking to herself than to him, "'But the healers would have me lie abed seven days yet,' she said, "'and my window does not look eastward.' "'Her voice was now that of a maiden, young and sad. "'Faramir smiled, though his heart was filled with pity. 
Your window does not look eastward, he said. That can be amended. In this I will command the warden. If you will stay in this house in our care, lady, and take your rest, then you shall walk in this garden in the sun as you will, and you shall look east, whither all our hopes have gone. And here you will find me, walking and waiting, and also looking east. It would ease my care if you would speak to me, or walk at whiles with me. Then she raised her head and looked him in the eyes again, and a colour came in her pale face. "'How should I ease your care, my lord?' she said, "'and I do not desire the speech of living men.' "'Would you have my plain answer?' he said. "'I would. "'Then, Eowyn of Rohan, I say to you that you are beautiful. "'In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright, "'and maidens fairer still.' But neither flower nor lady have I seen till now in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon our world, and when it comes I hope to face it steadily. But it would ease my heart, if while the sun yet shines I could see you still. For you and I have both passed under the wings of the shadow, and the same hand drew us back. "'Alas, not me, Lord,' she said. "'Shadow lies on me still. "'Look not to me for healing. "'I am a shield-maiden, and my hand is ungentle. "'But I thank you for this at least, "'that I need not keep to my chamber. "'I will walk abroad by the grace of the steward of the city.' "'And she did him a courtesy and walked back to the house. "'But Faramir, for a long while, walked alone in the garden, "'and his glance now strayed rather to the house.' than to the eastward walls. When he returned to his chamber, he called for the warden, and heard all that he could tell of the Lady of Rohan. "'But I doubt not, Lord,' said the warden, "'that you would learn more from the halfling that is with us, "'for he was in the riding of the king, "'and with the lady at the end, they say.' And so Mary was sent to Faramir, and while that day lasted they talked long together, and Faramir learned much, more even than Mary put into words, and he thought that he understood now something of the grief and unrest of Eowyn of Rohan. And in the fair evening Faramir and Mary walked in the garden, but she did not come. But in the morning, as Faramir came from the houses, he saw her as she stood upon the walls, and she was clad all in white and gleamed in the sun. And he called to her, and she came down, and they walked on the grass or sat under a green tree together, now in silence, now in speech. And each day after they did likewise. And the warden, looking from his window, was glad in heart, for he was a healer, and his care was lightened. And certain it was that, heavy as was the dread and foreboding of those days upon the hearts of men, still these two of his charges prospered and grew daily in strength. And so the fifth day came, since the Lady Eowyn went first to Faramir, and they stood now together once more upon the walls of the city and looked out. No tidings had yet come, and all hearts were darkened. The weather, too, was bright no longer. It was cold. A wind that had sprung up in the night was blowing now keenly from the north, and it was rising. But the lands about looked grey and drear. They were clad in warm raiment and heavy cloaks 
and over all the Lady Eowyn wore a great blue mantle of the colour of deep summer night, and it was set with silver stars about hem and throat. Faramir had sent for this robe, and had wrapped it about her, and he thought that she looked fair and queenly indeed as she stood there at his side. The mantle was wrought by his mother, Findwilas of Amroth, who died untimely, and was to him but a memory of loveliness in far days, and of his first grief. And her robe seemed to him raiment fitting for the beauty and sadness of Eowyn. But she now shivered beneath the starry mantle, and she looked northward, above the grey hitherlands, into the eye of the cold wind, where far away the sky was hard and clear. "'What do you look for, Eowyn?' said Faramir. "'Does not the black gate lie yonder?' she said. "'And must he not now become thither? "'It is seven days since he rode away.' Seven days,' said Faramir. "'But think not ill of me if I say to you, "'they have brought me both a joy and a pain that I never thought to know. "'Joy to see you, but pain, "'because now the fear and doubt of this evil time are grown dark indeed.' Erwin, I would not have this world end now, or lose so soon what I have found. Lose what you have found, Lord, she answered, but she looked at him gravely, and her eyes were kind. I know not what in these days you have found that you could lose, but come, my friend, let us not speak of it. Let us not speak at all. I stand upon some dreadful brink, and it is utterly dark in the abyss before my feet. "'but whether there is any light behind me I cannot tell. "'For I cannot turn yet. "'I wait for some stroke of doom.' "'Yes, we wait for the stroke of doom,' said Faramir. "'And they said no more, "'and it seemed to them, as they stood upon the wall, "'that the wind died, and the light failed, "'and the sun was bleared, "'and all sounds in the city or in the lands about were hushed. "'Neither wind nor voice, nor bird call, nor rustle of leaf, nor their own breath could be heard. The very beating of their hearts was stilled. Time halted. And as they stood so, their hands met and clasped, though they did not know it, and still they waited, for they knew not what. Then presently it seemed to them that above the ridges of the distant mountains Another vast mountain of darkness rose, towering up like a wave that should engulf the world, and about it lightnings flickered. And then a tremor ran through the earth, and they felt the walls of the city quiver. A sound like a sigh went up from all the lands about them, and their hearts beat suddenly again. "'It reminds me of Numenor,' said Faramir, and wondered to hear himself speak. "'Of Numenor,' said Eowyn. "'Yes,' said Faramir, "'of the land of westerness that founded, "'and of the great dark wave climbing over the green lands "'and above the hills, and coming on, darkness unescapable. "'I often dream of it.' "'Then you think that the darkness is coming,' said Eowyn. "'Darkness unescapable.' "'And suddenly she drew close to him. "'No,' said Faramir, looking into her face. "'It was but a picture in the mind. "'I don't know what's happening. "'The reason of my waking mind "'tells me that great evil has befallen, "'and we stand at the end of days. "'But my heart says nay. 
and all my limbs are light, and a hope and joy are come to me that no reason can deny. Eowyn, Eowyn, white lady of Rowan, in this hour I don't believe that any darkness will endure. And he stooped and kissed her brow. And so they stood on the walls of the city of Gondor, and a great wind rose and blew, and their hair, raven and golden, streamed out mingling in the air, and the shadow departed, and the sun was unveiled, and light leaped forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver, and in all the houses of the city men sang for the joy that welled up in their hearts from what source they could not tell. And before the sun had fallen far from the noon, out of the east there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west, crying, Sing now, ye people of the Tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron is ended for ever, and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of God, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king hath passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life and the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people. And the people sang in all the ways of the city. The days that followed were golden, and spring and summer joined and made revel together in the fields of Gondor and tidings now came by swift riders from Caer Andros of all that was done, and the city made ready for the coming of the king. Mary was summoned, and rode away with the wains that took store of goods to us Gileath, and thence by ship to Caer Andros. But Faramir did not go, for now, being healed, he took upon him his authority and the stewardship, although it was only for a little while, and his duty was to prepare for one who should replace him. And Eowyn did not go, though her brother sent word, begging her to come to the field of Cormelan. And Faramir wondered at this, but he saw her seldom, being busy with many matters, and she dwelt still in the houses of healing, and walked alone in the garden, and her face grew pale again, and it seemed that in all the city she only was ailing and sorrowful, and the warden of the houses was troubled, and he spoke to Faramir. Then Faramir came and sought her, and once more they stood on the walls together, and he said to her, Eowyn, why do you tarry here, and do not go to the rejoicing in Cormallon beyond Kyarandros, where your brother awaits you? And she said, Do you not know? But he answered, Two reasons there may be, but which is true I do not know. And she said, I do not wish to play at riddles, speak plainer. Then if you will have it so, lady, he said, you do not go, because only your brother called for you, and to look on the Lord Aragorn, Elendil's heir, in his triumph, would now bring you no joy. Or because I do not go, and you desire still to be near me. And maybe, for both these reasons, and you yourself cannot choose between them. Eowyn, do you not love me, or will you not? I wished to be loved by another, she answered, 
but I desire no man's pity. That I know, he said. You desired to have the love of the Lord Aragorn, because he was high and puissant, and you wished to have renown and glory, and to be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great captain may to a young soldier, he seemed to you admirable, for so he is, a lord among men, the greatest that now is. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desired to have nothing unless a brave death in battle. Look at me, Eowyn. And Eowyn looked at Faramir long and steadily, and Faramir said, Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart, Eowyn, but I don't offer you my pity, for you are a lady high and valiant, and have yourself one renown that shall not be forgotten, and you are a lady beautiful, I deem, beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell. And I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow. But now, were you sorrowless, without fear of any lack, were you the blissful queen of Gondor, still I would love you. Eowyn, do you not love me? And the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it, and suddenly her winter passed, and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minas Anor, the Tower of the Sun, she said, and behold, the shadow has departed. I will be a shield-maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. That is well, he said, for I am not a king, yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will, and if she will, then let us cross the river, and in happier days let us dwell in fair Ithilien, and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there, if the white lady comes. Then must I leave my own people, man of Gondor, she said, and would you have your proud folk say of you, there goes a lord who tamed a wild shield-maiden of the north. Was there no woman of the race of Numenor to choose? I would, said Faramir. And he took her in his arms and kissed her under the sunlit sky. And he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And many indeed saw them, and the light that shone about them as they came down from the walls and went hand in hand to the houses of healing. And to the warden of the houses, Faramir said, Here is the lady Eowyn of Rohan, and now she is healed. And the warden said, Then I release her from my charge, and bid her farewell, and may she suffer never hurt nor sickness again. I commend her to the care of the steward of the city until her brother returns. But Eowyn said, Yet now that I have leave to depart, I would remain. For this house has become to me of all dwellings the most blessed. And she remained there until King Eomer came. All things were now made ready in the city, and there was great concourse of people, for the tidings had gone out into all parts of Gondor, from Minrimon even to Pinath Gelin, and the far coasts of the sea. And all that could come to the city made haste to come. And the city was filled again with women and fair children that returned to their homes laden with flowers, and from Dal Amroth 
came the harp as that harped most skilfully in all the land, and there were players upon viols and upon flutes and upon horns of silver, and clear-voiced singers from the vales of Lebenin. At last an evening came, when from the walls the pavilions could be seen upon the field, and all night lights were burning as men watched for the dawn. And when the sun rose in the clear morning above the mountains in the east, upon which shadows lay no more, then all the bells rang, and all the banners broke and flowed in the wind, and upon the white tower of the citadel, the standard of the stewards, bright argent like snow in the sun, bearing no charge nor device, was raised over Gondor for the last time. Now the captains of the west led their host towards the city, and folk saw them advance in line upon line, flashing and glinting in the sunrise and rippling like silver. And so they came before the gateway, and halted a furlong from the walls. As yet no gates had been set up again, but a barrier was laid across the entrance to the city, and there stood men-at-arms in silver and black with long swords drawn. Before the barrier stood Faramir the steward, and Hurin, warden of the keys, and other captains of Gondor, and the lady Eowyn of Rohan, with Elfhelm of the marshal, and many knights of the mark and upon either side of the gate was a great press of fair people in raiment of many colours and garlands of flowers. So now there was a wide space before the walls of Minas Tirith, and it was hemmed in upon all sides by the knights and the soldiers of Gondor and of Rowan, and by the people of the city and of all parts of the land. A hush fell upon all as out from the host stepped the Dúnadain in silver and grey, and before them came walking slow the Lord Aragorn. He was clad in black mail girt with silver, and he wore a long mantle of pure white, clasped at the throat with a great jewel of green that shone from afar. But his head was bare, save for a star upon his forehead, bound by a slender fillet of silver. With him were Eomer of Rohan, and the Prince Imrahil, and Gandalf robed all in white, and four small figures that many men marvelled to see. "'Nay, cousin, they are not boys,' said Yoreth to her kinswoman from Imloth Melwy, who stood beside her. "'Those are Periyne, out of the far country of the halflings, where they are princes of great fame,' it is said. "'I should know, for I had one to tend in the houses. They are small, but they are valiant. Why, cousin?' One of them went with only his esquire into the black country, and fought with a dark lord all by himself, and set fire to his tower, if you can believe it. At least that is the tale in the city. That will be the one that walks with our Elfstone. They're dear friends, I hear. Now he is a marvel, the Lord Elfstone. Not too soft in his speech, mind you, but he has a golden heart, as the saying is, and he has the healing hands. "'The hands of the king are the hands of a healer,' I said, "'and that was how it was all discovered. "'And Mithranda, he said to me, "'Yoreth, men will long remember your words, and—' "'But Yoreth was not permitted to continue "'the instruction of her kinswoman from the country, "'for a single trumpet rang, and a dead silence followed. "'Then forth from the gate went Faramir from Horin of the Keys, "'and no others.' save that behind them walked four men in the high helms and armour of the citadel, and they bore a great casket of black lebethron bound with silver. Faramir met Aragorn in the midst of those there assembled, 
and he knelt and said, The last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office. And he held out a white rod. But Aragorn took the rod and gave it back, saying, That office is not ended, and it shall be thine and thy heirs as long as my line shall last. Do now thy office. Then Faramir stood up and spoke in a clear voice, Men of Gondor, hear now the steward of this realm. Behold, one has come to claim the kingship again at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, the Elfstone, Elessar of the line of Valandil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the host and all the people cried, Yea, with one voice. And Eora said to her kinswoman, This is just a ceremony such as we have in the city, cousin, for he has already entered, as I was telling you, and he said to me, and then again she was obliged to silence, for Faramir spoke again. Men of Gondor, the law-masters tell that it was the custom of old that the king should receive the crown from his father ere he died, or, if that might not be, that he should go alone and take it from the hands of his father in the tomb where he was laid. But since things must now be done otherwise, using the authority of the steward, I have to-day brought hither from Rathdiden the crown of Aeanor, the last king, whose days passed in the time of our long fathers of old. Then the guard stepped forward, and Faramir opened the casket, and he held up an ancient crown. It was shaped like the helms of the guards of the citadel, save that it was loftier, and it was all white and the wings at either side were wrought of pearl and silver in the likeness of the wings of a seabird, for it was the emblem of kings who came over the sea. And seven gems of adamant were set in the circlet, and upon its summit was set a single jewel, the light of which went up like a flame. Then Aragorn took the crown, and held it up, and said, Et! Tiarello endorena utulian sinome maravan ar hildiniar ten ambarmetta. And those were the words that Elendil spoke when he came up out of the sea on the wings of the wind. Out of the great sea to Middle Earth I am come, in this place will I abide, and my heirs until the ending of the world. Then, to the wonder of many, Aragorn did not put the crown upon his head, but gave it back to Faramir, and said, By the labor and valor of many I have come into my inheritance. In token of this I would have the ring-bearer bring the crown to me, and let Mithrandir set it upon my head, if he will. For he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished, and this is his victory. Then Frodo came forward, and took the crown from Faramir, and bore it to Gandalf. And Aragorn knelt, and Gandalf set the white crown upon his head, and said, Now come the days of the king, and may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure. 
But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea-kings of old, he stood above all that were near, ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, and wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king! And in that moment all the trumpets were blown, and the king Elessar went forth and came to the barrier, and Huron of the Keys thrust it back, and amid the music of harp and of viol and of flute, and the singing of clear voices, the king passed through the flower-laden streets, and came to the citadel, and entered in. And the banner of the tree and the stars were unfurled upon the topmost tower, and the reign of King Elessar began, of which many songs have told. In his time the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory, and it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble, and the folk of the mountain laboured in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women and the laughter of children, and no window was blind nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. In the days that followed his crowning, the king sat on his throne in the halls of the kings and pronounced his judgments. And embassies came from many lands and peoples, from the east and the south, and from the borders of Mirkwood, and from Dunland in the west. And the king pardoned the Easterlings that had given themselves up, and sent them away free. And he made peace with the peoples of Harad. And the slaves of Mordor he released, and gave to them all the lands about Lake Nurnan to be their own. And there were brought before him many to receive his praise and reward for their valour. And last the captain of the guard brought to him Beragond to be judged. And the king said to Beragond, Beragond, by your sword blood was spilled in the hallows, where that is forbidden. Also you left your post without leave of lord or of captain. For these things of old death was the penalty. Now therefore I must pronounce your doom. All penalty is remitted for your valour in battle, and still more because all that you did was for the love of the lord Faramir. Nonetheless, you must leave the guard of the citadel, and you must go forth from the city of Minas Tirith. Then the blood left Beragond's face, and he was stricken to the heart and bowed his head. But the king said, So it must be, for you are appointed to the white company, the guard of Faramir, prince of Ithilien, and you shall be its captain and dwell in Eminan and in honour and peace, and in the service of him for whom you risk all to save him from death. And then Beragond, perceiving the mercy and justice of the king, was glad, and kneeling kissed his hand, and departed in joy and content. And Aragorn gave to Faramir Ithilien to be his princedom, and bade him dwell in the hills of Emin Arnon within sight of the city. For, he said, Minas Ithil in Morgulvale shall be utterly destroyed.' 
and though it may in time to come be made clean, no man may dwell there for many long years. And last of all Aragorn greeted Aylmer of Rowan, and they embraced, and Aragorn said, Between us there can be no word of giving or taking, nor of reward, for we are brethren. In happy hour did Aeol ride from the north, and never has any league of peoples been more blessed, so that neither has ever failed the other, nor shall fail. Now, as you know, we have laid Theoden the renowned in a tomb in the hallows, and there he shall lie forever among the kings of Gondor, if you will. Or, if you desire it, we will come to Rohan and bring him back to rest with his own people. And Eomer answered, Since the day when you rose before me out of the green grass of the downs I have loved you, and that love shall not fail. But now I must depart for a while to my own realm, where there is much to heal and set in order. But as for the fallen, when all is made ready, we will return for him. But here let him sleep a while. And Eowyn said to Faramir, Now I must go back to my own land, and look on it once again, and help my brother in his labour. But when one whom I long loved as father is laid at last to rest, I will return. So the glad days passed, and on the eighth day of May the riders of Rohan made ready, and rode off by the north way, and with them went the sons of Elrond. All the roads were lined with people, to do them honour and praise them, from the gate of the city to the walls of the Pelenno. Then all others that dwelt afar went back to their homes rejoicing, but in the city there was labour of many willing hands to rebuild and renew and to remove all the scars of war and the memory of the darkness. The hobbits still remained in Minas Tirith, with Legolas and Gimli, for Aragorn was loath for the friendship to be dissolved. At last all such things must end, he said, but I would have you wait a little while longer, for the end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. A day draws near that I have looked for in all the years of my manhood, and when it comes I would have my friends beside me. But of that day he would say no more. In those days the companions of the ring dwelt together in a fair house with Gandalf, and they went to and fro as they wished. And Frodo said to Gandalf, Do you know what this day is that Aragorn speaks of? For we are happy here, and I don't wish to go, but the days are running away and Bilbo's waiting, and the Shire is my home. As for Bilbo, said Gandalf, he is waiting for the same day, and he knows what keeps you. And as for the passing of the days, it's now only May, and high summer is not yet in. And though all things may seem changed, as if an age of the world had gone by, yet to the trees and the grass it is less than a year since you set out. Pippin, said Frodo, didn't you say that Gandalf was less close than of old? He was weary of his labours then, I think. Now he's recovering. And Gandalf said, Many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have laboured to prepare the feast like to keep their secret, for wonder makes the words of praise louder, and Aragorn himself waits for a sign. There came a day when Gandalf could not be found, and the companions wondered what was going forward. But Gandalf took Aragorn out from the city by night, 
and he brought him to the southern feet of Mount Mindonluin. And there they found a path made in ages past that few now dared to tread, for it led up on to the mountain to a high hollow where only the kings had been wont to go. And they went up by steep ways until they came to a high field below the snows that clad the lofty peaks, and it looked down over the precipice that stood behind the city. And standing there they surveyed the lands, for the morning was come. And they saw the towers of the city far below them like white pencils touched by the sunlight. And all the vale of Anduin was like a garden, and the mountains of shadow were veiled in a golden mist. Upon the one side their sight reached to the grey Emin wheel, and the glint of Rauros was like a star twinkling far off. And upon the other side they saw the river like a ribbon laid down to Pelargir, and beyond that was a light on the hem of the sky that spoke of the sea. And Gandalf said, This is your realm, and the heart of the greater realm that shall be. The third age of the world is ended, and the new age is begun and it is your task to order its beginning and to preserve what may be preserved. For though much has been saved, much must now pass away, and the power of the three rings also is ended, and all the lands that you see, and those that lie round about them, shall be dwellings of men. For the time comes of the dominion of men, and the elder kindred shall fade or depart. I know it well, dear friend, said Aragorn, but I would still have your counsel. Not for long now, said Gandalf. The third age was my age. I was the enemy of Sauron, and my work is finished. I shall go soon. The burden must lie now upon you and your kindred. But I shall die, said Aragorn, for I am a mortal man and though being what I am, and of the race of the West unmingled, I shall have life far longer than other men, yet that is but a little while. And when those who are now in the wombs of women are born and have grown old, I too shall grow old. And who then shall govern Gondor, and those who look to this city as to their queen, if my desire be not granted? The tree in the court of the fountain is still withered and barren. When shall I see a sign that it will ever be otherwise. Turn your face from the green world, and look where all seems barren and cold, said Gandalf. Then Aragorn turned, and there was a stony slope behind him running down from the skirts of the snow. And as he looked he was aware that alone there in the waste a growing thing stood. And he climbed to it, and saw that out of the very edge of the snow there sprang a sapling tree no more than three foot high. Already it had put forth young leaves long and shapely, dark above and silver beneath, and upon its slender crown it bore one small cluster of flowers whose white petals shone like the sunlit snow. Then Aragorn cried, Yea, O Tuvianius, I have found it, lo, here is a scion of the eldest of trees. But how comes it here? For it is not itself yet seven years old. And Gandalf coming looked at it and said, Verily this is a sapling of the line of Nimloth the Fair, 
and that was the seedling of Galathelion, and that a fruit of Telperion of many names, eldest of trees. Who shall say how it comes here in the appointed hour? But this is an ancient hallow, and ere the kings failed or the tree withered in the court, a fruit must have been set here. For it is said that, though the fruit of the tree comes seldom to ripeness, yet the life within may then lie sleeping through many long years, and none can foretell the time in which it will awake. Remember this, for if ever a fruit ripens, it should be planted, lest the line die out of the world. Here it has lain hidden on the mountain, even as the race of Elendil lay hidden in the wastes of the north. Yet the line of Nimloth is older far than your line, King Alessar. Then Aragorn laid his hand gently to the sapling, and lo! It seemed to hold only lightly to the earth, and it was removed without hurt, and Aragorn bore it back to the citadel. Then the withered tree was uprooted, but with reverence, and they did not burn it, but laid it to rest in the silence of Rath Dedan. And Aragorn planted the new tree in the court by the fountain, and swiftly and gladly it began to grow. And when the month of June entered in, it was laden with blossom. The sign has been given, said Aragorn, and the day is not far off. And he set watchmen upon the walls. It was the day before midsummer when messengers came from Armondine to the city, and they said that there was a riding of fair folk out of the north, and they drew near now to the walls of the Pelennor. And the king said, At last they have come. Let all the city be made ready. Upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was blue as sapphire and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden, and the air was cool and fragrant, the riders came down the north way to the gates of Minas Tirith. First rode Elro here and Eladan with a banner of silver, and then came Glorfindel and Eristor, and all the household of Rivendell, and after them came the Lady Galadriel and Celeborn, Lord of Lothlorien, riding upon white steeds, and with them many fair folk of their land, grey cloaked with white gems in their hair, and last came Master Elrond, mighty among elves and men, bearing the sceptre of Anuminus, and beside him, upon a grey palfrey, rode Arwen his daughter, even star of her people. And Frodo, when he saw her come glimmering in the evening, with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her, was moved with great wonder, and he said to Gandalf, At last I understand why we've waited. This is the ending. Now not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed, and all its fear pass away. Then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted. And Elrond surrendered the sceptre, and laid the hands of his daughter in the hand of the king, and together they went up into the high city, and all the stars flowered in the sky. And Aragorn the king Elessar wedded Arwen Undomiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer, and the tale of their long waiting and labours was come to fulfilment. Chapter 6 Many Partings When the days of rejoicing were over at last, the companions thought of returning to their own homes. And Frodo went to the king, 
as he was sitting with the Queen Arwen by the fountain, and she sang a song of Valinor while the tree grew and blossomed. They welcomed Frodo and rose to greet him, and Aragorn said, I know what you've come to say, Frodo. You wish to return to your own home. Well, dearest friend, the tree grows best in the land of its sires, but for you in all the lands of the West there will ever be a welcome. And though your people have had little fame in the legends of the great, they will now have more renown than any wide realms that are no more. It is true that I wish to go back to the Shire, said Frodo, but first I must go to Rivendell, for if there could be anything wanting in a time so blessed, I missed Bilbo, and I was grieved when among all the household of Elrond I saw that he was not come. Do you wonder at that, ring-bearer, said Arwen, for you know the power of that thing which is now destroyed, and all that was done by that power is now passing away. But your kinsman possessed this thing longer than you. He is ancient in years now, according to his kind, and he awaits you, for he will not again make any long journey save one. Then I beg leave to depart soon, said Frodo. In seven days we will go, said Aragorn, for we shall ride with you far on the road, even as far as the country of Rohan. In three days now, Eomer will return hither to bear Theoden back to rest in the mark, and we shall ride with him to honour the fallen. But now, before you go, I will confirm the words that Faramir spoke to you, and you are made free forever of the realm of Gondor, and all your companions likewise. And if there were any gifts that I could give to match with your deeds, you should have them. But whatever you desire, you shall take with you and you shall ride in honour and arrayed as princes of the land. But the Queen Arwen said, A gift I will give you, for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the havens, for mine is the choice of Luthien, and as she, so have I chosen both the sweet and the bitter. But in my stead you shall go, ring-bearer, when the time comes, and if you then desire it. If your hurts grieve you still, and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the west, until all your wounds and weariness are healed. But wear this now in memory of Elfstone and Evenstar, with whom your life has been woven. And she took a white gem like a star that lay upon her breast, hanging upon a silver chain, and she set the chain about Frodo's neck, when the memory of the fear and the darkness troubles you, she said, this will bring you aid. In three days, as the king had said, Eomer of Rohan came riding to the city, and with him came an Aorid of the fairest knights of the mark. He was welcomed, and when they sat all at table in Merathrond, the great hall of feasts, he beheld the beauty of the ladies that he saw, and was filled with great wonder. And before he went to his rest, he sent for Gimli the dwarf, and he said to him, Gimli, gloin son, have you your axe ready? Nay, lord, said Gimli, but I can speedily fetch it, if there be need. You shall judge, said Helmer, for there are certain rash words concerning the lady in the golden wood that lies still between us, and now I have seen her with my eyes. 
"'Well, Lord,' said Gimli, "'and what say you now?' "'Alas,' said Eomer, "'I will not say that she is the fairest lady that lives.' "'Then I must go for my axe,' said Gimli. "'But first I will plead this excuse,' said Eomer. "'Had I seen her in other company, "'I would have said all that you could wish. "'But now I will put Queen Arwen Evenstar first, "'and I am ready to do battle on my own part "'with any who deny me. "'Shall I call for my sword?' "'Then Gimli bowed low. "'Nay, you are excused for my part, Lord,' he said. "'You have chosen the evening, "'but my love is given to the morning.' and my heart forebodes that soon it will pass away for ever. At last the day of departure came, and a great and fair company made ready to ride north from the city. Then the kings of Gondor and Rohan went to the hallows, and they came to the tombs in Rathdenan, and they bore away King Theoden upon a golden bier, and passed through the city in silence. Then they laid the bier upon a great wain with riders of Rohan all about it, and his banner borne before. And Mary, being Theoden's esquire, rode upon the wain, and kept the arms of the king. For the other companions, steeds were furnished, according to their stature, and Frodo and Samwise rode at Aragorn's side, and Gandalf rode upon Shadowfax, and Pippin rode with the knights of Gondor, and Legolas and Gimli, as ever, rode together upon Arod. In that riding went also Queen Arwen, and Celeborn, and Galadriel with their folk, and Elrond and his sons, and the princes of Dol Amroth, and of Ithilien, and many captains and knights. Never had any king of the mark such company upon the road as went with Theoden Thingol's son to the land of his home. Without haste and at peace they passed into Anorion, and they came to the grey woods under Armondine, and there they heard a sound as of drums beating in the hills, though no living thing could be seen. Then Aragorn let the trumpets be blown, and heralds cried, Behold, the king Elessa is come. The forest of Druadan he gives to Han Burihan and to his folk, to be their own forever, and hereafter let no man enter it without their leave. Then the drums rolled loudly and were silent. At length, after fifteen days of journey, the wain of King Theoden passed through the green fields of Rohan and came to Edoras, and there they all rested. The golden hall was arrayed with fair hangings, and it was filled with light, and there was held the highest feast that it had known since the days of its building. For after three days the men of the mark prepared the funeral of Theoden, and he was laid in a house of stone, with his arms and many other fair things that he had possessed. And over him was raised a great mound, covered with green turbs of grass and of white evermind. And now there were eight mounds on the east side of the barrowfield. Then the riders of the king's house upon white horses rode round about the barrow, and sang together a song of Theoden, Thengel's son, that Gleowine his minstrel made and he made no other song after. The slow voices of the riders stirred the hearts even of those who did not know the speech of that people. But the words of the song brought a light to the eyes of the folk of the mark, as they heard again afar the thunder of the hooves of the north, 
and the voice of Aeol crying above the battle upon the field of Celebrant. And the tale of the kings rolled on, and the horn of Helm was loud in the mountains, until the darkness came, and King Theoden arose, and rode through the shadow to the fire, and died in splendour, even as the sun, returning beyond hope, gleamed upon Mindolwin in the morning. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, he rode singing in the sun, sword unsheathing, hope he rekindled, and in hope ended, over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, unto long glory. But Medis stood at the foot of the green mound, and he wept, and when the song was ended, he arose and cried, Theoden king, Theoden king, farewell, as a father you were to me for a little while, farewell. When the burial was over and the weeping of women was stilled, and Theoden was left at last alone in his barrow, then folk gathered to the golden hall for the great feast and put away their sorrow. For Theoden had lived to full years, and ended in honour no less than the greatest of his sires. And when the time came that in the custom of the mark they should drink to the memory of the kings, Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, came forth, golden as the sun and white as snow, and she bore a filled cup to Eomer. Then a minstrel and lawmaster stood up, and named all the names of the lords of the mark in their order. Eol the young, and Brago, builder of the hall, and Aldor, brother of Baldor the hapless, and Freya, and Freyawine, and Goldwine, and Deor, and Gram, and Helm, who lay hid in Helm's Deep when the mark was overrun. And so ended the nine mounds of the west side, for in that time the line was broken, and after came the mounds of the east side, Freyalaf, Helm's sister son, and Leofer, and Walda, and Folker, and Falkwine, and Fengal, and Thengal, and Theoden the latest. And when Theoden was named, Eomer drained the cup. Then Eowyn bade those that served to fill the cups, and all there assembled rose and drank to the new king, crying, Hail, Eomer, king of the mark. At the last, when the feast drew to an end, Eomer arose and said, Now this is the funeral feast of Theoden the king, but I will speak, ere we go, of tidings of joy, for he would not grudge that I should do so, since he was ever a father of Eowyn, my sister. Hear then all my guests, fair folk of many realms, such as have never before been gathered in this hall. Faramir, steward of Gondor, and prince of Ethirion, asks that Eowyn, lady of Rohan, should be his wife, 
and she grants it full willing. Therefore they shall be troth plighted before you all. And Faramir and Eowyn stood forth, and set hand in hand, and all there drank to them, and were glad. Thus, said Eomer, is the friendship of the Mark and of Gondor bound with a new bond, and the more do I rejoice. No niggard are you, Eomer, said Aragorn, to give thus to Gondor the fairest thing in your realm. Then Eowyn looked in the eyes of Aragorn, and she said, Wish me joy, my liege lord and healer. And he answered, I have wished thee joy ever since first I saw thee. It heals my heart to see thee now in bliss. When the feast was over, those who were to go took leave of King Eomer. Aragorn and his knights, and the people of Lorien and of Rivendell, made ready to ride. But Faramir and Imrahil remained at Edoras, and Arwen Evenstar remained also, and she said farewell to her brethren. None saw her last meeting with Elrond, her father, for they went up into the hills, and there spoke long together, and bitter was their parting that should endure beyond the ends of the world. At the last before the guests set out, Eomer and Eowyn came to Mary, and they said, Farewell now, Meriadoc of the Shire, and hold wine of the mark, ride to good fortune, and ride back soon to our welcome. And Aomer said, Kings of old would have laden you with gifts that a wain could not bear for your deeds upon the fields of Mundberg. And yet you will take naught, you say, but the arms that were given to you. This I suffer, for indeed I have no gift that is worthy, but my sister begs you to receive this small thing as a memorial of Dernhelm and of the horns of the mark at the coming of the morning. Then Eowyn gave to Mary an ancient horn, small but cunningly wrought, all of fair silver, with a baldric of green. And rites had engraven upon it swift horsemen riding in a line that wound about it from the tip to the mouth, and there were set runes of great virtue. This is an heirloom of our house, said Eowyn. It was made by the dwarves, and came from the horde of Scartha the worm. Eol the young brought it from the north. He that blows it at need shall set fear in the hearts of his enemies and joy in the hearts of his friends, and they shall hear him and come to him. Then Mary took the horn, for it could not be refused, and he kissed Eowyn's hand, and they embraced him, and so they parted for that time. Now the guests were ready, and they drank the stirrup cup, and with great praise and friendship they departed, and came at length to Helm's Deep, and there they rested two days. Then Legolas repaid his promise to Gimli, and went with him to the glittering caves, and when they returned he was silent, and would say only that Gimli alone could find fit words to speak of them. And never before has a dwarf claimed a victory over an elf in a contest of words, said he. Now therefore let us go to Fangorn and set the score right. From deep in Coombe they rode to Isengard, and saw how the Ents had busied themselves. All the stone circle had been thrown down and removed, and the land within was made into a garden filled with orchards and trees, and a stream ran through it. But in the midst of all there was a lake of clear water, and out of it the tower of Orthonk rose still, tall and impregnable, and its black rock was mirrored in the pool. 
For a while the travellers sat where once the old gates of Isengard had stood, and there were now two tall trees like sentinels at the beginnings of a green-bordered path that ran towards Orthanc, and they looked in wonder at the work that had been done, but no living thing could they see far or near. But presently they heard a voice calling, Hum, 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 and there came Treebeard, striding down the path to greet them with Quickbeam at his side. "'Welcome to the tree-garth of Orthanc,' he said. "'I knew that you were coming, but I was at work up the valley. "'There is much still to be done. "'But you have not been idle either. "'Away in the south and the east, I hear, "'and all that I hear is good, very good.' "'Then Treebeard praised all their deeds, "'of which he seemed to have full knowledge, "'and at last he stopped and looked long at Gandalf.' "'Well, come now,' he said. "'You have proved the mightiest, and all your labours have gone well. "'Where now would you be going, and why do you come here?' "'To see how your work goes, my friend,' said Gandalf, "'and to thank you for your aid in all that has been achieved.' "'Hum, well, that is fair enough,' said Treebeard. "'For to be sure, ants have played their part.' "'and not only in dealing with that, hmm, that accursed tree-slayer that dwelt here, "'for there was a great inrush of those brarum, those evil-eyed, black-handed, bow-legged, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, bloodthirsty, morimite, sincaonda, hum, well, since you are hasty folk and their full name is as long as years of torment, those vermin of orcs. And they came over the river and down from the north and all round the woods of Laurelindoran, which they could not get into, thanks to the great ones who are here. He bowed to the lord and lady of Lorien. And these same foul creatures were more than surprised to meet us out on the wold, for they had not heard of us before, though that might be said also of better folk. "'and not many will remember us, for not many escaped us alive, "'and the river had most of those. "'But it was well for you, for if they had not met us, "'then the king of the grassland would not have ridden far, "'and if he had, there would have been no home to return to.' "'We know it well,' said Aragorn, "'and never shall it be forgotten in Minas Tirith or in Edoras.' "'Never is too long a word even for me,' said Treebird. "'Not while your kingdoms last, you mean. "'But they will have to last long indeed to seem long to ends.' "'The new age begins,' said Gandalf. "'And in this age it may well prove that the kingdoms of men shall outlast you, Fangorn, my friend. "'But now, come tell me, what of the task that I set you?' How is Saruman? Is he not weary of Orthanc yet? For I do not suppose that he will think you have improved the view from his windows. Treebeard gave Gandalf a long look, a most cunning look, Merry thought. Ah, he said, I thought you would come to that. Weary of Orthanc? 
very weary at last, but not so weary of his tower as he was weary of my voice, whom I gave him some long tales, or at least what might be thought long in your speech. Then why did he stay to listen? Did you go into Orthanc? asked Gandalf. Whom, no, not into Orthanc, said Treebeard. But he came to his window and listened, because he could not get news in any other way, and though he hated the news, he was greedy to have it, and I saw that he heard it all. But I added a great many things to the news that it was good for him to think of. He grew very weary. He always was hasty. That was his ruin. I observe, my good Fangorn, said Gandalf, that with great care you say dwelt, was, grew. What about is? Is he dead? No, not dead, so far as I know, said Treebeard. But he is gone. Yes, he is gone seven days. I let him go. There was little left of him when he crawled out, and as for that worm creature of his, he was like a pale shadow. Now do not tell me, Gandalf, that I promised to keep him safe, for I know it. But things have changed since then, and I kept him until he was safe, safe from doing any more harm. You should know that above all I hate the caging of live things, and I will not keep even such creatures as these caged beyond great need. A snake without fangs may crawl where he will. You may be right, said Gandalf, but this snake had still one tooth left, I think. He had the poison of his voice, and I guess that he persuaded you, even you, tree-bird, knowing the soft spot in your heart. Well, he's gone, and there's no more to be said. But the Tower of Orthanc now goes back to the king to whom it belongs, though maybe he will not need it. That will be seen later, said Aragorn, but I will give to Ents all this valley to do with as they will, as long as they keep a watch upon Orthanc and see that none enter it without my leave. It is locked, said Treebeard. I made Saruman lock it and give me the keys. Quickbeam has them. Quickbeam bowed like a tree bending in the wind and handed to Aragorn two great black keys of intricate shape, joined by a ring of steel. Now I thank you once more, said Aragorn, and I bid you farewell. May your forest grow again in peace. When this valley is filled, there is room and to spare west of the mountains where once you walked long ago. Treebeard's face became sad. "'Forests may grow,' he said. "'Woods may spread, but not ents. "'There are no entings. "'Yet maybe there is now more hope in your search,' said Aragorn. "'Lands will lie open to you eastward that have long been closed.' "'But Treebeard shook his head and said, "'It is far to go, and there are too many men there in these days.' "'But I'm forgetting my manners. "'Will you stay here and rest a while? "'And maybe there are some that would be pleased to pass through Fangorn Forest "'and so shorten their road home?' "'He looked at Celeborn and Galadriel. "'But all save Legolas 
said that they must now take their leave and depart either south or west. "'Come, Gimli,' said Legolas. "'Now by Fangorn's leave I will visit the deep places of the Entwood, and see such trees as are nowhere else to be found in Middle-earth. You shall come with me and keep your word, and thus we will journey on together to our own lands in Mirkwood and beyond.' To this Gimli agreed, though with no great delight, it seemed. "'Here, then, at last, comes the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring,' said Aragorn. "'Yet I hope that ere long you will return to my land with the help that you promised.' "'We will come, if our lords allow it,' said Gimli. "'Well, farewell, my hobbits. You should come safe to your homes now, and I shall not be kept awake for fear of your peril. We will send word when we may, and some of us may yet meet at times.' "'but I fear that we shall not all be gathered together ever again.' "'Then Treebeard said farewell to each of them in turn, "'and he bowed three times slowly and with great reverence "'to Caliborn and Galadriel. "'It is long, long since we met by stock or by stone. "'Ah, Vanema, Vanema, Leon Nostari,' he said. It is said that we should meet only thus at the ending. For the world is changing. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth, and I smell it in the air. I do not think we shall meet again. And Celeborn said, I do not know, eldest. But Galadriel said, Not in Middle-earth, nor until the lands that lie under the wave are lifted up again. Then in the willow meads of Tassarnan, we may meet in the spring. Farewell. Last of all, Merry and Pippin said good-bye to the old Ent, and he grew gayer as he looked at them. Well, my merry folk, he said, will you drink another draught with me before you go? Indeed we will, they said, and he took them aside into the shade of one of the trees, and there they saw that a great stone jar had been set, and Treebeard filled three bowls, and they drank and they saw his strange eyes looking at them over the rim of his bowl. "'Take care, take care,' he said, "'for you have already grown since I saw you last.' And they laughed and drained their bowls. "'Well, good-bye,' he said, "'and don't forget that if you hear any news of the Entwives in your land, "'you will send word to me.' Then he waved his great hands to all the company, and went off into the trees. The travellers now rode with more speed, and they made their way towards the Gap of Rohan. And Aragorn took leave of them at last, close to that very place where Pippin had looked into the stone of Orthanc. The hobbits were grieved at this parting, for Aragorn had never failed them, and he had been their guide through many perils. "'I wish we could have a stone that we could see all our friends in,' said Pippin, "'and that we could speak to them from far away.' "'Only one now remains that you could use,' answered Aragorn. "'For you would not wish to see what the stone of Minas Tirith would show you. "'But the Palantir of Orthanc the king will keep, "'to see what is passing in his realm and what his servants are doing. "'For do not forget, Peregrine Took, that you are a knight of Gondor, and I do not release you from your service. You are going now on leave, but I may recall you. 
And remember, dear friends of the Shire, that my realm lies also in the north, and I shall come there one day. Then Aragorn took leave of Celeborn and Galadriel, and the lady said to him, Elfstone, through darkness you have come to your hope, and have now all your desire. Use well the days. But Celeborn said, Kinsman, farewell. May your doom be other than mine, and your treasure remain with you to the end. With that they parted, and it was then the time of sunset. And when, after a while, they turned and looked back, they saw the king of the west sitting upon his horse with his knights about him, and the falling sun shone upon them, and made all their harness to gleam like red gold, and the white mantle of Aragorn was turned to a flame. Then Aragorn took the green stone and held it up, and there came a green fire from his hand. Soon the dwindling company, following the Isen, turned west and rolled through the gap into the wastelands beyond, and then they turned northwards and passed over the borders of Dunland. The Dunlandings fled and hid themselves, for they were afraid of elvish folk, though few indeed ever came to their country. But the travellers did not heed them, for they were still a great company, and were well provided with all that they needed, and they went on their way at their leisure, setting up their tents when they would. On the sixth day since their parting from the king, they journeyed through a wood, climbing down from the hills at the feet of the misty mountains that now marched on their right hand. As they came out again into the open country at sundown, they overtook an old man leaning on a staff, and he was clothed in rags of grey or dirty white, and at his heels went another beggar, slouching and whining. "'Well, Saruman,' said Gandalf, "'where are you going?' "'What is that to you?' he answered. "'Will you still order my goings, and are you not content with my ruin?' "'You know the answers,' said Gandalf. "'No and no. "'But in any case the time of my labours now draws to an end. "'The king has taken on the burden. "'If you had waited at Orthonk, you would have seen him, "'and he would have shown you wisdom and mercy.' "'Then all the more reason to have left sooner.' said Saruman, for I desire neither of him. Indeed, if you wish for an answer to your first question, I am seeking a way out of his realm. Then once more you are going the wrong way, said Gandalf, and I see no hope in your journey. But will you scorn our help, for we offer it to you. To me, said Saruman, nay, pray do not smile at me. I prefer your frowns, and as for the lady here, I don't trust her. She always hated me, and schemed for your part. I don't doubt that she has brought you this way to have the pleasure of gloating over my poverty. Had I been warned of your pursuit, I would have denied you the pleasure. Saruman, said Galadriel, we have other errands, and other cares that seem to us more urgent than hunting for you. Say rather that you are overtaken by good fortune." "'for now you have a last chance.' "'If it be truly the last, I'm glad,' said Saruman, "'for I shall be spared the trouble of refusing it again. "'All my hopes are ruined, "'but I would not share yours, if you have any.' "'For a moment his eyes kindled. "'Go,' he said. "'I did not spend long study on these matters for naught. 
You've doomed yourselves, and you know it. And it will afford me some comfort as I wander to think that you pulled down your own house when you destroyed mine. And now what ship will bear you back across so wide a sea? He mocked. It will be a grey ship and full of ghosts. He laughed, but his voice was cracked and hideous. Get up, you idiot, he shouted to the other beggar who had sat down on the ground, and he struck him with his staff. Turn about! If these fine folk are going our way, then we will take another. Get on, or I'll give you no crust for your supper. The beggar turned and slouched past, whimpering. Poor old dreamer, poor old dreamer. "'Always beaten and cursed. "'How I hate him. "'I wish I could leave him.' "'Then leave him,' said Gandalf. "'But Wormtongue only shot a glance of his bleared eyes "'full of terror at Gandalf, "'and then shuffled quickly past behind Saruman. "'As the wretched pair passed by the company, "'they came to the hobbits, "'and Saruman stopped and stared at them, "'but they looked at him with pity. "'So you've come to gloat. Too have you, my urchins,' he said. "'You don't care what a beggar lacks, do you? "'For you have all you want, food and fine clothes "'and the best weed for your pipes. "'Oh, yes, I know. I know what it comes from. "'You wouldn't give a pipeful to a beggar, would you?' "'I would, if I had any,' said Frodo. "'You can have what I've got left,' said Barry, "'if you'll wait a moment.' "'He got down and searched in the back of his saddle.' Then he handed to Saruman a leather pouch. "'Take what there is,' he said. "'You're welcome to it. "'It came from the flotsam of Isengard.' "'Mine, mine, yes, and dearly bought,' cried Saruman, clutching at the pouch. "'This is only a repayment in token, for you took more, I'll be bound. "'Still a beggar must be grateful, if a thief returns him even a morsel of his own. "'Well, it will serve you right when you come home.' "'if you find things less good in the south farthing than you would like. "'Long may your land be short of leaf.' "'Thank you,' said Mary. "'In that case, I'll have my pouch back, "'which is not yours and has journeyed far with me. "'Wrap the weed in a rag of your own.' "'One thief deserves another,' said Salomon, "'and turned his back on Mary and kicked Wormtongue "'and went away towards the wood. "'Well, I like that.' said Pippin. Thief indeed! What about our claim for waylaying, wounding, and orc dragging us through Rohan? Ah, uh, said Sam. And bought, he said. How, I wonder. And I didn't like the sound of what he said about the south farthing. It's time we got back. I'm sure it is, said Frodo. But we can't go any quicker if we're to see Bilbo. I'm going to Rivendell first, whatever happens. Yes, I think you'd better do that said Gandalf. But alas for Saruman, I fear nothing more can be made of him. He's withered altogether. All the same, I'm not sure that Treebeard is right. I fancy he could do some mischief still in a small, mean way. Next day they went on into the northern Dunland, where no men now dwelt, though it was a green and pleasant country. September came in with golden days and silver nights, and they rode at ease until they reached the Swanfleet River, and found the old ford, east of the falls where it went down suddenly into the lowlands. 
Far to the west in a haze lay the meres and ayats through which it wound its way to the grey flood. There countless swans housed in a land of reeds. So they passed into a region, and at last a fair morning dawned, shimmering above gleaming mists. And looking from their camp on a low hill, the travellers saw, away in the east, the sun catching three peaks that thrust up into the sky through floating clouds. Carathras, Celebdil, and Fanuithol. They were near to the gates of Moria. Here now, for seven days, they tarried, for the time was at hand for another parting which they were loath to make. Soon Celeborn and Galadriel and their folk would turn eastward, and so pass by the Redhorn Gate and down the Dimril Stair to the Silverlode and to their own country. They had journeyed thus far by the Westways, for they had much to speak of with Elrond and with Gandalf, and here they lingered still in converse with their friends. Often, long after the hobbits were wrapped in sleep, they would sit together under the stars, recalling the ages that were gone and all their joys and labours in the world, or holding counsel concerning the days to come. If any wanderer had chanced to pass, little would he have seen or heard, and it would have seemed to him only that he saw grey figures carved in stone memorials of forgotten things now lost in unpeopled lands. For they didn't move or speak with mouth, looking from mind to mind, and only their shining eyes stirred and kindled as their thoughts went to and fro. But at length all was said, and they parted again for a while, until it was time for the three rings to pass away. Quickly fading into the stones and the shadows, the grey-cloaked people of Lorien rode towards the mountains, and those who were going to Rivendell sat on the hill and watched, until there came out of the gathering mist a flash, and then they saw no more. Frodo knew that Galadriel had held aloft her ring in token of farewell. Sam turned away and sighed, "'I wish I was going back to Lorien.' At last, one evening, they came over the high moors, suddenly as to travellers it always seemed, to the brink of the deep valley of Rivendell, and saw, far below, the lamp shining in Elrond's house. And they went down, and crossed the bridge, and came to the doors, and all the house was filled with light and song for joy at Elrond's homecoming. First of all, before they had eaten or washed or even shed their cloaks, the hobbits went in search of Bilbo. They found him all alone in his little room. It was littered with papers and pens and pencils, but Bilbo was sitting in a chair before a small, bright fire. He looked very old, but peaceful and sleepy. He opened his eyes and looked up as they came in. Hello, hello, he said. So you've come back. And tomorrow's my birthday, too. How clever of you. Do you know... I shall be one hundred and twenty-nine, and in one year more, if I'm spared, I shall equal the old Took. I should like to beat him, but we shall see. After the celebration of Bilbo's birthday, the four hobbits stayed in Rivendell for some days, and they sat much with their old friend, who spent most of his time now in his room, except at meals. For these he was still very punctual as a rule, and he seldom failed to wake up in time for them. 
Sitting round the fire, they told him in turn all that they could remember of their journeys and adventures. At first he pretended to take some notes, but he often fell asleep, and when he woke he would say, "'How splendid! How wonderful! But where were we?' Then they went on with the story from the point where he had begun to nod. The only part that seemed really to rouse him and hold his attention was the account of the crowning and marriage of Aragorn. "'I was invited to the wedding, of course,' he said, "'and I waited for it long enough, but somehow, when it came to it, "'I found I had so much to do here, and packing is such a bother.' When nearly a fortnight had passed, Frodo looked out of his window and saw that there had been a frost in the night, and the cobwebs were like white nets. Then suddenly he knew that he must go and say good-bye to Bilbo. The weather was still calm and fair after one of the most lovely summers that people could remember. But October had come, and it must break soon and begin to rain and blow again. And there was still a very long way to go. Yet it was not really the thought of the weather that stirred him. He had a feeling that it was time he went back to the Shire. Sam shared it. Only the night before he had said, "'Well, Mr. Frodo, we've been far and seen a deal, and yet I don't think we've found a better place than this. There's something of everything here, if you understand me. The Shire and the Golden Wood and Gonder and King's Houses and Inns and Meadows and Mountains all mixed. And yet, somehow, I feel we ought to be going soon. I'm worried about my gaffer, to tell you the truth. Yes, something of everything, Sam, except the sea, Frodo had answered, and he'd repeated it now to himself. Except the sea. That day Frodo spoke to Elrond, and it was agreed that they should leave the next morning. To their delight, Gandalf said, "'I think I shall come too, at least as far as Bree. I want to see Butterbur.' In the evening they went to say good-bye to Bilbo. "'Well, if you must go, you must,' he said. "'I am sorry. I shall miss you.' "'It's nice just to know that you're about the place, "'but I'm getting very sleepy.' "'Then he gave Frodo his mithril coat and sting, "'forgetting that he had already done so. "'And he gave him also three books of law "'that he had made at various times, "'written in his spidery hand, "'and labelled on their red backs, "'Translations from the Elvish by B.B. "'To Sam he gave a little bag of gold.' "'Almost the last drop of the smug vintage,' he said. "'May come in useful, if you think of getting married, Sam.' Sam blushed. "'I've nothing much to give to you, young fellows,' he said to Merry and Pippin, "'except good advice.' And when he had given them a fair sample of this, he added a last item in shire fashion. "'Don't let your heads get too big for your hats. But if you don't finish growing up soon, you're going to find hats and clothes expensive.' "'But if you want to beat the old toque,' said Pippin, "'I don't see why we shouldn't try and beat the bull-roarer.' Bilbo laughed, and he produced out of a pocket two beautiful pipes with pearl mouthpieces and bound with fine-wrought silver. "'Think of me when you smoke them,' he said. "'The elves made them for me, but I don't smoke now.' And then suddenly he nodded and went to sleep for a little.' 
and when he woke up again he said, Now where were we? Yes, of course, giving presents, which reminds me, what's become of my ring, Frodo, that you took away? I've lost it, Bilbo, dear, said Frodo. I got rid of it, you know. What a pity, said Bilbo. I should have liked to see it again, but no, how silly of me. That's what you went for, wasn't it? To get rid of it. But it's all so confusing, for such a lot of other things seem to have got mixed up with it. Aragorn's affairs, and the White Council, and Gondor, and the Horsemen, and Southrons, and Oliphants. Did you really see one, Sam? And caves, and towers, and golden trees, and goodness knows what besides. I evidently came back by much too straight a road from my trip. I think Gandalf might have shown me round a bit. But then the auction would have been over before I got back, and I should have had even more trouble than I did. Anyway, it's too late now, and really I think it's much more comfortable to sit here and hear about it all. The fire's very cosy here, and the food's very good, and there are elves when you want them. What more could one want? The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin, but I at last with weary feet will turn towards the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. And as Bilbo murmured the last words, his head dropped on his chest, and he slept soundly. The evening deepened in the room, and the firelight burned brighter, and they looked at Bilbo as he slept and saw that his face was smiling. For some time they sat in silence, and then Sam, looking round at the room and the shadows flickering on the walls, said softly, "'I don't think, Mr. Frodo, that he's done much writing while we've been away.' He won't ever write our story now. At that Bilbo opened an eye, almost as if he had heard. Then he roused himself. You see, I'm getting so sleepy, he said, and when I have time to write, I only really like writing poetry. I wonder, Frodo, my dear fellow, if you would very much mind tidying things up a bit before you go, collect all my notes and papers, and my diary too, and take them with you, if you will. You see, I haven't much time for the selection and the arrangement and all that. Get Sam to help, and when you've knocked things into shape, come back and I'll run over it. I won't be too critical. Of course I'll do it, said Frodo, and of course I'll come back soon. It won't be dangerous any more. There is a real king now, and he'll soon put the roads in order. "'Thank you, my dear fellow,' said Bilbo. "'That really is a very great relief to my mind.' And with that he fell fast asleep again. The next day Gandalf and the hobbits took leave of Bilbo in his room, for it was cold out of doors, and then they said farewell to Elrond and all his household. As Frodo stood upon the threshold, Elrond wished him a fair journey and blessed him, and he said, I think, Frodo, that maybe you will not need to come back unless you come very soon. For about this time of the year, 
when the leaves are gold before they fall, look for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire. I shall be with him. These words no one else heard, and Frodo kept them to himself. Chapter 7 Homeward Bound At last the hobbits had their faces turned towards home. They were eager now to see the Shire again, but at first they rode only slowly, for Frodo had been ill at ease. When they came to the ford of Bruinen, he had halted, and seemed loath to ride into the stream. And they noted that for a while his eyes appeared not to see them or things about him. All that day he was silent. It was the 6th of October. "'Are you in pain, Frodo?' said Gandalf quietly, as he rode by Frodo's side. "'Well, yes, I am,' said Frodo. "'It's my shoulder. The wound aches, and the memory of darkness is heavy on me. It was a year ago to-day.' "'Alas! There are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured,' said Gandalf. "'I fear it may be so with mine,' said Frodo. "'There is no real going back.' Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden. Where shall I find rest? Gandalf did not answer. By the end of the next day, the pain and unease had passed, and Frodo was merry again, as merry as if he did not remember the blackness of the day before. After that the journey went well, and the days went quickly by, for they rode at leisure, and often they lingered in the fair woodlands, where the leaves were red and yellow in the autumn sun. At length they came to Weathertop, and it was then drawing towards evening, and the shadow of the hill lay dark on the road. Then Frodo begged them to hasten, and he would not look towards the hill, but rode through its shadow with head bowed and cloak drawn close about him. That night the weather changed, and the wind came from the west laden with rain, and it blew loud and chill, and the yellow leaves whirled like birds in the air. When they came to the Chetwood, already the boughs were almost bare, and a great curtain of rain veiled Bree Hill from their sight. So it was that near the end of a wild and wet evening, in the last days of October, the five travellers rode up the climbing road and came to the south gate of Bree. It was locked fast, and the rain blew in their faces, and in the darkening sky low clouds went hurrying by, and their hearts sank a little, for they had expected more welcome. When they had called many times, at last the gatekeeper came out, and they saw that he carried a great cudgel. He looked at them with fear and suspicion, but when he saw that Gandalf was there, and that his companions were hobbits, in spite of their strange gear, then he brightened and wished them welcome. "'Come in,' he said, unlocking the gate. "'We won't stay for news out here in the cold and the wet, a ruffianly evening. But old Barley will no doubt give you a welcome at the pony, and there you'll hear all there is to hear.' "'And there you'll hear later all that we say, and more,' laughed Gandalf. "'How's Harry?' the gatekeeper scowled. "'Gone,' he said. "'But you'd best ask Barleyman. "'Good evening.' "'Good evening to you,' they said, and passed through. 
and then they noticed that behind the hedge at the roadside a long low hut had been built, and a number of men had come out and were staring at them over the fence. When they came to Bill Fernie's house, they saw that the hedge there was tattered and unkempt, and the windows were all boarded up. "'Do you think you killed him with that apple, Sam?' said Pippin. "'I'm not so hopeful, Mr. Pippin,' said Sam. "'But I'd like to know what became of that poor pony. "'He's been on my mind many a time, and the wolves howling and all.' At last they came to the prancing pony, and that at least looked outwardly unchanged, and there were lights behind the red curtains in the lower windows. They rang the bell, and Nob came to the door, and opened it a crack and peeped through, and when he saw them standing under the lamp he gave a cry of surprise. "'Mr. Butterbur! Master!' he shouted. "'They've come back!' "'Oh, have they? I'll learn them!' came Butterbur's voice, and out he came with a rush, and he had a club in his hand. But when he saw who they were, he stopped short, and the black scowl on his face changed to wonder and delight. "'Nob, you woolly-pated ninny!' he cried. "'Can't you give old friends their names? You shouldn't go scaring me like that, with times as they are. Well, well, and where have you come from? I never expected to see any of you folk again, and that's a fact.' "'going off into the wild with that strider "'and all those black men about. "'But I'm right glad to see you, "'and none more than Gandalf. "'Come in, come in. "'The same rooms as before. "'They're free. "'Indeed, most rooms are empty these days, "'as I'll not hide from you. "'For you'll find it out soon enough. "'And I'll see what can be done about supper, "'as soon as may be. "'But I'm short-handed at present. "'Hey, Nob, you slow coach, tell Bob. "'Ah, but there I'm forgetting. "'Bob's gone.' "'Goes home to his folk at nightfall now. "'Well, take the guest's ponies to the stables, Nob, "'and you'll be taking your horse to his stable yourself, Gandalf, I don't doubt. "'A fine beast, as I said, when I first set eyes on him. "'Well, come in, make yourselves at home.' "'Mr. Butterbur had, at any rate, not changed his manner of talking, "'and still seemed to live in his old, breathless bustle. "'And yet there was hardly anybody about, and all was quiet.' From the common room there came a low murmur of no more than two or three voices. And seen closer in the light of two candles that he lit and carried before them, the landlord's face looked rather wrinkled and careworn. He led them down the passage to the parlour that they had used on that strange night more than a year ago, and they followed him, a little disquieted, for it seemed plain to them that old Barleyman was putting a brave face on some trouble. Things were not what they had been. But they said nothing, and waited. As they expected, Mr. Butterbur came to the parlour after supper to see if all had been to their liking. As indeed it had. No change for the worse had yet come upon the beer or the victuals at the pony, at any rate. "'Now I won't make so bold as to suggest you should come to the common room to-night,' said Butterbur. "'You'll be tired and there isn't many folk there this evening, anyway. But if you could spare me half an hour before you go to your beds, I would dearly like to have some talk with you, quiet-like, by ourselves. That is just what we should like, too, said Gandalf. We are not tired. We've been taking things easy. We were wet, cold, and hungry, but all that you've cured. Come, sit down, and if you have any pipe-weed, we'll bless you. Well, 
If you'd called for anything else, I'd have been happier, said Butterbur. That's just a thing that we're short of, seeing how we've only got what we grow ourselves, and that's not enough. There's none to be had from the Shire these days, but I'll do what I can. When he came back, he brought them enough to last them for a day or two, a wad of uncut leaf. South Lynch, he said, and the best we have, but not the match of South Farthing, as I've always said, though I'm all for Bree in most matters, begging your pardon. They put him in a large chair by the wood fire, and Gandalf sat on the other side of the hearth, and the hobbits in low chairs between them, and then they talked for many times half an hour, and exchanged all such views as Mr. Butterbur wished to hear or give. Most of the things which they had to tell were a mere wonder and bewilderment to their host, and far beyond his vision, and they brought forth few comments other than, "'You don't say,' often repeated in defiance of the evidence of Mr. Butterbur's own ears. "'You don't say, Mr. Baggins, or is it Mr. Underhill? I'm getting so mixed up.' "'You don't say, Master Gandalf. Well, I never.' "'Who'd have thought it in our times?' "'But he did say much on his own account. "'Things were far from well,' he would say. "'Business was not even fair. "'It was downright bad. "'No one comes nigh Bree now from outside,' he said. "'And the inside folks, "'they stay at home mostly and keep their doors barred. "'It all comes of those newcomers and gangrels "'that began coming up the Greenway last year, "'as you may remember. "'But more came later.' Some were just poor bodies, running away from trouble, but most were bad men, full of thievery and mischief. And there was trouble right here in Bree, bad trouble. Why, we had a real set too, and there were some folk killed, killed dead, if you'll believe me. I will indeed, said Gandalf. How many? Three and two, said Butterbur, referring to the big folk and the little. There was poor Matt Heathertoes, and Rowley Appledore, and little Tom Pickthorn from over the hill, and Willie Banks from up away, and one of the underhills from Staddle, all good fellows, and they're missed. And Harry Goatleaf that used to be on the West Gate, and that Bill Fernie, they came in on the stranger side, and they've gone off with them, and it's my belief they let them in. On the night of the fight, I mean. And that was after we showed them the gates and pushed them out. "'Before the year's end, that was, "'and the fight was early in the new year, "'after the heavy snow we had. "'And now they've gone for robbers and live outside, "'hiding in the woods beyond Archit "'and out in the wilds north away. "'It's like a bit of the bad old times tales tell of, I say. "'It isn't safe on the road, and nobody goes far, "'and folk lock up early. "'We have to keep watchers all round the fence "'and put a lot of men on the gates at nights.' Well, no one troubled us, said Pippin, and we came along slowly and kept no watch. We thought we'd left all trouble behind us. Ah, uh, that you haven't, master, more's the pity, said Butterbur. But it's no wonder they left you alone. They wouldn't go for armed folk, with swords and helmets and shields and all. Make them think twice that would. And I must say, it put me aback a bit when I saw you. Then the hobbits suddenly realised that people had looked at them with amazement, not out of surprise at their return so much, as in wonder at their gear. 
they themselves had become so used to warfare and riding in well-arrayed companies that they had quite forgotten that the bright mail peeping from under their cloaks, and the helms of Gondor and the Mark, and the fair devices on their shields would seem outlandish in their own country. And Gandalf, too, was now riding on his tall grey horse, all clad in white with a great mantle of blue and silver over all, and the long sword glamdering at his side. Gandalf laughed. "'Well, well,' he said. "'If they are afraid of just five of us, "'then we have met worse enemies on our travels. "'But at any rate, they will give you peace at night while we stay.' "'How long will that be?' said Butterbur. "'I'll not deny we should be glad to have you about for a bit. "'You see, we're not used to such troubles, "'and the rangers have all gone away, folk tell me. "'I don't think we've rightly understood till now what they did for us. "'For there's been worse than robbers about. "'Wolves were howling round the fences last winter, "'and there's dark shapes in the woods, "'dreadful things that it makes the blood run cold to think of. "'It's been very disturbing, if you understand me.' "'I expect it has,' said Gandalf. "'Nearly all lands have been disturbed these days, very disturbed. "'But cheer up, Barleyman. "'You've been on the edge of very great troubles, "'and I'm only glad to hear that you have not been deeper in. "'But better times are coming. "'Maybe better than any you remember. "'The rangers have returned. "'We came back with them. "'And there is a king again, Barleyman. "'He will soon be turning his mind this way.' Then the greenway will be opened again, and his messengers will come north, and there will be comings and goings, and the evil things will be driven out of the wastelands. Indeed, the waste in time will be waste no longer, and there will be people and fields where once there was wilderness. Mr. Butterbur shook his head. If there's a few decent, respectable folk on the roads, that won't do no harm, he said. But we don't want no more rabble and ruffians. "'and we don't want no outsiders at Bree, nor near Bree at all. "'We want to be let alone. "'I don't want a whole crowd of strangers camping here "'and settling there and tearing up the wild country.' "'You will be let alone, Barleyman,' said Gandalf. "'There is room enough for realms between Eisen and Greyflood, "'or along the shorelands south of Brandywine, "'without anyone living within many days' ride of Bree.' "'and many folk used to dwell away north, "'a hundred miles or more from here, "'at the far end of the Greenway, "'on the North Downs, or by Lake Evendim. "'Up away by Dead Men's Dyke?' said Butterbur, "'looking even more dubious. "'That's haunted land, they say. "'None but a robber would go there.' "'The rangers go there,' said Gandalf. "'Dead Men's Dyke, you say. "'So it has been called for long years.' "'But its right name, Parliament, is Fornost Arain, Norbury of the Kings. "'And the King will come there again one day, "'and then you'll have some fair folk riding through.' "'Well, that sounds more hopeful, I'll allow,' said Butterbur. "'And it will be good for business, no doubt, "'so long as he lets Bree alone.' "'He will,' said Gandalf. "'He knows it and loves it.' "'Does he now?' said Butterbur, looking puzzled. "'though I'm sure I don't know why he should, "'sitting in his big chair up in his great castle, hundreds of miles away, "'and drinking wine out of a golden cup, I shouldn't wonder. "'What's the pony to him, or mugs of beer? "'Not but what my beer's good, Gandalf. "'It's been uncommon good, 
since you came in the autumn of last year and put a good word on it, and that's been a comfort in trouble, I will say. Ah, said Sam, but he says your beer is always good. He says? Of course he does. He's Strider, the chief of the rangers. Haven't you got that into your head yet? It went in at last, and Butterbur's face was a study in wonder. The eyes in his broad face grew round, and his mouth opened wide, and he gasped. Strider! he exclaimed when he got back his breath. Him with a crown and all in a golden cup? Well, what are we coming to? Better times, for Bree at any rate, said Gandalf. I hope so, I'm sure, said Butterbur. Well, this has been the nicest chat I've had in a month of Mondays, and I'll not deny that I'll sleep easier tonight and with a lighter heart. You've given me a powerful lot to think over, but I'll put that off until tomorrow. I'm for bed, and I've no doubt you'll be glad of your beds too. Hey, Nob, he called, going to the door. Nob, you slow coach. Now, he said to himself, slapping his forehead, now what does that remind me of? "'Not another letter you've forgotten, I hope, Mr. Butterbur,' said Mary. "'Now, now, Mr. Brandybuck, don't go reminding me of that. "'But there, you've broken my thought. "'Now where was I? "'Nob Stables. "'Ah, that was it. "'I've something that belongs to you. "'If you recollect Bill Fernie and the horse-thieving, "'his pony as you bought, well, it's here. "'Come back all of itself, it did. "'But where it had been to?' "'You know better than me. "'It was as shaggy as an old dog "'and as lean as a clothes-rail, "'but it was alive. "'Nob's looking after it.' "'What? "'My bill?' cried Sam. "'Well, I was born lucky, "'whatever my gaffer may say. "'There's another wish come true. "'Where is he?' "'Sam would not go to bed "'until he had visited Bill in his stable. "'The travellers stayed in Bree all the next day. "'and Mr. Butterbur could not complain of his business next evening at any rate. "'Curiosity overcame all fears, and his house was crowded. "'For a while, out of politeness, the hobbits visited the common room in the evening "'and answered a good many questions. "'Bree memories being retentive, Frodo was asked many times if he had written his book. "'Not yet,' he answered. "'I'm going home now to put my notes in order.' He promised to deal with the amazing events at Brie, and so give a bit of interest to a book that appeared likely to treat mostly of the remote and less important affairs away south. Then one of the younger folk called for a song. But at that a hush fell, and he was frowned down, and the call was not repeated. Evidently there was no wish for any uncanny events in the common room again. No trouble by day, nor any sound by night, "'disturbed the peace of Brie while the travellers remained there. "'But the next morning they got up early, "'for as the weather was still rainy, "'they wished to reach the Shire before night, "'and it was a long ride. "'The Brie folk were all out to see them off, "'and were in merrier mood than they had been for a year. "'And those who had not seen the strangers in all their gear before "'gaped with wonder at them. "'At Gandalf with his white beard, "'and the light that seemed to gleam from him, as if his blue mantle was only a cloud over sunshine, and at the four hobbits like riders upon errantry out of almost forgotten tales. Even those who had laughed at all the talk about the king began to think there might be some truth in it. 
Well, good luck on your road, and good luck to your homecoming, said Mr. Butterbur. I should have warned you before that all's not well in the Shire, neither, if what we hear is true. Funny goings on, they say, but one thing drives out another, and I was full of my own troubles. But if I may be so bold, you've come back changed from your travels, and you look now like folk as can deal with troubles out of hand. I don't doubt you'll soon set all to rights. Good luck to you, and the oftener you come back, the better I'll be pleased. They wished him farewell and rode away, and passed through the west gate and on towards the shire. Bill the pony was with them, and as before, he had a good deal of baggage, but he trotted along beside Sam and seemed well content. I wonder what old Barleyman was hinting at, said Frodo. I can guess some of it, said Sam gloomily. What I saw in the mirror, trees cut down and all, and my old gaffer turned out of the row, I ought to have hurried back quicker. And something's wrong with the south farthing, evidently, said Mary. There's a general shortage of pipeweed. Whatever it is, said Pippin, Lotho will be at the bottom of it. You can be sure of that. Deep in, but not at the bottom, said Gandalf. You've forgotten Saruman. He began to take an interest in the Shah before Mordor did. Well, we've got you with us, said Mary, so things will soon be cleared up. I'm with you at present, said Gandalf, but soon I shall not be. I'm not coming to the Shah. You must settle its affairs yourselves. That is what you've been trained for. Do you not yet understand? My time's over. It's no longer my task to set things to rights, nor to help folk to do so. And as for you, my dear friends, you will need no help. You're grown up now, grown indeed very high, among the great you are, and I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. But if you would know, I'm turning aside soon. I'm going to have a long talk with Bombadil, such a talk as I've not had in all my time. He's a moss-gatherer, and I've been a stone doomed to rolling. But my rolling days are ending, and now we shall have much to say to one another. In a little while they came to the point on the east road where they had taken leave of Bombadil, and they hoped and half expected to see him standing there to greet them as they went by. But there was no sign of him, and there was a grey mist on the barrow down southwards, and a deep veil over the old forest far away. They halted, and Frodo looked south wistfully. "'I should dearly like to see the old fellow again,' he said. "'I wonder how he's getting on.' "'As well as ever, you may be sure,' said Gandalf, "'quite untroubled, and, I should guess, "'not much interested in anything that we've done or seen, "'unless perhaps in our visits to the Ents. "'There may be a time later.' for you to go and see him. But if I were you, I should press on now for home, or you will not come to the Brandywine Bridge before the gates are locked. But there aren't any gates, said Mary. Not on the road. You know that quite well. There's the Buckland Gate, of course, but they'll let me through that at any time. There weren't any gates, you mean, said Gandalf. I think you'll find some now. "'and you might have more trouble even at the Buckland Gate than you think. "'But you'll manage all right. "'Good-bye, dear friends.'
Not for the last time. Not yet. Goodbye. He turned Shadowfax off the road, and the great horse leapt the green dyke that here ran beside it, and then at a cry from Gandalf he was gone, racing towards the Barrow Downs like a wind from the north. Well, here we are, just the four of us that started out together, said Mary. We've left all the rest behind, one after another. It seems almost like a dream that has slowly faded. Not to me said Frodo. To me it feels more like falling asleep again. Chapter 8 The Scouring of the Shah It was after nightfall when, wet and tired, the travellers came at last to the Brandywine, and they found the way barred. At either end of the bridge there was a great spiked gate and on the further side of the river they could see that some new houses had been built, two-storied with narrow straight-sided windows, bare and dimly lit, all very gloomy and unshire-like. They hammered on the outer gate and called, but there was at first no answer, and then, to their surprise, someone blew a horn, and the lights in the windows went out. A voice shouted in the dark, "'Who's that be off?' "'You can't come in. Can't you read the notice? No admittance between sundown and sunrise?' "'Of course we can't read the notice in the dark,' Sam shouted back. "'And if hobbits of the Shire are to be kept out in the wet on a night like this, I'll tear down your notice when I find it.' At that a window slammed, and a crowd of hobbits with lanterns poured out of the house on the left. They opened the further gate, and some came over the bridge.' When they saw the travellers, they seemed frightened. "'Come along,' said Mary, recognising one of the hobbits. "'If you don't know me, Hob Hayward, you ought to. I'm Mary Brandybuck, and I should like to know what all this is about, and what a bucklander like you is doing here. You used to be on the haygate.' "'Bless me! It's Master Mary, to be sure, and all dressed up for fighting,' said old Hob. "'Why, they said you were dead.' "'Lost in the old forest, by all accounts. "'I'm pleased to see you alive after all.' "'Then stop gaping at me through the bars and open the gate,' said Mary. "'I'm sorry, Master Mary, but we have orders.' "'Whose orders?' "'The chief's up at Bag End.' "'Chief? Chief? Do you mean Mr. Lotho?' said Frodo. "'I suppose so, Mr. Baggins, but we have to say just the chief nowadays.' "'Do you indeed?' said Frodo. "'Well, I'm glad he's dropped the Baggins at any rate. "'But it's evidently high time that the family dealt with him "'and put him in his place.' "'A hush fell on the hobbits beyond the gate. "'It won't do no good talking that way,' said one. "'He'll get to hear of it, and if you make so much noise, "'you'll wake the chief's big man.' "'We shall wake him up in a way that will surprise him,' said Mary. "'If you mean that your precious chief has been hiring ruffians out of the wild, "'then we've not come back too soon.' "'He sprang from his pony, and seeing the notice in the light of the lanterns, "'he tore it down and threw it over the gate. "'The hobbits backed away and made no move to open it. "'Come on, Pippin,' said Mary. Two is enough.' "'Mary and Pippin climbed the gate, and the hobbits fled. "'Another horn sounded, 
Out of the bigger house on the right, a large, heavy figure appeared against the light in the doorway. "'What's all this?' he snarled as he came forward. "'Gate-breaking? You clear out or I'll break your filthy little necks!' Then he stopped, for he had caught the gleam of swords. "'Bill Fernie,' said Mary, "'if you don't open that gate in ten seconds you'll regret it. I shall set steel to you if you don't obey, and when you've opened the gates you'll go through them and never return. You're a ruffian and a highway robber.' Bill Fernie flinched and shuffled to the gate and unlocked it. "'Give me the key,' said Mary. But the ruffian flung it at his head and then darted out into the darkness. As he passed the ponies, one of them let fly with his heels and just caught him as he ran. He went off with a yelp into the night and was never heard of again. "'Neat work, Bill,' said Sam, meaning the pony. "'So much for your big man,' said Mary. "'We'll see the chief later. "'In the meantime we want a lodging for the night, "'and as you seem to have pulled down the bridge in "'and built this dismal place instead, "'you'll have to put us up.' "'I am sorry, Mr. Merry,' said Hob, "'but it isn't allowed.' "'What isn't allowed?' "'Taking in folk off-hand like "'and eating extra food and all that,' said Hob. "'What's the matter with the place?' said Merry. "'Has it been a bad year or what?' "'I thought it had been a fine summer and harvest.' "'Well, no, the year's been good enough,' said Hob. "'We grows a lot of food, but we don't rightly know what becomes of it. "'It's all these gatherers and sharers, I reckon, "'going round, counting and measuring and taking off to storage. "'They do more gathering than sharing, "'and we never see most of the stuff again.' "'Oh, come,' said Pippin, yawning. "'This is all too tiresome for me to-night.' "'We've got food in our bags. "'Just give us a room to lie down in. "'It'll be better than many places I've seen.' "'The hobbits at the gate still seemed ill at ease. "'Evidently some rule or other was being broken. "'But there was no gainsaying four such masterful travellers, "'all armed, and two of them uncommonly large and strong-looking. "'Frodo ordered the gates to be locked again. "'There was some sense, at any rate, in keeping a guard.' while ruffians were still about. Then the four companions went into the hobbit guardhouse and made themselves as comfortable as they could. It was a bare and ugly place, with a mean little grate that would not allow a good fire. In the upper rooms were little rows of hard beds, and on every wall there was a notice and a list of rules. Pippin tore them down. There was no beer and very little food, but with what the travellers brought and shared out, they all made a fair meal, and Pippin broke rule four by putting most of the next day's allowance of wood on the fire. "'Well, now, what about a smoke, while you tell us what's been happening in the Shire?' he said. "'There isn't no pipe-weed now,' said Hob, "'at least only for the chief's men. All the stock seem to have gone. We do hear that wagon-loads of it went away down the old road out of the south farthing, over Sarn Ford Way.' "'That would be the end of last year, after you left. "'But it had been going away quietly before that, in a small way. "'That Lotho—' "'Now you shut up, Hob Hayward,' cried several of the others. "'You know talk of that sort isn't allowed. "'The chief will hear of it, and we'll all be in trouble.' "'He wouldn't hear naught if some of you here weren't sneaks,' rejoined Hob hotly. "'All right, all right,' said Sam. "'That's quite enough.' "'I don't want to hear no more,' 
No welcome, no beer, no smoke, and a lot of rules and orc talk instead. I hoped to have a rest, but I can see there's work and trouble ahead. Let's sleep and forget it till morning. The new chief evidently had means of getting news. It was a good forty miles from the bridge to Bag End, but someone made the journey in a hurry. So Frodo and his friends soon discovered. They had not made any definite plans, but had vaguely thought of going down to Crick Hollow together first and resting there a bit. But now, seeing what things were like, they decided to go straight to Hobbiton. So the next day they set out along the road and jogged along steadily. The wind had dropped, but the sky was grey. The land looked rather sad and forlorn, but it was after all the first of November and the fag end of autumn. Still, there seemed an unusual amount of burning going on, and smoke rose from many points round about. A great cloud of it was going up far away in the direction of Woody End. As evening fell, they were drawing near to Frogmorton, a village right on the road, about twenty-two miles from the bridge. There they meant to stay the night. The floating log at Frogmorton was a good inn. But as they came to the east end of the village, they met a barrier with a large board saying, No Road, and behind it stood a large band of sheriffs with staves in their hands and feathers in their caps, looking both important and rather scared. What's all this? said Frodo, feeling inclined to laugh. This is what it is, Mr. Baggins. "'said the leader of the sheriffs, a two-feather hobbit. "'You're arrested for gate-breaking, and tearing up rules, "'and assaulting gatekeepers, and trespassing, "'and sleeping in shire buildings without leave, "'and bribing guards with food.' "'And what else?' said Frodo. "'That'll do to go on with,' said the sheriff leader. "'I can add some more if you like it,' said Sam. "'calling your chief names, wishing to punch his pimply face, "'and thinking you sheriffs look a lot of tomfools. "'There now, mister, that'll do. "'It's the chief's orders that you're to come along quiet. "'We're going to take you to buy water and hand you over to the chief's men, "'and when he deals with your case, you can have your say. "'But if you don't want to stay in the lock-holes any longer than you need, "'I should cut the say short if I was you.' To the discomfiture of the sheriffs, Frodo and his companions all roared with laughter. "'Don't be absurd,' said Frodo. "'I'm going where I please, and in my own time. I happen to be going to Bag End on business, and if you insist on going too, well, that's your affair.' "'Very well, Mr. Baggins,' said the leader, pushing the barrier aside. "'But don't forget I've arrested you.' "'I won't,' said Frodo. "'Never.' "'but I may forgive you. "'Now, I'm not going any further today, "'so if you'll kindly escort me to the floating log, "'I'll be obliged.' "'I can't do that, Mr. Baggins. "'The inn's closed. "'There's a sheriff house at the far end of the village. "'I'll take you there.' "'All right,' said Frodo. "'Go on, and we'll follow.' "'Sam had been looking the sheriffs up and down, "'and had spotted one that he knew. "'Hey, come here, Robin Smallborough.' he called. I want a word with you. With a sheepish glance at his leader, who looked wrathful, but did not dare to interfere, Sheriff Smallborough fell back and walked beside Sam, who got down off his pony. Look here, Cock Robin, 
said Sam. "'You're hobbit and bred, and ought to have more sense, "'coming away laying Mr. Frodo and all. "'And what's all this about the inn being closed?' "'They're all closed,' said Robin. "'The chief doesn't hold with beer. "'Leastways, that is how it started. "'But now I reckon it's his men that has it all. "'And he doesn't hold with folk moving about. "'So if they will or they must, "'then they has to go to the sheriff's house "'and explain their business.' "'You ought to be ashamed of yourself having anything to do with such nonsense,' said Sam. "'You used to like the inside of an inn better than the outside yourself. "'You were always popping in, on duty or off.' "'And so I would be still, Sam, if I could. "'But don't be hard on me. What can I do? "'You know how I went for a shear of seven years ago, before any of this began?' "'Give me a chance of walking round the country "'and seeing folk and hearing the news "'and knowing where the good beer was. "'But now it's different.' "'But you can give it up. "'Stop sheriffing, if it has stopped being a respectable job,' said Sam. "'We're not allowed to,' said Robin. "'If I hear not allowed much oftener,' said Sam, "'I'm going to get angry.' "'Can't see as I'd be sorry to see it,' said Robin, lowering his voice. "'If we all got angry together, something might be done. "'But it's these men, Sam, the chief's men. "'He sends them round everywhere, "'and if any of us small folks stand up for our rights, "'they drag him off to the lockholds. "'They took old Flower Dumpling, old Will Whitfoot the mare, first, "'and they've taken a lot more. "'Lately it's been getting worse. "'Often they beat him now.' "'Then why do you do their work for them?' said Sam angrily. "'Who sent you to Frogmorton?' "'No one did. "'We stay here in the big sheriff's house. "'We're the first east-farthing troop now. "'There's hundreds of sheriffs all told, "'and they want more with all these new rules. "'Most of them are in it against their will, but not all. "'Even in the shire there is some as like "'minding other folks' business and talking big. "'And there's worse than that. "'There's a few as do spy work for the chief and his men.' "'Ah, so that's how you had news of us, is it?' "'That's right. "'We aren't allowed to send by it now, "'but they use the old quick post service "'and keep special runners at different points. "'One came from Whitfurrow's last night with a secret message, "'and another took it on from here. "'And a message came back this afternoon "'saying you was to be arrested and taken by Bywater, "'not direct to the lockholes. "'The chief wants to see you at once, evidently.' "'He won't be so eager when Mr. Frodo's finished with him,' said Sam. "'The sheriff house at Frogmorton was as bad as the bridge house. "'It had only one story, but it had the same narrow windows, "'and it was built of ugly pale bricks, badly laid. "'Inside it was damp and cheerless, "'and supper was served on a long bare table "'that had not been scrubbed for weeks. "'The food deserved no better setting.' The travellers were glad to leave the place. It was about eighteen miles to Bywater, and they set off at ten o'clock in the morning. They would have started earlier, only the delay so plainly annoyed the sheriff leader. The west wind had shifted northward, and it was turning colder, but the rain was gone. It was rather a comic cavalcade that left the village— though the few folk that came out to stare at the get-up of the travellers did not seem quite sure where the laughing was allowed. A dozen sheriffs had been told off as escort to the prisoners, 
but Mary made them march in front, while Frodo and his friends rode behind. Mary, Pippin and Sam sat at their ease laughing and talking and singing, while the sheriff stumped along trying to look stern and important. Frodo, however, was silent and looked rather sad and thoughtful. The last person they passed was a sturdy old gaffer clipping a hedge. "'Hello, hello!' he jeered. "'Now who's arrested who?' Two of the sheriffs immediately left the party and went towards him. "'Leader,' said Mary, "'order your fellows back to their places at once "'if you don't want me to deal with them.' The two hobbits, at a sharp word from the leader, came back sulkily. "'Now get on,' said Mary. And after that the travellers saw to it that their pony's pace was quick enough to push the sheriffs along as fast as they could. The sun came out, and in spite of the chilly wind they were soon puffing and sweating. At the three-farthing stone they gave it up. They'd done nearly fourteen miles with only one rest at noon. It was now three o'clock. They were hungry and very footsore, and they could not stand the pace. "'Well, come along in your own time,' said Mary. "'We're going on.' "'Good-bye, Cock-Robin,' said Sam. "'I'll wait for you outside the Green Dragon, "'if you haven't forgotten where that is. "'Don't dawdle on the way.' "'You're breaking a rest, that's what you're doing,' "'said the leader ruefully, "'and I can't be answerable. "'We shall break a good many things yet "'and not ask you to answer,' said Pippin. "'Good luck to you.' "'The travellers trotted on.' and as the sun began to sink towards the white downs far away on the western horizon, they came to buy water by its wide pool. And there they had their first really painful shock. This was Frodo and Sam's own country, and they found out now that they cared about it more than any other place in the world. Many of the houses that they had known were missing. Some seemed to have been burned down. The pleasant row of old hobbit holes in the bank on the north side of the pool were deserted, and their little gardens that used to run down right to the water's edge were rank with weeds. Worse, there was a whole line of the ugly new houses all along poolside, where the hobbit and road ran close to the bank. An avenue of trees had stood there. They were all gone. And looking with dismay up the road towards Bag End, they saw a tall chimney of brick in the distance. It was pouring out black smoke into the evening air. Sam was beside himself. "'I'm going right on, Mr. Frodo,' he cried. "'I'm going to see what's up. I want to find my gaffer.' "'We ought to find out first what we're in for, Sam,' said Mary. "'I guess that the chief will have a gang of ruffians handy. We'd better find someone who'll tell us how things are around there.' But in the village of Bywater... All the houses and holes were shut, and no one greeted them. They wondered at this, but they soon discovered the reason of it. When they reached the Green Dragon, the last house on the Hobbiton side, now lifeless and with broken windows, they were disturbed to see half a dozen large, ill-favoured men lounging against the inn wall. They were squint-eyed and sallow-faced. "'Like that friend of Bill Fernie's at Bree,' said Sam. "'Like many that I saw at Isengard,' muttered Mary. "'The ruffians had clubs in their hands and horns by their belts, "'but they had no other weapons as far as could be seen. "'As the travellers rode up, they left the wall and walked into the road, blocking the way. "'Where do you think you're going?' 
said one, the largest and most evil-looking of the crew. "'There's no road for you any further. "'And where are those precious sheriffs?' "'Coming along nicely,' said Mary. "'A little footsore, perhaps. "'We promised to wait for them here.' "'Gone. What did I say?' said the ruffian to his mates. "'I told Sharky it was no good trusting those little fools. "'Some of our chaps ought to have been sent.' "'And what difference would that have made, pray?' said Mary. "'We're not used to footpads in this country, but we know how to deal with them.' "'Footpads, eh?' said the man. "'So that's your tone, is it? "'Change it, or we'll change it for you. "'You little folk are getting too uppish. "'Don't you trust too much in the boss's kind heart? "'Sharky's come now, and he'll do what Sharky says.' "'And what may that be?' said Frodo quietly. "'This country wants waking up and setting their rights.' said the ruffian, and Sharky's going to do it, and make it hard if you drive him to it. You need a bigger boss, and you'll get one before the year is out, if there's any more trouble. Then you'll learn a thing or two, you little rat-folk. Indeed, I'm glad to hear of your plans, said Frodo. I'm on my way to call on Mr. Lotho, and he may be interested to hear of them too. The ruffian laughed. Lotho, he knows all right. Don't you worry. He'll do what Sharky says, because if a boss gives trouble, we can change him. See? And if little folk try to push in where they're not wanted, we can put them out of mischief. See? Yes, I see, said Frodo. For one thing, I see that you're behind the times and the news here. Much has happened since you left the South. Your day is over, and all other ruffians. The dark tower has fallen, and there's a king in Gondor. "'and Isengard has been destroyed, "'and your precious master is a beggar in the wilderness. "'I passed him on the road. "'The king's messengers will ride up the greenway now, "'not bullies from Isengard.' "'The man stared at him and smiled. "'A beggar in the wilderness?' he mocked. "'Oh, is he indeed? "'Swagger it, swagger it, my little cock-a-hoop. "'But that won't stop us living in this fat little country "'where you've lazed long enough, and—' "'He snapped his fingers in Frodo's face— King's messengers, that for them. When I see one, I'll take notice, perhaps. This was too much for Pippin. His thoughts went back to the field of Cormallon, and here was a squint-eyed rascal calling the ring-bearer Little Cock-a-Hoop. He cast back his cloak, flashed out his sword, and the silver and sable of Gondor gleamed on him as he rode forward. "'I am a messenger of the king,' he said. "'You're speaking to the king's friend, and one of the most renowned in all the lands of the West. "'You're a ruffian and a fool. "'Down on your knees in the road and ask pardon, or I'll set this troll's bane in you.' "'The sword glinted in the westering sun. "'Meddy and Sam drew their swords also, and rode up to support Pippin. "'But Frodo did not move. "'The ruffians gave back. "'Scaring Breland peasants and bullying bewildered hobbits had been their work. Fearless hobbits with bright swords and grim faces were a great surprise, and there was a note in the voices of these newcomers that they had not heard before. It chilled them with fear. "'Go,' said Mary. "'If you trouble this village again, you will regret it.' The three hobbits came on, and then the ruffians turned and fled, running away up the hobbiton road, but they blew their horns as they ran. "'Well, we've come back none too soon,' said Mary." Not a day too soon, 
perhaps too late at any rate to save Lotho,' said Frodo. "'Miserable fool, but I'm sorry for him.' "'Save Lotho? Whatever do you mean?' said Pippin. "'Destroy him, I should say.' "'I don't think you quite understand things, Pippin,' said Frodo. "'Lotho never meant things to come to this pass. "'He's been a wicked fool, but he's caught now. "'The ruffians are on top, gathering, robbing and bullying, "'and running or ruining things as they like, in his name, "'and not in his name even for much longer. "'He's a prisoner in Bag End now, I expect, and very frightened. "'We ought to try and rescue him.' "'Well, I am staggered,' said Pippin. "'Of all the ends to our journey, this is the very last I should have thought of, "'to have to fight half-orcs and ruffians in the Shire itself, "'to rescue Lotho Pimple?' "'Fight?' said Frodo. "'Well, I suppose it may come to that. "'But remember, there's to be no slaying of hobbits, "'not even if they have gone over to the other side. "'Really gone over, I mean, "'not just obeying ruffians' orders because they're frightened.' No hobbit has ever killed another on purpose in the Shire, and it is not to begin now. And nobody is to be killed at all if it can be helped. Keep your tempers and hold your hands to the last possible moment. But if there are many of these ruffians, said Mary, it will certainly mean fighting. You won't rescue Lotho or the Shire just by being shocked and sad, my dear Frodo. No, said Pippin. It won't be so easy scaring them a second time. They were taken by surprise. You heard the horn blowing? Evidently there are other ruffians near at hand. They'll be much bolder when there's more of them together. We ought to think of taking cover somewhere for the night. After all, we're only four, even if we are armed. I've an idea, said Sam. Let's go to old Tom Cotton's down South Lane. He always was a stout fellow, and he has a lot of lads that were all friends of mine. No, said Mary. "'It's no good getting under cover. "'That is just what people have been doing, "'and just what these ruffians like. "'They will simply come down on us in force, "'corner us, and then drive us out or burn us in. "'No, we've got to do something at once.' "'Do what?' said Pippin. "'Raise the shire,' said Mary. "'Now, wake all our people. "'They hate all this, you can see.' "'all of them except perhaps one or two rascals "'and a few fools that want to be important "'but don't at all understand what is really going on. "'But Shire folk have been so comfortable so long "'they don't know what to do. "'They just want a match, though, and they'll go up in fire. "'The chief's men must know that. "'They'll try to stamp on us and put us out quick. "'We've only got a very short time. "'Sam, you can make a dash for Cotton's farm if you like.' "'He's the chief person round here and the sturdiest. "'Come on. "'I'm going to blow the horn of Rowan "'and give them all some music they've never heard before.' "'They rode back to the middle of the village. "'There Sam turned aside and galloped off down the lane "'that led south to Cotton's. "'He had not gone far when he heard a sudden clear horn call "'go up ringing into the sky.' Far over hill and field it echoed, and so compelling was that call that Sam himself almost turned and dashed back. His pony reared and neighed. "'On, lad, on!' he cried. "'We'll be going back soon.' Then he heard Mary change the note, and up went the horn-cry of Buckland, shaking the air. "'Awake! Awake! Fear! Fire! Foes! Awake! Fire! Foes! Awake!' 
Behind him, Sam heard a hubbub of voices and a great din and slamming of doors. In front of him, lights sprang out in the gloaming. Dogs barked. Feet came running. Before he got to the lane's end, there was Farmer Cotton with three of his lads, young Tom, Jolly, and Nick, hurrying towards him. They had axes in their hands and barred the way. "'Nay, it's not one of them ruffians,' Sam heard the farmer say. "'It's a hobbit by the size of it, but all dressed up queer. Hey!' he cried. "'Who are you, and what's all this to do?' "'It's Sam. Sam Gamgee. I've come back.' Farmer Cotton came up close and stared at him in the twilight. "'Well!' he exclaimed. "'The voice is right, and your face is no worse than it was, Sam. "'But I should have passed you in the street in that gear. "'You've been in foreign parts, seemingly. "'We feared you were dead.' "'That I ain't,' said Sam. "'Nor Mr. Frodo. "'He's here and his friends. "'And that's the to-do. "'They're raising the shire. "'We're going to clear out these ruffians and their chief, too. "'We're starting now.' "'Good!' "'Good!' cried Farmer Cotton. "'So it's begun at last. "'I've been itching for trouble all this year, but folks wouldn't help, "'and I've had the wife and Rosie to think of. "'These ruffians don't stick at nothing. "'But come on now, lads. "'Bywater is up. "'We must be in it.' "'What about Mrs. Cotton and Rosie?' said Sam. "'It isn't safe yet for them to be left all alone.' "'My nibs is with them, "'but you can go and help him if you have a mind.' said Farmer Cotton with a grin. Then he and his sons ran off towards the village. Sam hurried to the house. By the large round door at the top of the steps from the wide yard stood Mrs. Cotton and Rosie, and Nibs in front of them, grasping a hayfork. "'It's me!' shouted Sam as he trotted up. "'Sam Gamgee! So don't try prodding me, Nibs. Anyway, I've a mail-shirt on me.' He jumped down from his pony and went up the steps. They stared at him in silence. "'Good evening, Mrs. Cotton,' he said. "'Hello, Rosie.' "'Hello, Sam,' said Rosie. "'Where have you been? "'They said you were dead, "'but I've been expecting you since the spring. "'You haven't hurried, have you?' "'Perhaps not,' said Sam abashed. "'But I'm hurrying now. "'We're sitting about the ruffians, "'and I've got to get back to Mr. Frodo. "'But I thought I'd have a look "'and see how Mrs. Cotton was keeping, "'and you, Rosie.' "'We're keeping nicely, thank you,' said Mrs. Cotton. "'Or should be, if it weren't for those thieving ruffians.' "'Well, be off with you,' said Rosie. "'If you've been looking after Mr. Frodo all this while, "'what do you want to leave him for, as soon as things look dangerous?' "'This was too much for Sam. "'It needed a week's answer or none. "'He turned away and mounted his pony. "'But as he started off, Rosie ran down the steps.' "'I think you look fine, Sam,' she said. "'Go on now, but take care of yourself, "'and come straight back as soon as you've settled the ruffians.' "'When Sam got back he found the whole village roused. "'Already, apart from many younger lads, "'more than a hundred sturdy hobbits were assembled with axes "'and heavy hammers and long knives and stout staves, "'and a few had hunting bows. "'More were still coming in from outlying farms.' Some of the village folk had lit a large fire, just to enliven things, and also because it was one of the things forbidden by the chief. It burned bright as night came on. Others, at Mary's orders, were setting up barriers across the road at each end of the village. When the sheriffs came up to the lower one, they were dumbfounded. 
but as soon as they saw how things were, most of them took off their feathers and joined in the revolt. The others slunk away. Sam found Frodo and his friends by the fire, talking to old Tom Cotton, while an admiring crowd of Bywater folk stood round and stared. "'Well, what's the next move?' said Farmer Cotton. "'I can't say,' said Frodo, "'until I know more. "'How many of these ruffians are there?' "'That's hard to tell,' said Cotton. "'They moves about and comes and goes.' "'There's sometimes fifty of them in their sheds up Hobbiton Way, "'but they go out from there roving round, "'thieving or gathering, as they call it. "'Still, there's seldom less than a score round the boss, as they names him. "'He's at Bag End, or was, "'but he don't go outside the grounds now. "'No one's seen him at all, in fact, for a week or two, "'but the men don't let no one go near. "'Hobbiton's not their only place, is it?' said Pippin. "'No more's the pity,' said Cotton. "'There's a good few down south in Longbottom and by Sarn Ford, I hear, "'and some more lurking in the woody end, and they've sheds at Waymeet. "'And then there's the lock-holes, as they call them, "'the old storage tunnels at Mickle Delving "'that they've made into prisons for those as stand up to them. "'Still I reckon there's not above three hundred of them in the Shire, all told, "'and maybe less.' "'We can master them if we stick together.' "'Have they got any weapons?' asked Mary. "'Whips, knives, and clubs. "'Enough for their dirty work. "'That's all they've showed so far,' said Cotton. "'But I dare say they've got other gear if it comes to fighting. "'Some have bows, anyway. "'They've shot one or two of our folk.' "'There you are, Frodo,' said Mary. "'I knew we should have to fight. "'Well?' They started the killing. Not exactly, said Cotton. Leastways, not the shooting. Took started that. You see, your dad, Mr. Peregrine, he's never had no truck with his Lotho, not from the beginning. Said that if anyone was going to play the chief at this time of day, it would be the right thane of the Shire and no upstart. And when Lotho sent his men, they got no change out of him. Took's are lucky. They've got those deep holes in the green hills, the great smiles and all, and the ruffians can't come at them. And they won't let the ruffians come on their land. If they do, Tooks hunt em. Tooks shot three for prowling and robbing. After that the ruffians turn nastier, and they keep a pretty close watch on Took land. No one gets in nor out of it now. Good for the Tooks, cried Pippin. "'But someone's going to get it again now. "'I'm off to the smiles. "'Anyone coming with me to Tuckborough?' "'Pippin rode off with a half a dozen lads on ponies. "'See you soon,' he cried. "'It's only fourteen miles or so over the fields. "'I'll bring you back an army of tooks in the morning.' "'Mary blew a horn-call after them "'as they rode off into the gathering night. "'The people cheered. "'All the same,' said Frodo, "'to all those who stood near. "'I wish for no killing.' "'not even of the ruffians, unless it must be done, "'to prevent them from hurting hobbits.' "'All right,' said Mary. "'But we shall be having a visit from the hobbit and gang any time now, I think. "'They won't come just to talk things over. "'We'll try to deal with them neatly, but we must be prepared for the worst. "'Now I've got a plan.' "'Very good,' said Frodo. "'You make the arrangements.' "'Just then some hobbits, who had been sent out towards Hobbiton, came running in. "'They're coming!' they said, 
a score or more, but two have gone off west across country. To weigh meat, that'll be, said Cotton, to fetch more of the gang. Well, it's fifteen mile each way. We needn't trouble about them just yet. Mary hurried off to give orders. Farmer Cotton cleared the street, sending everyone indoors, except the older hobbits who had weapons of some sort. They had not long to wait. Soon they could hear loud voices, and then the tramping of heavy feet. Presently a whole squad of the ruffians came down the road. They saw the barrier and laughed. They didn't imagine that there was anything in this little land that would stand up to twenty of their kind together. The hobbits opened the barrier and stood aside. "'Thank you,' the men jeered. "'Now run home to bed before you're whipped.' Then they marched along the street, shouting, "'Put those lights out! Get indoors and stay there, "'or we'll take fifty of you to the lockholes for a year. "'Get in! The boss is losing his temper!' No one paid any heed to their orders, but as the ruffians passed, they closed in quietly behind and followed them. When the men reached the fire, there was Farmer Cotton standing all alone, warming his hands. "'Who are you, and what do you think you're doing?' said the ruffian leader. Farmer Cotton looked at him slowly. "'I was just going to ask you that,' he said. "'This isn't your country, and you're not wanted.' "'Well, you're wanted anyhow,' said the leader. "'We want you. Take him, lads. Lock holes for him, and give him something to keep him quiet.' The men took one step forward and stopped short. There rose a roar of voices all round them, and suddenly they were aware that Farmer Cotton was not all alone. They were surrounded. In the dark, on the edge of the firelight, stood a ring of hobbits that had crept up out of the shadows. There was nearly two hundred of them, all holding some weapon. Mary stepped forward. "'We've met before,' he said to the leader, "'and I warned you not to come back here. "'I warn you again. "'You're standing in the light and you're covered by archers.' If you lay a finger on this farmer, or on anyone else, you'll be shot at once. Lay down any weapons that you have. The leader looked round. He was trapped. But he was not scared. Not now, with the score of his fellows to back him. He knew too little of hobbits to understand his peril. Foolishly, he decided to fight. It would be easy to break out. Adam, lads, he cried. Let him have it. With a long knife in his left hand and a club in the other, he made a rush at the ring, trying to burst out back towards Hobbiton. He aimed a savage blow at Merry, who stood in his way. He fell dead with four arrows in him. That was enough for the others. They gave in. Their weapons were taken from them, and they were roped together, and marched off to an empty hut that they had built themselves, and there they were tied hand and foot and locked up under guard. The dead leader was dragged off and bedded. "'Seems almost too easy after all, don't it?' said Cotton. "'I said we could master them. But we needed a call. You came back in the nick of time, Mr. Merry.' "'There's more to be done still,' said Merry. "'If you're right in your reckoning, we haven't dealt with a tithe of them yet. But it's dark now. I think the next stroke must wait until morning. Then we must call on the chief.' "'Why not now?' said Sam. "'It's not much more than six o'clock, and I want to see my gaffer. "'Do you know what's come of him, Mr. Cotton?' 
He's not too well, and he's not too bad, Sam, said the farmer. They dug up Bagshot Row, and that was a sad blow to him. He's in one of them new houses that the chief's men used to build while they still did any work other than burning and thieving. Not above a mile from the end of Bywater. But he comes round to me when he gets a chance, and I see he's better fed than some of the poor bodies. All against the rules, of course. I'd have had him with me, but that wasn't allowed. Thank ye indeed, Mr. Cotton, and I'll never forget it, said Sam. But I want to see him. That boss and that sharky, as they spoke of, they might do a mischief up there before the morning. All right, Sam, said Cotton. Choose a lad or two, and go and fetch him to my house. You'll not have need to go near the old Hobbiton village over water. My jolly here will show you. Sam went off. Mary arranged for lookouts round the village and guards at the barriers during the night. Then he and Frodo went off with Farmer Cotton. They sat with the family in the warm kitchen, and the Cottons asked a few polite questions about their travels, but hardly listened to the answers. They were far more concerned with events in the Shire. "'It all began with Pimple, as we call him,' said Farmer Cotton. "'And it began as soon as you'd gone off, Mr. Frodo. "'He'd funny ideas, had Pimple. "'Seems he wanted to own everything himself.' "'and then order other folk about. "'It soon came out that he already did own a sight more than was good for him. "'And he was always grabbing more, "'though where he got the money was a mystery. "'Mills and malt-houses and inns and farms and leaf plantations. "'He'd already bought Sandyman's mill before he came to Bag End, seemingly. "'Of course he started with a lot of property in the South Farthing, "'which he had from his dad.' "'and it seems he'd been selling a lot of the best leaf "'and sending it away quietly for a year or two. "'But at the end of last year "'he began sending away loads of stuff, not only leaf. "'Things began to get short, and winter coming on too. "'Folk got angry, but he had his answer. "'A lot of men, ruffians mostly, came with great wagons, "'some to carry off the goods south away, and others to stay. "'And more came.' "'and before we knew where we were, "'they were planted here and there all over the Shire, "'and were felling trees and digging "'and building themselves sheds and houses "'just as they liked. "'At first goods and damage were paid for by Pimple, "'but soon they began lording it around "'and taking what they wanted. "'Then there was a bit of trouble, but not enough. "'Old Will the Mayor set off for Baggin to protest, "'but he never got there.' Ruffians laid hands on him, and took and locked him up in a hole in Mickle Delving, and there he is now. And after that, it would be soon after New Year, there wasn't no more mayor, and Pimple called himself Chief Sheriff, or just Chief, and did as he liked. And if anyone got up as they called it, they followed Will. So things went from bad to worse. There wasn't no smoke left, save for the men, and the chief didn't hold with beer, save for his men, and closed all the inns, and everything except rules got shorter and shorter, unless one could hide a bit of one's own when the ruffians went round gathering stuff up for fair distribution, which meant they got it and we didn't, except for the leavings which you could have at the sheriff houses, if you could stomach them. All very bad, but since Sharky came it's been plain ruination.'
"'Who is this Sharky?' said Mary. "'I heard one of the ruffians speak of him.' "'The biggest ruffian of the lot, seemingly,' answered Cotton. "'It was about last harvest, end of September, maybe, that we first heard of him. "'We'd never seen him, but he's up at Bag End, and he's the real chief now, I guess. "'All the ruffians do what he says, and what he says is mostly hack, burn, and ruin, "'and now it's come to killing. "'There's no longer even any bad sense in it. "'They cut down trees and let them lie. "'They burn houses and build no more.' "'Take Sandyman's mill now. "'Pimple knocked it down almost as soon as he came to Bag End. "'Then he brought in a lot of dirty-looking men "'to build a bigger one and fill it full of wheels "'and outlandish contraptions. "'Only that fool Ted was pleased by that, "'and he works there cleaning wheels for the men "'where his dad was the miller and his own master. "'Pimple's idea was to grind more and faster, or so he said. "'He's got other mills like it.' "'But you've got to have grist before you can grind, "'and there was no more for the new mill to do than for the old. "'But since Sharky came, they don't grind no more corn at all. "'They're always a-hammering and a-letting out a smoke and a stench, "'and there isn't no peace even at night in Hobbiton, "'and they pour out filth a-purpose. "'They've fouled all the lower water, and it's getting down into brandy-wine.' If they want to make the Shire into a desert, they're going the right way about it. I don't believe that fool of a pimple's behind all this. It's Sharky, I say. That's right, put in young Tom. Why, they even took Pimple's old ma, that Lavelia, and he was fond of her, if no one else was. Some of the Hobbiton folk, they saw it. She comes down the lane with her old umbrella. Some of the ruffians were going up with a big cart. Where be you a-going? says she. To Bag End, says they. What for? says she. To put up some sheds for Sharky, says they. Who said you could? says she. Sharky, says they. So get out of the road, old haggling. I'll give you Sharky, you dirty thieving ruffians, says she, and ups with her umbrella and goes for the leader, near twice her size. So they took her, dragged her off to the lockholes, at her age too. "'They've taken others we miss more, "'but there's no denying she showed more spirit than most.' "'Into the middle of this talk came Sam, "'bursting in with his gaffer. "'Old Gamgee didn't look much older, "'but he was a little deafer. "'Good evening, Mr. Baggins,' he said. "'Glad indeed I am to see you safe back. "'But I've a bone to pick with you, "'in a manner of speaking, if I may make so bold.' "'You didn't never ought to have a soul back in, as I always said. "'That's what started all the mischief. "'And while you've been traipsing in foreign parts, "'chasing black men up mountains from what my Sam says, "'though what for he don't make clear, "'they've been and dug a bagshot row and ruined my taters.' "'I'm very sorry, Mr. Gamgee, said Frodo, "'but now I've come back, I'll do my best to make amends.' "'Well, you can't say fairer than that,' said the gaffer. "'Mr. Frodo Baggins is a real gentle hobbit, I always have said, "'whatever you may think of some others of the name, begging your pardon. "'And I hope my Sam's behaved hisself and given satisfaction.' "'Perfect satisfaction, Mr. Gamgee,' said Frodo. "'Indeed, if you will believe it, 
He's now one of the most famous people in all the lands, and they're making songs about his deeds from here to the sea and beyond the great river. Sam blushed, but he looked gratefully at Frodo, for Rose's eyes were shining and she was smiling at him. It takes a lot of believing, said the gaffer, though I can see he's been mixing in strange company. What's come of his waistcoat? I don't hold with wearing ironmongery, whether it wears well or no. Farmer Cotton's household and all his guests were up early next morning. Nothing had been heard in the night, but more trouble would certainly come before the day was old. Seems as if none of the ruffians were left up at Bag End, said Cotton, but the gang from Waymeet will be along any time now. After breakfast, a messenger from the Tookland rode in. He was in high spirits. The thane has raised all our country, he said, and the news is going like fire always. The ruffians that were watching our land have fled off south, those that escaped alive. The thane has gone after them to hold off the big gang down that way, but he sent Mr. Peregrine back with all the other folk he can spare. The next news was less good. Meddy, who had been out all night, came riding in about ten o'clock. "'There's a big band about four miles away,' he said. "'They're coming along the road from Waymeet, but a good many stray ruffians have joined up with them. There must be close on a hundred of them, and they're fire-raising as they come, curse them.' "'Ah, this lot won't stay to talk. They'll kill if they can,' said Farmer Cotton." If Tooks don't come sooner, we'd best get behind cover and shoot without arguing. There's got to be some fighting before this is settled, Mr. Frodo. The Tooks did come sooner. Before long they marched in, a hundred strong, from Tukpra and the Green Hills with Pippin at their head. Merry now had enough sturdy hobbitry to deal with the ruffians. Scouts reported that they were keeping close together. They knew that the countryside had risen against them, and plainly meant to deal with the rebellion ruthlessly at its centre in Bywater. But however grim they might be, they seemed to have no leader among them who understood warfare. They came on without any precautions. Merry laid his plans quickly. The ruffians came tramping along the east road, and without halting turned up the Bywater road, which ran for some way sloping up between high banks and low hedges on top. Round a bend, about a furlong from the main road, they met a stout barrier of old farm carts upturned. They halted them. At the same moment they became aware that the hedges on both sides, just above their heads, were all lined with hobbits. Behind them other hobbits now pushed out some more wagons that had been hidden in a field, and so blocked the way back. A voice spoke to them from above. "'Well,' "'You have walked into a trap,' said Merry. "'Your fellows from Hobbiton did the same, "'and one is dead and the rest are prisoners. "'Lay down your weapons. "'Then go back twenty paces and sit down. "'Any who try to break out will be shot.' "'But the ruffians could not now be cowed so easily. "'A few of them obeyed, "'but were immediately set on by their fellows. "'A score or more broke back and charged the wagons. Six were shot.' but the remainder burst out, killing two hobbits, and then scattering across country in the direction of the woody end. Two more fell as they ran. 
Mary blew a loud horn call, and there were answering calls from a distance. "'They won't get far,' said Pippin. "'All that country is alive with our hunters now.' Behind, the trapped men in the lane, still about fourscore, tried to climb the barrier and the banks, and the hobbits were obliged to shoot many of them or hew them with axes. But many of the strongest and most desperate got out on the west side and attacked their enemies fiercely, being now more bent on killing than escaping. Several hobbits fell, and the rest were wavering when Merry and Pippin, who were on the east side, came across and charged the ruffians. Merry himself slew the leader, a great squint-eyed brute like a huge orc. Then he drew his forces off, encircling the last remnant of the men in a wide ring of archers. At last all was over. Nearly seventy of the ruffians lay dead on the field, and a dozen were prisoners. Nineteen hobbits were killed, and some thirty were wounded. The dead ruffians were laden on wagons and hauled off to an old sand-pit nearby and buried. In the battle-pit, as it was afterwards called. The fallen hobbits were laid together in a grave on the hillside, where later a great stone was set up with a garden about it. So ended the Battle of Bywater, 1419, the last battle fought in the Shire, and the only battle since the Greenfields, 1147, away up in the North Farthing. In consequence, though it happily cost very few lives, it has a chapter to itself in the Red Book and the names of all those who took part were made into a roll and learned by heart by shy historians. The very considerable rise in the fame and fortune of the Cottons dates from this time, but at the top of the roll, in all accounts, stand the names of Captains Mediardoc and Peregrine. Frodo had been in the battle, but he had not drawn sword, and his chief part had been to prevent the hobbits in their wrath at their losses from slaying those of their enemies who threw down their weapons. When the fighting was over, and the later labours were ordered, Mary, Pippin, and Sam joined him, and they rode back with the cottons. They ate a late midday meal, and then Frodo said with a sigh, "'Well, I suppose it's time now that we dealt with the chief.' "'Yes, indeed.' "'The sooner the better,' said Mary. "'And don't be too gentle. "'He's responsible for bringing in these ruffians "'and for all the evil they've done.' "'Farmer Cotton collected an escort "'of some two dozen sturdy hobbits. "'For it's only a guess that there's no ruffians left at Bag End,' "'he said. "'We don't know.' "'Then they set out on foot. "'Frodo, Sam, Mary and Pippin led the way.' It was one of the saddest hours in their lives. The great chimney rose up before them, and as they drew near the old village across the water, through rows of new mean houses along each side of the road, they saw the new mill in all its frowning and dirty ugliness, a great brick building straddling the stream which it fouled with a steaming and stinking overflow. All along the bywater road every tree had been felled. As they crossed the bridge and looked up the hill, they gasped. Even Sam's vision in the mirror had not prepared him for what they saw. The old grange on the west side had been knocked down, and its place taken by rows of tarred sheds. All the chestnuts were gone. The banks and hedgerows were broken. Great wagons were standing in disorder in a field, beaten bare of grass. 
Bagshot Row was a yawning sand and gravel quarry. Bag End, up beyond, could not be seen for a clutter of large huts. They've cut it down, cried Sam. They've cut down the party tree. He pointed to where the tree had stood, under which Bilbo had made his farewell speech. It was lying lopped and dead in the field. As if this was the last straw, Sam burst into tears. A laugh put an end to them. There was a surly hobbit lounging over the low wall of the mill-yard. He was grimy-faced and black-handed. "'Don't he like it, Sam?' he sneered. "'But you always was soft. I thought you'd gone off in one of them ships you used to prattle about. Sailing, sailing. What do you want to come back for? We've work to do in the Shire now.' "'So I see,' said Sam. No time for washing, but time for wall-propping. But see here, Master Sandyman, I've a score to pay in this village, and don't you make it any longer with your jeering, or you'll foot a bill too big for your purse. Ted Sandyman spat over the wall. Garn, he said, you can't touch me. I'm a friend of the boss's, but he'll touch you all right if I have any more of your mouth. "'Don't waste any more words on the fool, Sam,' said Frodo. "'I hope there are not many more hobbits that have become like this. "'It would be a worse trouble than all the damage the men have done.' "'You're dirty and insolent, Sandyman,' said Mary, "'and also very much out of your reckoning. "'We're just going up the hill to remove your precious boss. "'We've dealt with his men.' "'Ted gaped, for at that moment... He first caught sight of the escort that, at a sign from Merry, now marched over the bridge. Dashing back into the mill, he ran out with a horn and blew it loudly. "'Save your breath!' laughed Merry. "'I've a better!' Then, lifting up his silver horn, he winded it, and its clear call rang over the hill. And out of the holes and sheds and shabby houses of Hobbiton, the hobbits answered, and came pouring out and with cheers and loud cries they followed the company up the road to Bag End. At the top of the lane the party halted, and Frodo and his friends went on, and they came at last to the once-beloved place. The garden was full of huts and sheds, some so near the old westward windows that they cut off all their light. There were piles of refuse everywhere. The door was scarred, the bell-chain was dangling loose, and the bell would not ring. Knocking brought no answer. At length they pushed, and the door yielded. They went in. The place stank and was full of filth and disorder. It did not appear to have been used for some time. "'Where's that miserable Lotho hiding?' said Mary. They'd searched every room, and found no living thing save rats and mice. "'Shall we turn on the others to search the sheds?' "'This is worse than Mordor,' said Sam. "'Much worse, in a way. "'It comes home to you, as they say, "'because it is home, "'and you remember it before it was all ruined. "'Yes, this is Mordor,' said Frodo. "'Just one of its works. "'Saruman was doing its work all the time, "'even when he thought he was working for himself. "'And the same with those that Saruman tricked, like Lotho. Mary looked round in dismay and disgust. "'Let's get out,' he said. 
If I'd known all the mischief he'd caused, I should have stuffed my pouch down Saruman's throat. No doubt, no doubt, but you didn't, and so I'm able to welcome you home. There, standing at the door, was Saruman himself, looking well-fed and well-pleased. His eyes gleamed with malice and amusement. A sudden light broke on Frodo. Sharky, he cried. Saruman laughed. So you've heard the name, have you? All my people used to call me that in Isengard, I believe. A sign of affection, possibly. But evidently you didn't expect to see me here. I did not, said Frodo. But I might have guessed. A little mischief in a mean way. Gandalf warned me that you were still capable of it. Quite capable, said Saruman. And more than a little. You made me laugh, you hobbit lordlings. "'riding along with all those great people, "'so secure and so pleased with your little selves. "'You thought you'd done very well out of it all "'and could now just amble back "'and have a nice quiet time in the country. "'Saruman's home could be all wrecked "'and he could be turned out, "'but no one could touch yours. "'Oh, no, Gandalf would look after your affairs.' "'Saruman laughed again. "'Not he!' When his tools have done their task, he drops them. But you must go dangling after them, dawdling and talking, and riding round twice as far as you needed. Well, thought I, if they're such fools, I'll get ahead of them and teach them a lesson. One ill turn deserves another. It would have been a sharper lesson if only you'd given me a little more time and more men. Still... I've already done much that you'll find it hard to mend or undo in your lives, and it will be pleasant to think of that and set it against my injuries. Well, if that's what you find pleasure in, said Frodo, I pity you. It will be a pleasure of my memory only, I fear. Go at once and never return. The hobbits of the villagers had seen Saruman come out of one of the huts, and at once they came crowding up to the door of Bag End. When they heard Frodo's command, they murmured angrily, "'Don't let him go! Kill him! He's a villain and a murderer! Kill him!' Saruman looked round at their hostile faces and smiled. "'Kill him!' he mocked. "'Kill him, if you think there are enough of you, my brave hobbits!' He drew himself up and stared at them darkly with his black eyes. But do not think that when I lost all my goods I lost all my power. Whoever strikes me shall be accursed, and if my blood steams the shire, it shall wither and never again be healed. The hobbits recoiled, but Frodo said, Don't believe him. He's lost all his power, save his voice that can still daunt you and deceive you if you let him. "'But I will not have him slain. "'It is useless to meet revenge with revenge. "'It will heal nothing. "'Go, Saruman, by the speediest way.' "'Worm! Worm!' Saruman called, "'and out of a nearby hut came Wormtongue, "'crawling almost like a dog. "'To the road again, Worm!' said Saruman. "'These fine fellows and lordlings are turning us adrift again. "'Come along!' Saruman turned to go, and Wormtongue shuffled after him. But even as Saruman passed close to Frodo, a knife flashed in his hand, and he stabbed swiftly. The blade turned on the hidden mail coat and snapped, 
A dozen hobbits, led by Sam, leapt forward with a cry and flung the villain to the ground. Sam drew his sword. No, Sam, said Frodo. Don't kill him even now, for he's not hurt me. And in any case, I don't wish him to be slain in this evil mood. He was great once, of a noble kind that we should not dare to raise our hands against. He has fallen, and his cure is beyond us. But I would still spare him, in the hope that he may find it. Saruman rose to his feet and stared at Frodo. There was a strange look in his eyes of mingled wonder and respect and hatred. "'You have grown halfling,' he said. "'Yes, you've grown very much. You are wise and cruel. You have robbed my revenge of sweetness, and now I must go hence in bitterness, in debt to your mercy. I hate it and you.' Well, I go, and I will trouble you no more. But do not expect me to wish you health and long life. You will have neither. But that is not my doing. I merely foretell. He walked away, and the hobbits made a lane for him to pass. But their knuckles whitened as they gripped on their weapons. Wormtongue hesitated, and then followed his master. Wormtongue. Called Frodo. You need not follow him. I know of no evil you have done to me. You can have rest and food here for a while until you're stronger and can go your own ways. Wormtongue halted and looked back at him, half prepared to stay. Saruman turned. No evil, he cackled. Oh, no. "'Even when he sneaks out at night, it is only to look at the stars. "'But did I hear someone ask where poor Lotho is hiding? "'You know, don't you, Worm? Will you tell them?' "'Wormtongue cowered down and whimpered. "'No, no.' "'Then I will,' said Saruman. "'Worm killed your chief, poor little fellow, your nice little boss. "'Didn't you, Worm?' "'Stabbed him in his sleep, I believe. "'Buried him, I hope. "'The worm has been very hungry lately. "'No, worm is not really nice. "'You'd better leave him to me.' "'A look of wild hatred came into Wormtongue's red eyes. "'You told me to. "'You made me do it,' he hissed. "'Saruman laughed.' You do what Sharky says always, don't you, Worm? Well, now, he says, follow. He kicked Wormtongue in the face as he groveled and turned and made off. But at that something snapped. Suddenly Wormtongue rose up, drawing a hidden knife, and then with a snarl like a dog he sprang on Saruman's back, jerked his head back, cut his throat, and with a yell ran off down the lane. Before Frodo could recover or speak a word, three hobbit bows twanged and Wormtongue fell dead. To the dismay of those that stood by, about the body of Saruman a grey mist gathered, and rising slowly to a great height like smoke from afar, as a pale shrouded figure it loomed over the hill. For a moment it wavered, looking to the west. But out of the west came a cold wind, and it bent away, and with a sigh dissolved into nothing. Frodo looked down at the body with pity and horror, for as he looked it seemed that long years of death were suddenly revealed in it, and it shrank, 
and the shriveled face became rags of skin upon a hideous skull. Lifting up the skirt of the dirty cloak that sprawled beside it, he covered it over and turned away. "'And that's the end of that,' said Sam. "'A nasty end, and I wish I needn't have seen it, but it's a good riddance. "'And the very last end of the war, I hope,' said Mary. "'I hope so,' said Frodo, and sighed. "'The very last stroke. "'But to think that it should fall here,' at the very door of Bag End. Among all my hopes and fears, at least I never expected that. I shan't call it the end, till we've cleared up the mess, said Sam gloomily, and that'll take a lot of time and work. Chapter 9 The Grey Havens The clearing up certainly needed a lot of work, but it took less time than Sam had feared. The day after the battle, Frodo rode to Mickledelving and released the prisoners from the lockholes. One of the first that they found was poor Fredegar Bolger, fatty no longer. He'd been taken when the ruffians smoked out a band of rebels that he led from their hidings up in the Brockenbores by the hills of Skerry. "'You'd have done better to come with us after all, poor old Fredegar,' said Pippin, as they carried him out, too weak to walk. He opened an eye and tried gallantly to smile. "'Who's this young giant with a loud voice?' he whispered. "'Not little Pippin. What's your size in hats now?' Then there was Lobelia. Poor thing, she looked very old and thin when they rescued her from a dark and narrow cell. She insisted on hobbling out on her own feet, and she had such a welcome— and there was such clapping and cheering when she appeared, leaning on Frodo's arm but still clutching her umbrella, that she was quite touched, and drove away in tears. She'd never in her life been popular before, but she was crushed by the news of Lotho's murder, and she would not return to Bag End. She gave it back to Frodo, and went to her own people, the brace-girdles of Hardbottle. When the poor creature died next spring— she was, after all, more than a hundred years old. Frodo was surprised and much moved. She had left all that remained of her money and of Lotho's for him to use in helping hobbits made homeless by the troubles. So that feud was ended. Old Will Whitfoot had been in the lockholds longer than any, and though he'd perhaps been treated less harshly than some, he needed a lot of feeding up before he could look the part of mayor. So Frodo agreed to act as his deputy, until Mr. Whitfoot was in shape again. The only thing that he did as deputy mayor was to reduce the sheriffs to their proper functions and numbers. The task of hunting out the last remnant of the ruffians was left to Merry and Pippin, and it was soon done. The southern gangs, after hearing the news of the Battle of Bywater, fled out of the land and offered little resistance to the thane. Before the year's end, the few survivors rounded up in the woods, and those that surrendered were shown to the borders. Meanwhile the labour of repair went on apace, and Sam was kept very busy. Hobbits can work like bees when the mood and the need comes on them. Now there were thousands of willing hands of all ages, from the small but nimble ones of the hobbit lads and lasses to the well-worn and horny ones of the gaffers and gammers. 
Before Yule, not a brick was left standing of the new sheriff houses or of anything that had been built by Sharky's men. But the bricks were used to repair many an old hole to make it snugger and drier. Great stores of goods and food and beer were found that had been hidden away by the ruffians in sheds and barns and deserted holes, and especially in the tunnels at Mickledelving and in the old quarries at Scary, so that there was a great deal better cheer that Yule than any one had hoped for. One of the first things done in Hobbiton, before even the removal of the new mill, was the clearing of the hill and bag end, and the restoration of Bagshot Row. The front of the new sandpit was all levelled and made into a large sheltered garden, and new holes were dug in the southward face, back into the hill, and they were lined with brick. The gaffer was restored to number three, and he said often, and did not care who heard it, "'It's an ill wind as blows nobody no good, as I always say, and all's well as ends better.' There was some discussion of the name that the new row should be given, Battle Gardens was thought of, or Better Smiles, but after a while in sensible hobbit fashion it was just called New Row. It was a purely bywater joke to refer to it as Sharky's End. The trees were the worst loss and damage, for at Sharky's bidding they had been cut down recklessly far and wide over the shire, and Sam grieved over this more than anything else. For one thing, this hurt would take long to heal, and only his great-grandchildren, he thought, would see the shire as it ought to be. Then suddenly one day, for he had been too busy for weeks to give a thought to his adventures, he remembered the gift of Galadriel. He brought the box out and showed it to the other travellers, for so they were now called by everyone, and asked their advice. "'I wondered when you'd think of it,' said Frodo. "'Open it.' Inside it was filled with a grey dust, soft and fine, in the middle of which was a seed, like a small nut with a silver shale. "'What can I do with this?' said Sam. "'Throw it in the air on a breezy day and let it do its work,' said Pippin. "'On what?' said Sam. "'Choose one spot as a nursery and see what happens to the plants there,' said Mary." "'But I'm sure the lady would not like me to keep it all for my own garden, "'now so many folk have suffered,' said Sam. "'Use all the wits and knowledge you have of your own, Sam,' said Frodo, "'and then use the gift to help your work and better it, and use it sparingly. "'There's not much here, and I expect every grain has a value.' "'So Sam planted saplings in all the places "'where specially beautiful or beloved trees had been destroyed.' and he put a grain of the precious dust in the soil at the root of each. He went up and down the shire in this labour, but if he paid special attention to Hobbiton and Bywater, no one blamed him. And at the end he found that he still had a little of the dust left, so he went to the three-farthing stone, which is as near the centre of the shire as no matter, and cast it in the air with his blessing. The little silver nut he planted in the party field where the tree had once been, and he wondered what would come of it. All through the winter he remained as patient as he could, and tried to restrain himself from going round constantly to see if anything was happening. Spring surpassed his wildest hopes. 
his trees began to sprout and grow as if time was in a hurry and wished to make one year do for twenty. In the party field a beautiful young sapling leapt up. It had silver bark and long leaves and burst into golden flowers in April. It was, indeed, a mullorn, and it was the wonder of the neighbourhood. In after years, as it grew in grace and beauty, it was known far and wide, and people would come long journeys to see it, the only mullorn west of the mountains and east of the sea, and one of the finest in the world. Altogether 1420 in the Shire was a marvellous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain, in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed something more, an air of richness and growth, and a gleam of beauty beyond that of mortal summers that flicker and pass upon this middle earth. All the children born or begotten in that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong, and most of them had a rich golden hair that had before been rare among hobbits. The fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream, and later they sat on the lawns under the plum-trees and ate, until they had made piles of stones like small pyramids, or the heaped skulls of a conqueror, and then they moved on. And no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, except those who had to mow the grass. In the south farthing the vines were laden, and the yield of leaf was astonishing, and everywhere there was so much corn that at harvest every barn was stuffed. The north farthing barley was so fine that the beer of 1420 malt was long remembered and became a byword. Indeed, a generation later one might hear an old gaffer in an inn, after a good pint of well-earned ale, put down his mug with a sigh. Ah, that was proper fourteen twenty, that was. Sam stayed at first at the cottons with Frodo, but when the new row was ready, he went with the gaffer. In addition to all his other labours, he was busy directing the cleaning up and restoring a bag end, but he was often away in the shire on his forestry work. So he was not at home in early March, and did not know that Frodo had been ill. On the thirteenth of that month, Farmer Cotton found Frodo lying on his bed. He was clutching a white gem that hung on a chain about his neck, and he seemed half in a dream. "'It is gone forever,' he said, "'and now all is dark and empty.' But the fit passed, and when Sam got back on the twenty-fifth, Frodo had recovered, and he said nothing about himself. In the meanwhile, Bag End had been set in order, and Merry and Pippin came over from Crick Hollow, bringing back all the old furniture and gear, so that the old hole soon looked very much as it always had done. When all was at last ready, Frodo said, "'When are you going to move in and join me, Sam?' Sam looked a bit awkward. "'There's no need to come yet, if you don't want to,' said Frodo. "'but you know the gaffer's close at hand, "'and he'll be very well looked after by Widow Rumble.' "'It's not that, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam, "'and he went very red. "'Well, what is it?' "'It's Rosie, Rose Cotton,' said Sam. "'It seems she didn't like my going abroad at all, poor lass, 
but as I hadn't spoken, she couldn't say so, and I didn't speak because I had a job to do first. But now I've spoken, and she says, Well, you've wasted a year, so why wait longer? Wasted, I says. I wouldn't call it that. Still I see what she means. I feel torn in two, as you might say. I see, said Frodo. You want to get married, and yet you want to live with me in Bag End too. But, my dear Sam, how easy. Get married as soon as you can, and then move in with Rosie. There's room enough in Bag End for as big a family as you could wish for. And so it was settled. Sam Gamgee married Rose Cotton in the spring of 1420, which was also famous for its weddings, and they came and lived at Bag End. And if Sam thought himself lucky, Frodo knew that he was more lucky himself, for there was not a hobbit in the shire that was looked after with such care. When the labours of repair had all been planned and set going, he took to a quiet life, writing a great deal and going through all his notes. He resigned the office of deputy mayor at the free fair that midsummer, and dear old Will Whitfoot had another seven years of presiding at banquets. Merry and Pippin lived together for some time at Crick Hollow, and there was much coming and going between Buckland and Bag End. The two young travellers cut a great dash in the shire, with their songs and their tales and their finery, and their wonderful parties. Lordly, folk called them, meaning nothing but good, for it warmed all hearts to see them go riding by with their mail shirts so bright and their shields so splendid, laughing and singing songs afar away. And if they were now large and magnificent, they were unchanged otherwise, unless they were indeed more fair-spoken and more jovial and full of merriment than ever before. Frodo and Sam, however, went back to ordinary attire, except that when there was need they both wore long grey cloaks, finely woven and clasped at the throat with beautiful brooches, and Mr. Frodo wore always a white jewel on a chain that he often would finger. All things now went well, with hope always of becoming still better, and Sam was as busy and as full of delight as even a hobbit could wish. Nothing for him marred the whole year, except for some vague anxiety about his master. Frodo dropped quietly out of all the doings of the Shire, and Sam was pained to notice how little honour he had in his own country. Few people knew or wanted to know about his deeds and adventures, their admiration and respect were given mostly to Mr. Meriardock and Mr. Peregrine, and, if Sam had known it, to himself. Also in the autumn there appeared a shadow of old troubles. One evening Sam came into the study and found his master looking very strange. He was very pale, and his eyes seemed to see things far away. "'What's the matter, Mr. Frodo?' said Sam. I'm wounded, he answered. Wounded. It will never really heal. But then he got up, and the turn seemed to pass, and he was quite himself the next day. It was not until afterwards that Sam recalled that the date was October the 6th. Two years before on that day, it was dark in the dell under Weathertop. Time went on, and 1421 came in. Frodo was ill again in March, 
but with a great effort he concealed it, for Sam had other things to think about. The first of Sam and Rosie's children was born on the 25th of March, a date that Sam noted. "'Well, Mr. Frodo,' he said, "'I'm in a bit of a fix. Rose and me had settled to call him Frodo, with your leave, but it's not him, it's her, though as pretty a maid-child as any one could hope for, taking after Rose more than me, luckily. So we don't know what to do.' "'Well, Sam,' said Frodo, "'what's wrong with the old customs? "'Choose a flower name like Rose. "'Half the maid children in the Shire are called by such names, "'and what could be better?' "'I suppose you're right, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam. "'I've heard some beautiful names on my travels, "'but I suppose they're a bit too grand for daily wear and tear, as you might say. "'The gaffer, he says, make it short.' "'and then you won't have to cut it short before you can use it. "'But if it's to be a flower name, then I don't trouble about the length. "'It must be a beautiful flower, because, you see, I think she's very beautiful "'and is going to be beautifuler still.' "'Frodo thought for a moment. "'Well, Sam, what about Eleanor, the sun-star? "'You remember the little golden flower in the grass of Lothlorien?' "'You're right again, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam, delighted. "'That's what I wanted.' Little Eleanor was nearly six months old, and 1421 had passed to its autumn when Frodo called Sam into the study. "'It'll be Bilbo's birthday on Thursday, Sam,' he said, "'and he'll pass the old toque. "'He'll be a hundred and thirty-one. "'So he will,' said Sam. "'He's a marvel.' "'Well, Sam,' said Frodo, "'I want you to see Rose and find out if she can spare you "'so that you and I can go off together. "'You can't go far, or for a long time now, of course,' "'he said a little wistfully. "'Well, not very well, Mr. Frodo. "'Of course not. "'But never mind. "'You can see me on my way. "'Tell Rose that you won't be away very long, "'not more than a fortnight.' "'and you'll come back quite safe.' "'I wish I could go all the way with you to Rivendell, Mr. Frodo, "'and see Mr. Bilbo,' said Sam. "'And yet the only place I really want to be in is here. "'I am that torn in too.' "'Poor Sam. "'It will feel like that, I'm afraid,' said Frodo. "'But you'll be healed. "'You were meant to be solid and whole, and you will be.' In the next day or two, Frodo went through his papers and his writings with Sam, and he handed over his keys. There was a big book with plain red leather covers. Its tall pages were now almost filled. At the beginning, there were many leaves covered with Bilbo's thin, wandering hand, but most of it was written in Frodo's firm, flowing script. It was divided into chapters, but chapter 80 was unfinished and after that were some blank leaves. The title page had many titles on it, crossed out one after another, so My Diary, My Unexpected Journey, There and Back Again, and What Happened After, Adventures of Five Hobbits, The Tale of the Great Ring, compiled by Bilbo Baggins from his own observations and the accounts of his friends. What we did in the War of the Ring. Here Bilbo's hand ended, and Frodo had written, 
the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the King, as seen by the little people, being the memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo of the Shire, supplemented by the accounts of their friends and the learning of the wise, together with extracts from books of law translated by Bilbo in Rivendell. Why, you've nearly finished it, Mr. Frodo, Sam exclaimed. Well, you have kept at it, I must say. I have quite finished, Sam, said Frodo. The last pages are for you. On September the 21st they set out together, Frodo on the pony that had borne him all the way from Minas Tirith, and was now called Strider, and Sam on his beloved Bill. It was a fair golden morning, and Sam did not ask where they were going. He thought he could guess. They took the stock road over the hills and went towards the woody end, and they let their ponies walk at their leisure. They camped in the green hills, and on September the 22nd they rode gently down into the beginning of the trees as afternoon was wearing away. "'If that isn't the very tree you hid behind when the Black Rider first showed up, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam, pointing to the left, "'it seems like a dream now.' It was evening, and the stars were glimmering in the eastern sky as they passed the ruined oak and turned and went on down the hill between the hazel thickets. Sam was silent, deep in his memories. Presently he became aware that Frodo was singing softly to himself, singing the old walking song, but the words were not quite the same. Still round the corner there may wait A new road or a secret gate, And though I oft have passed them by, A day will come at last when I Shall take the hidden paths that run West of the moon, east of the sun. And, as if in answer, From down below, coming up the road out of the valley, Voices sang, O Elbereth Gilfogdiel, Si livren pena miriel, Omenel agla elenas, Gilfogdiel, A Elbereth, We still remember we who dwell, in this far land beneath the trees, the starlight on the western seas. Frodo and Sam halted and sat silent in the soft shadows until they saw a shimmer as the travellers came towards them. There was Gildor and many fair elven folk and there, to Sam's wonder, rode Elrond and Galadriel. Elrond wore a mantle of grey, and had a star upon his forehead, and a silver harp was in his hand, and upon his finger was a ring of gold with a great blue stone, Velia, mightiest of the three. But Galadriel sat upon a white palfrey, and was robed all in glimmering white, like clouds about the moon, for she herself seemed to shine with a soft light. On her finger was Nenya, the ring wrought of Mithril, that bore a single white stone flickering like a frosty star. 
riding slowly behind on a small grey pony, and seeming to nod in his sleep, was Bilbo himself. Elrond greeted them gravely and graciously, and Galadriel smiled upon them. "'Well, Master Samwise,' she said, "'I hear and see that you have used my gift well. "'The Shire shall now be more than ever blessed and beloved.' Sam bowed, but found nothing to say. He had forgotten how beautiful the lady was. Then Bilbo woke up and opened his eyes. "'Hullo, Frodo,' he said. "'Well, I've passed the old took today, so that's settled, "'and now I think I'm quite ready to go on another journey. "'Are you coming?' "'Yes, I'm coming,' said Frodo. "'The ring-bearers should go together.' "'Where are you going, master?' cried Sam, "'though at last he understood what was happening. "'To the havens, Sam,' said Frodo. "'And I can't come?' "'No, Sam, not yet anyway, not further than the havens. "'Though you too were a ring-bearer, if only for a little while, "'your time may come. "'Don't be too sad, Sam. "'You can't be always torn in two. "'You'll have to be one and whole for many years. "'You've so much to enjoy and to be and to do.' "'But,' said Sam, and tears started in his eyes, "'I thought you were going to enjoy the Shire, too, for years and years, after all you've done.' "'So I thought, too, once. "'But I've been too deeply hurt, Sam. "'I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved. "'But not for me. "'It must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger. "'Someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them.' "'But you're my heir. "'All that I had and might have had I leave to you. "'And also you have Rose and Eleanor. "'And Frodo lad will come, and Rosy Lass, and Merry, "'and Goldilocks, and Pippin, and perhaps more that I cannot see. "'Your hands and your wits will be needed everywhere. "'You will be the mayor, of course, as long as you want to be. "'and the most famous gardener in history, "'and you will read things out of the Red Book "'and keep alive the memory of the age that is gone, "'so that people will remember the great danger "'and so love their beloved land all the more. "'And that will keep you as busy and as happy as anyone can be, "'as long as your part of the story goes on. "'Come now, ride with me.' Then Elrond and Galadriel rode on, for the third age was over, and the days of the rings were past, and an end was come of the story and song of those times. With them went many elves of the high kindred who would no longer stay in Middle-earth, and among them, filled with a sadness that was yet blessed and without bitterness, rode Sam and Frodo and Bilbo, and the elves delighted to honour them. Though they rode through the midst of the Shire all the evening and all the night, none saw them pass, save the wild creatures, or here and there some wanderer in the dark, who saw a swift shimmer under the trees, or a light and shadow flowing through the grass as the moon went westward. And when they had passed from the Shire, going about the south skirts of the White Downs, 
they came to the far downs and to the towers and looked on the distant sea and so they rode down at last to Mithlond to the grey havens and the long firth of Loon. As they came to the gates Cierdan the shipwright came forth to greet them. Very tall he was and his beard was long and he was grey and old save that his eyes were keen as stars and he looked at them and bowed and said All is now ready. Then Cierdan led them to the havens and there was a white ship lying and upon the quay beside a great grey horse stood a figure robed all in white awaiting them. As he turned and came towards them Frodo saw that Gandalf now wore openly upon his hand the third ring, Narya the Great, and the stone upon it was red as far. Then those who were to go were glad, for they knew that Gandalf also would take ship with them. But Sam was now sorrowful at heart, and it seemed to him that if the parting would be bitter, more grievous still would be the long road home alone. But even as they stood there, and the elves were going aboard, and all was being made ready to depart, up rode Merry and Pippin in great haste, and amid his tears Pippin laughed. "'You tried to give us the slip once before and failed, Frodo,' he said. "'This time you've nearly succeeded, but you have failed again. It was not Sam, though, that gave you away this time, but Gandalf himself.' "'Yes,' said Gandalf, "'for it will be better to ride back three together than one alone. "'Well, here at last, dear friends, "'on the shores of the sea comes the end of our fellowship in Middle-earth. "'Go in peace. "'I will not say, do not weep, "'for not all tears are an evil.' Then Frodo kissed Merry and Pippin, and last of all Sam, and went aboard, and the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away down the long grey firth, and the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost, and the ship went out into the high sea and passed on into the west, until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air, and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that, as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the grey rain-curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. But to Sam the evening deepened to darkness as he stood on the haven, and as he looked at the grey sea, he saw only a shadow on the waters that was soon lost in the west. There still he stood far into the night, hearing only the sigh and murmur of the waves on the shores of Middle-earth, and the sound of them sank deep into his heart. Beside him stood Merry and Pippin, and they were silent. At last the three companions turned away, and never again looking back, they rode slowly homewards, and they spoke no word to one another until they came back to the shire, 
that each had great comfort in his friends on the long grey road. At last they rode over the downs and took the east road, and then Merry and Pippin rode on to Buckland, and already they were singing again as they went. But Sam turned to Bywater, and so came back up the hill as day was ending once more. And he went on, and there was yellow light and fire within, and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected, and Rose drew him in, and set him in his chair, and put little Eleanor upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said. The End You've been listening to The Return of the King, the third and final book of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, narrated by Robert Inglis. In the authorised version of The Lord of the Rings, from which this recording has been made, the author prefaced the story with a long essay concerning hobbits, the Shire and its government, and the original Shire sources and records in which this story was first recorded. 1. Concerning Hobbits This book is largely concerned with hobbits, and from its pages a reader may discover much of their character and a little of their history. Further information will also be found in the selection from the Red Book of Westmarch that has already been published under the title of The Hobbit. That story was derived from the earlier chapters of the Red Book, composed by Bilbo himself, the first hobbit to become famous in the world at large, and called by him there and back again, since they told of his journey into the east and his return, an adventure which later involved all the hobbits and the great events of that age that are here related. Many, however, may wish to know more about this remarkable people from the outset, while some may not possess the earlier book. For such readers, a few notes on the more important points are here collected from Hobbit lore, and the first adventure is briefly recalled. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people, more numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favourite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water-mill, or a hand-loom, though they were skilful with tools. Even in ancient days they were, as a rule, shy of the big folk, as they call us, and now they avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. They are quick of hearing and sharp-eyed, and though they are inclined to be fat and do not hurry unnecessarily, they are none the less nimble and deft in their movements. They possessed from the first the art of disappearing swiftly and silently, when large folk whom they do not wish to meet come blundering by, and this art they have developed until to men it may seem magical. But hobbits have never, in fact, studied magic of any kind, and their elusiveness is due solely to a professional skill that heredity and practice, and a close friendship with the earth, 
have rendered inimitable by bigger and clumsier races. For they are a little people, smaller than dwarves, less stout and stocky, that is, even when they are not actually much shorter. Their height is variable, ranging from between two and four feet of our measure. They seldom now reach three feet, but they have dwindled, they say, and in ancient days they were taller. According to the Red Book, Bandobras Tuk, Bullroarer, son of Isengrim II, was four foot five and able to ride a horse. He was surpassed in all Hobbit records only by two famous characters of old, but that curious matter is dealt with in this book. As for the Hobbits of the Shire, with whom these tales are concerned, in the days of their peace and prosperity they were a merry folk. They dressed in bright colours, being notably fond of yellow and green, but they seldom wore shoes, since their feet had tough, leathery soles and were clad in a thick, curling hair, much like the hair of their heads, which was commonly brown. Thus the only craft little practised among them was shoemaking, for they had long and skilful fingers and could make many other useful and comely things. Their faces were as a rule good-natured rather than beautiful, broad, bright-eyed, red-cheeked, with mouths apt to laughter and to eating and drinking. And laugh they did, and eat, and drink, often and heartily, being fond of simple jests at all times, and of six meals a day when they could get them. They were hospitable and delighted in parties and in presents which they gave away freely and eagerly accepted. It is plain indeed that in spite of later estrangement hobbits are relatives of ours, far nearer to us than elves or even than dwarves. Of old they spoke the languages of men after their own fashion and liked and disliked much the same things as men did. But what exactly our relationship is can no longer be discovered. The beginning of hobbits lies far back in the elder days that are now lost and forgotten. Only the elves still preserve any records of that vanished time, and their traditions are concerned almost entirely with their own history, in which men appear seldom and hobbits are not mentioned at all. Yet it is clear that hobbits had, in fact, lived quietly in Middle-earth for many long years before other folk became even aware of them. And the world, being after all full of strange creatures beyond count, these little people seemed of very little importance. But in the days of Bilbo and of Frodo his heir, they suddenly became, by no wish of their own, both important and renowned, and troubled the counsels of the wise and the great. Those days, the third age of Middle-earth, are now long past, and the shape of all lands has been changed. But the regions in which hobbits then lived were doubtless the same as those in which they still linger, the northwest of the old world, east of the sea. Of their original home the hobbits in Bilbo's time preserved no knowledge. A love of learning, other than genealogical lore, was far from general among them. But there remained still a few in the older families who studied their own books and even gathered reports of old times and distant lands from elves, dwarves, and men. Their own records began only after the settlement of the Shah, and their most ancient legends hardly looked further back than their wandering days.
it is clear nonetheless from these legends, and from the evidence of their peculiar words and customs, that like many other folk, hobbits had in the distant past moved westward. Their earliest tales seemed to glimpse a time when they dwelt in the upper vales of Anduin, between the eaves of Greenwood the Great and the Misty Mountains. Why they later undertook the hard and perilous crossing of the mountains into Eriador is no longer certain. Their own accounts speak of the multiplying of men in the land, and of a shadow that fell on the forest, so that it became darkened, and its new name was Mirkwood. Before the crossing of the mountains, the hobbits had already become divided into three somewhat different breeds, Harfoots, Stoors, and Fallowhides. The Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller and shorter, and they were beardless and bootless. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. The Stoors were broader, heavier in build, their feet and hands were larger, and they preferred flat lands and riversides. The fallow hides were fairer of skin and also of hair, and they were taller and slimmer than the others. They were lovers of trees and of woodlands. The Harfoots had much to do with dwarves in ancient times, and long lived in the foothills of the mountains. They moved westward early, and roamed over Eriador, as far as Weathertop, while the others were still in Wilderland. They were the most normal and representative variety of Hobbit, and far the most numerous. They were the most inclined to settle in one place, and longest preserved their ancestral habit of living in tunnels and homes. The Stoors lingered long by the banks of the great river Anduin, and were less shy of men. They came west after the Harfoots, and followed the course of the Loudwater southwards, and there many of them long dwelt between Tharbad and the borders of Dunland before they moved north again. The Fallowhides, the least numerous, were a northerly branch. They were more friendly with elves than the other hobbits were, and had more skill in language and song than in handicrafts, and of old they preferred hunting to tilling. They crossed the mountains north of Rivendell and came down the river Horwell. In Eriador, they soon mingled with the other kinds that had preceded them, but being somewhat bolder and more adventurous, they were often found as leaders or chieftains among clans of Harfoots or Stores. Even in Bilbo's time the strong, fellow-hidish strain could still be noted among the greater families, such as the Tooks and the Masters of Buckland. In the westlands of Eriador, between the Misty Mountains and the Mountains of Loon, the hobbits found both men and elves. Indeed, a remnant still dwelt there of the Dúnedain, the kings of men that came over the sea out of Westerness. But they were dwindling fast, and the lands of their north kingdom were falling far and wide into waste. There was room and to spare for incomers, and ere long the hobbits began to settle in ordered communities. Most of their earlier settlements had long disappeared and had been forgotten in Bilbo's time, but one of the first to become important still endured, though reduced in size. This was at Bree, and in the Chetwood that lay round about, some forty miles east of the Shire. It was in these early days, doubtless, that the hobbits learned their letters and began to write after the matter of the Dúnedain. 
who had in their turn long before learned the art from the elves. And in those days also they forgot whatever languages they had used before, and spoke ever after the common speech, the Westron, as it was named, that was current through all the lands of the kings from Arnor to Gondor, and about all the coasts of the sea from Belfalas to Loon. Yet they kept a few words of their own, as well as their own names of months and days, and a great store of personal names out of the past. About this time, legend among the hobbits first becomes history with a reckoning of years, for it was in the one thousand six hundred and first year of the Third Age that the Fallowhide brothers, Marco and Blanco, set out from Bree, and having obtained permission from the High King at Fornost, they crossed the brown river Baranduin with a great following of hobbits. They passed over the bridge of Stonebows, that had been built in the days of the power of the North Kingdom, and they took all the land beyond to dwell in, between the river and the far downs. All that was demanded of them was that they should keep the great bridge in repair, and all other bridges and roads, speed the king's messengers, and acknowledge his lordship. Thus began the Shire Reckoning, for the year of the crossing of the Brandywine, as the hobbits turned the name, became year one of the Shire, and all later dates were reckoned from it. At once the western hobbits fell in love with their new land, and they remained there, and soon passed once more out of the history of men and of elves. While there was still a king, they were in name his subjects, but they were, in fact, ruled by their own chieftains, and meddled not at all with events in the world outside. To the last battle of Fornost, with the witch-lord of Angmar, they sent some bowmen to the aid of the king, or so they maintained, though no tales of men record it. But in that war the North Kingdom ended. And then the hobbits took the land for their own, and they chose from their own chiefs a thane to hold the authority of the king that was gone. There for a thousand years they were little troubled by wars, and they prospered and multiplied after the dark plague, Shire Reckoning 37, until the disaster of the long winter and the famine that followed it. Many thousands then perished, but the days of dearth, 1158 to 1160, were at the time of this tale long past, and the hobbits had again become accustomed to plenty. The land was rich and kindly, and though it had long been deserted when they entered it, it had before been well tilled, and there the king had once had many farms, cornlands, vineyards, and woods. Forty leagues it stretched from the far downs to the Brandywine Bridge, and fifty from the northern moors to the marshes in the south. The hobbits named it the Shire, as the region of the authority of their thane, and a district of well-ordered business. And there, in that pleasant corner of the world, they plied their well-ordered business of living, and they heeded less and less the world outside where dark things moved, until they came to think that peace and plenty were the rule in Middle-earth, and the right of all sensible folk. They forgot or ignored what little they had ever known of the guardians, and of the labours of those that made possible the long peace of the Shah. They were, in fact, sheltered, but they had ceased to remember it. At no time had hobbits of any kind been warlike, 
and they had never fought among themselves. In olden days they had, of course, been often obliged to fight to maintain themselves in a hard world, but in Bilbo's time that was very ancient history. The last battle before this story opens, and indeed the only one that had ever been fought within the borders of the Shire, was beyond living memory. The Battle of Greenfields, Shire Reckoning 1147, in which Bandobras took, routed an invasion of orcs. Even the weathers had grown milder, and the wolves that had once come ravening out of the north in bitter white winters were now only a grandfather's tale. So, though there was still some store of weapons in the Shire, these were used mostly as trophies, hanging above hearths or on walls, or gathered into the museum at Mickledelving. The Matham House, it was called, for anything that hobbits had no immediate use for, but were unwilling to throw away, they called a Matham. Their dwellings were apt to become rather crowded with Mathams, and many of the presents that passed from hand to hand were of that sort. Nonetheless, ease and peace had left this people still curiously tough. They were, if it came to it, difficult to daunt or to kill, and they were, perhaps, so unwearyingly fond of good things, not least because they could, when put to it, do without them, and could survive rough handling by grief, foe, or weather, in a way that astonished those who did not know them well, and looked no further than their bellies and their well-fed faces. Though slow to quarrel, and for sport killing nothing that lived, they were doughty at bay, and at need could still handle arms. They shot well with a bow, for they were keen-eyed and sure at the mark. Not only with bows and arrows, if any hobbit stooped for a stone, it was well to get quickly under cover, as all trespassing beasts knew very well. All hobbits had originally lived in holes in the ground, or so they believed, and in such dwellings they still felt most at home. But in the course of time they had been obliged to adopt other forms of abode. Actually in the Shire in Bilbo's days it was, as a rule, only the richest and the poorest hobbits that maintained the old custom. The poorest went on living in burrows of the most primitive kind, mere holes indeed, with only one window or none, while the well-to-do still constructed more luxurious versions of the simple diggings of old. But suitable sites for these large and ramifying tunnels, or smiles as they called them, were not everywhere to be found. And in the flats and the low-lying districts the hobbits, as they multiplied, began to build above ground. Indeed, even in the hilly regions and the older villages, such as Hobbiton or Tuckborough, or in the chief township of the Shire, Mickle Delving on the White Downs, there were now many houses of wood, brick, or stone. These were specially favoured by millers, smiths, ropers, and cartwrights, and others of that sort, for even when they had holes to live in, hobbits had long been accustomed to build sheds and workshops. The habit of building farmhouses and barns was said to have begun among the inhabitants of the marish down by the Brandywine. The hobbits of that quarter, the East Farthing were rather large and heavy-legged, and they wore dwarf boots in muddy weather. But they were well known to be stores in a large part of their blood, 
as indeed was shown by the down that many grew on their chins. No half-foot or fallow-hide had any trace of a beard. Indeed, the folk of the Marish and of Buckland, east of the river, which they afterwards occupied, came for the most part later into the Shire up from Southaway, and they still had many peculiar names and strange words not found elsewhere in the Shire. It is probable that the craft of building, as many other crafts beside, was derived from the Dunedain. But the hobbits may have learned it direct from the elves, the teachers of men in their youth. For the elves of the high kindred had not yet forsaken Middle-earth, and they dwelt still at that time at the grey havens away to the west, and in other places within reach of the Shah. Three elf-towers of immemorial age were still to be seen on the tower-hills beyond the western marches. They shone far off in the moonlight. The tallest was furthest away, standing alone upon a green mound. The hobbits of the west farthing said that one could see the sea from the top of that tower, but no hobbit had ever been known to climb it. Indeed, few hobbits had ever seen or sailed upon the sea and fewer still had ever returned to report it. Most hobbits regarded even rivers and small boats with deep misgivings, and not many of them could swim. And as the days of the Shire lengthened, they spoke less and less with the elves, and grew afraid of them, and distrustful of those that had dealings with them, and the sea became a word of fear among them, and a token of death, and they turned their faces away from the hills in the west." The craft of building may have come from elves or men, but the hobbits used it in their own fashion. They did not go in for towers. Their houses were usually long, low, and comfortable. The oldest kind were, indeed, no more than built imitations of smiles, thatched with dry grass or straw, or roofed with turves, and having walls somewhat bulged. That stage, however, belonged to the early days of the Shire, and Hobbit building had long since been altered, improved by devices, learned from dwarves, or discovered by themselves. A preference for round windows, and even round doors, was the chief remaining peculiarity of Hobbit architecture. The houses and the holes of Shire Hobbits were often large, and inhabited by large families. Bilbo and Frodo Baggins were as bachelors very exceptional, as they were also in many other ways, such as their friendship with elves. Sometimes, as in the case of the Tooks of Great Smiles, or the Brandy Bucks of Brandy Hall, many generations of relatives lived in comparative peace together in one ancestral and many-tunnelled mansion. All hobbits were, in any case, clannish, and reckoned up their relationships with great care. They drew long and elaborate family trees with innumerable branches. In dealing with hobbits, it is important to remember who is related to whom, and in what degree. It would be impossible in this book to set out a family tree that included even the more important members of the more important families at the time which these tales tell of. The genealogical trees at the end of the Red Book of Westmarch are a small book in themselves, and all but hobbits would find them exceedingly dull. Hobbits delighted in such things, if they were accurate. They liked to have books 
filled with things that they already knew, set out fair and square with no contradictions. 2. Concerning Pipeweed There is another thing about the hobbits of old that must be mentioned an astonishing habit. They imbibed or inhaled, through pipes of clay or wood, the smoke of the burning leaves of a herb, which they called pipeweed or leaf, a variety probably of Nicotiana. A great deal of mystery surrounds the origin of this peculiar custom or art, as the hobbits preferred to call it. All that could be discovered about it in antiquity was put together by Meriadoc Brandybuck, later master of Buckland, and since he and the tobacco of the South Farthing play a part in the history that follows, his remarks in the introduction to his Herb Lore of the Shire may be quoted. This, he says, is the one art that we can certainly claim to be our own invention. When hobbits first began to smoke is not known. All the legends and family histories take it for granted. For ages folk in the Shire smoked various herbs, some fouler, some sweeter. But all accounts agree that Tob Old Hornblower of Longbottom in the South Farthing first grew the true pipeweed in his gardens in the days of Isengrim II, about the year 1070 of Shire Reckoning. The best homegrown still comes from that district, especially the varieties now known as Longbottom Leaf, Old Toby, and Southern Star. How Old Toby came by the plant is not recorded, for to his dying day he would not tell. He knew much about herbs, but he was no traveller. It is said that in his youth he went often to Bree, though he certainly never went further from the Shire than that. It is thus quite possible that he learned of this plant in Bree, where now, at any rate, it grows well on the south slopes of the hill. The Bree hobbits claim to have been the first actual smokers of the pipeweed. They claim, of course, to have done everything before the people of the Shire, whom they referred to as colonists. But in this case their claim is, I think, likely to be true. And certainly it was from Bree that the art of smoking the genuine weed spread in the recent centuries among dwarves and such other folk, rangers, wizards or wanderers, as still passed to and fro through the ancient road meeting. The home and centre of the art is thus to be found in the old inn of Bree, the prancing pony that has been kept by the family of Butterbur from time beyond record. All the same, observations that I have made on my own many journeys south have convinced me that the weed itself is not native to our part of the world, but came northward from the lower Andwin, whither it was, I suspect, originally brought over sea by the men of Westerness. It grows abundantly in Gondor, and there is richer and larger than in the north, where it is never found wild, and flourishes only in warm, sheltered places like Longbottom. The men of Gondor call it sweet galenas, and esteem it only for the fragrance of its flowers. From that land it must have been carried up the greenway during the long centuries between the coming of Elendil and our own days. But even the Dunedain of Gondor allow us this credit. Hobbits first put it into pipes. 
Not even the wizards first thought of that before we did. The one wizard that I knew took up the art long ago and became as skilful in it as in all other things that he put his mind to. 3. Of the Ordering of the Shah The Shah was divided into four quarters, the farthings already referred to, north, south, east and west, and these again each into a number of folklands, which still bore the names of some of the old leading families, although by the time of this history these names were no longer found only in their proper folklands. Nearly all Tuks still lived in the Tukland, but that was not true of many other families, such as the Bagginses or the Boffins. Outside the Farthings were the East and West Marches, the Buckland, and the West March added to the Shire in Shire Reckoning 1462. The Shire at this time had hardly any government. Families, for the most part, managed their own affairs. Growing food and eating it occupied most of their time. In other matters they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but contented and moderate, so that estates, farms, workshops, and small trades tended to remain unchanged for generations. There remained, of course, the ancient tradition concerning the High King at Fornost, or Norbury, as they called it, away north of the Shah. But there had been no king for nearly a thousand years, and even the ruins of King's Norbury were covered with grass. Yet the hobbits still said of wild folk and wicked things, such as trolls, that they had not heard of the king, for they attributed to the king of old all their essential laws, and usually they kept the laws of free will, because they were the rules, as they said, both ancient and just. It is true that the Took family had long been pre-eminent, for the office of Thane had passed to them, from the old bucks, some centuries before, and the chief Took had borne that title ever since. The Thane was the master of the Shire Moot, and captain of the Shire Muster, and the Hobbitry in Arms, but as Muster and Moot were only held in times of emergency, which no longer occurred, the Thaneship had ceased to be more than a nominal dignity. The Took family was still, indeed, accorded a special respect, for it remained both numerous and exceedingly wealthy, and was liable to produce in every generation strong characters of peculiar habits and even adventurous temperament. The latter qualities, however, were now rather tolerated in the rich than generally approved. The custom endured, nonetheless, of referring to the head of the family as the Took, and of adding to his name, if required, a number, such as Eisengrim II, for instance. The only real official in the Shire at this date was the mayor of Mickledelving, or of the Shire, who was elected every seven years at the free fair on the White Downs at the Lythe, that is at midsummer. As mayor, almost his only duty was to preside at banquets, given on the Shire holidays, which occurred at frequent intervals. But the offices of postmaster and first sheriff were attached to the mayoralty, so that he managed both the messenger service and the watch. These were the only Shire services, and the messengers were the most numerous, and much the busier of the two. 
By no means all hobbits were lettered, but those who were wrote constantly to all their friends, and a selection of their relations, who lived further off than an afternoon's walk. The sheriffs was the name that the hobbits gave to their police, or the nearest equivalent that they possessed. They had, of course, no uniforms, such things being quite unknown, only a feather in their caps, and they were in practice rather haywards than policemen, more concerned with a straying of beasts than of people. There were in all the shire only twelve of them, three in each farthing, for inside work. A rather larger body, varying at need, was employed to beat the bounds, and to see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. At the time when this story begins, the bounders, as they were called, had been greatly increased. There were many reports and complaints of strange persons and creatures prowling about the borders or over them. The first sign that all was not quite as it should be, and always had been, except in tales and legends of long ago. Few heeded the sign, and not even Bilbo yet had any notion of what it portended. Sixty years had passed since he set out on his memorable journey, and he was old even for hobbits, who reached a hundred as often as not. But much evidently still remained of the considerable wealth that he had brought back. How much or how little he revealed to no one, not even to Frodo, his favourite nephew, and he still kept secret the ring that he had found. 4. Of the Finding of the Ring As is told in The Hobbit, there came one day to Bilbo's door the great wizard Gandalf the Grey, and thirteen dwarves with him, none other, indeed, than Thorin Oakenshield, descendant of kings, and his twelve companions in exile. With them he set out, to his own lasting astonishment, on a morning of April, it being then the year 1341, Shire Reckoning, on a quest of great treasure, the dwarf hordes of the kings under the mountain, beneath Erebor in Dale, far off in the east. The quest was successful, and the dragon that guarded the horde was destroyed. Yet, though before all was won, the battle of five armies was fought, and Thorin was slain, and many deeds of renown were done, the matter would scarcely have concerned later history, or earned more than a note in the long annals of the Third Age, but for an accident by the way. The party was assailed by orcs in a high pass of the misty mountains as they went towards Wilderland, and so it happened that Bilbo was lost for a while in the black orc mines deep under the mountains, and there, as he groped in vain in the dark, he put his hand on a ring, lying on the floor of a tunnel. He put it in his pocket. It seemed then like mere luck. Trying to find his way out, Bilbo went on down to the roots of the mountains, until he could go no further. At the bottom of the tunnel lay a cold lake far from the light, and on an island of rock in the water lived Gollum. He was a loathsome little creature. He paddled a small boat with his large flat feet, peering with pale luminous eyes and catching blind fish with long fingers and eating them raw. He ate any living thing, even orc, if he could catch it and strangle it without a struggle. 
he possessed a secret treasure that had come to him long ages ago when he lived still in the light, a ring of gold that made its wearer invisible. It was the one thing he loved, his precious, and he talked to it, even when it was not with him. For he kept it hidden safe in a hole on his island, except when he was hunting or spying on the orcs of the mines. Maybe he would have attacked Bilbo at once, if the ring had been on him when they met. But it was not, and the hobbit held in his hand an elvish knife, which served him as a sword. So to gain time, Gollum challenged Bilbo to the riddle game, saying that if he asked a riddle which Bilbo could not guess, then he would kill him and eat him. But if Bilbo defeated him, then he would do as Bilbo wished. He would lead him to a way out of the tunnels. Since he was lost in the dark without hope, and could neither go on nor back, Bilbo accepted the challenge. And they asked one another many riddles. In the end, Bilbo won the game, more by luck, as it seemed, than by wits. For he was stumped at last for a riddle to ask, and cried out, as his hand came upon the ring he had picked up and forgotten, "'What have I got in my pocket?' This Gollum failed to answer, though he demanded three guesses. The authorities, it is true, differ whether this last question was a mere question and not a riddle, according to the strict rules of the game. But all agree that, after accepting it and trying to guess the answer, Gollum was bound by his promise. And Bilbo pressed him to keep his word, for the thought came to him that this slimy creature might prove false even though such promises were held sacred, and of old all but the wickedest things feared to break them. But after ages alone in the dark, Gollum's heart was black, and treachery was in it. He slipped away, and returned to his island, of which Bilbo knew nothing, not far off in the dark water. There, he thought, lay his ring. He was hungry now, and angry and once his precious was with him, he would not fear any weapon at all. But the ring was not on the island. He had lost it. It was gone. His screech sent a shiver down Bilbo's back, though he did not yet understand what had happened. But Gollum had at last leaped to a guess. Too late. "'What has it got in its pockets?' he cried. The light in his eyes was like a green flame as he sped back to murder the hobbit and recover his precious. Just in time Bilbo saw his peril, and he fled blindly up the passage away from the water, and once more he was saved by his luck. For as he ran he put his hand in his pocket, and the ring slipped quietly onto his finger. So it was that Gollum passed him without seeing him, and went on to guard the way out, lest the thief should escape. Warily Bilbo followed him, as he went along, cursing and talking to himself about his precious, from which talk at last even Bilbo guessed the truth, and hope came to him in the darkness. He himself had found the marvellous ring and a chance of escape from the orcs and from Gollum. At length they came to a halt, before an unseen opening that led to the lower gates of the mines on the eastward side of the mountains. There Gollum crouched at bay, smelling and listening, and Bilbo was tempted to slay him with his sword. But pity stayed him, and though he kept the ring, 
in which his only hope lay, he would not use it to help him kill the wretched creature at a disadvantage. In the end, gathering his courage, he leapt over Gollum in the dark, and fled away down the passage, pursued by his enemy's cries of hate and despair. Thief! Thief! Baggins, we hate it forever! Now it is a curious fact that this is not the story as Bilbo first told it to his companions. To them his account was that Gollum had promised to give him a present if he won the game. But when Gollum went to fetch it from his island, he found the treasure was gone, a magic ring which had been given to him long ago on his birthday. Bilbo guessed that this was the very ring that he had found, and as he had won the game, it was already his by right. But being in a tight place, he said nothing about it, and made Gollum show him the way out, as a reward instead of a present. This account Bilbo set down in his memoirs, and he seems never to have altered it himself, not even after the Council of Elrond. Evidently it still appeared in the original Red Book, as it did in several of the copies and abstracts, but many copies contain the true account as an alternative, derived no doubt from notes by Frodo or Samwise, both of whom learned the truth, though they seem to have been unwilling to delete anything actually written by the old hobbit himself. Gandalf, however, disbelieved Bilbo's first story as soon as he heard it, and he continued to be very curious about the ring. Eventually he got the true tale out of Bilbo after much questioning, which for a while strained their friendship, but the wizard seemed to think the truth important. Though he did not say so to Bilbo, he also thought it important and disturbing to find that the good hobbit had not told the truth from the first, quite contrary to his habit. The idea of a present was not mere hobbit-like invention, all the same. It was suggested to Bilbo, as he confessed, by Gollum's talk that he overheard. For Gollum did, in fact, call the ring his birthday present many times. That also Gandalf thought strange and suspicious, but he did not discover the truth in this point for many more years, as will be seen in this book. Of Bilbo's later adventures, little more need be said here. With the help of the ring, he escaped from the orc guards at the gate and rejoined his companions. He used the ring many times on his quest, chiefly for the help of his friends, but he kept it secret from them as long as he could. After his return to his home, he never spoke of it again to anyone save Gandalf and Frodo, and no one else in the Shah knew of its existence, or so he believed. Only to Frodo, did he show the account of his journey that he was writing. His sword, Sting, Bilbo hung over his fireplace, and his coat of marvellous mail, the gift of the dwarves from the dragon horde, he lent to a museum, to the mickle-delving Matham House, in fact. But he kept in a drawer at Bag End the old cloak and hood that he had worn on his travels, and the ring, secured by a fine chain, remained in his pocket. He returned to his home at Bag End on June the 22nd in his 52nd year, Shire Reckoning, 1342, 
and nothing very notable occurred in the shire until Mr. Baggins began the preparations for the celebration of his hundred and eleventh birthday, shire reckoning fourteen hundred and one. At this point this history began. Note on the shire records. At the end of the third age, the part played by the hobbits in the great events that led to the inclusion of the Shire in the reunited kingdom awakened among them a more widespread interest in their own history. And many of their traditions, up to that time still mainly oral, were collected and written down. The greater families were also concerned with events in the kingdom at large, and many of their members studied its ancient histories and legends. By the end of the first century of the Fourth Age, there were already to be found in the Shire several libraries that contained many historical books and records. The largest of these collections were probably at Undertowers, at Great Smiles, and at Brandy Hall. This account of the end of the Third Age is drawn mainly from the Red Book of Westmarch. That most important source for the history of the War of the Ring was so called because it was long preserved at Undertowers, the home of the Fairbairns, Wardens of the West March. It was in origin Bilbo's private diary, which he took with him to Rivendell. Frodo brought it back to the Shire, together with many loose leaves of notes, and during Shire Reckoning 1420-21, he nearly filled its pages with his account of the war. But annexed to it, and preserved with it, probably in a single red case, were the three large volumes, bound in red leather, that Bilbo gave to him as a parting gift. To these four volumes there was added in Westmarch a fifth containing commentaries, genealogies, and various other matter concerning the Hobbit members of the Fellowship. The original Red Book has not been preserved, but many copies were made, especially of the first volume, for the use of the descendants of the children of Master Samwise. The most important copy, however, has a different history. It was kept at Great Smiles, but it was written in Gondor, probably at the request of the great-grandson of Peregrine, and completed in Shire Reckoning 1592. Its southern scribe appended this note. Findegil, King's writer, finished this work in 4172. It is an exact copy in all details of the Thane's book in Minas Tirith. That book was a copy made at the request of King Elessar of the Red Book of Pirianath, and was brought to him by the Thane Peregrine when he retired to Gondor in 464. The Thane's book was thus the first copy made of the Red Book, and contained much that was later omitted or lost. In Minas Tirith it received much annotation, and many corrections, especially of names, words, and quotations in the Elvish languages, and there was added to it an abbreviated version of those parts of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen which lie outside the account of the war. The full tale is stated to have been written by Barahir, grandson of the steward Faramir, some time after the passing of the king. But the chief importance of Findigil's copy is that it alone contains the whole of Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. These three volumes were found to be a work of great skill and learning in which, between 1403 and 1418, 
He had used all the sources available to him in Rivendell, both living and written. But since they were little used by Frodo, being almost entirely concerned with the elder days, no more is said of them here. Since Mary Ardock and Peregrine became the heads of their great families, and at the same time kept up their connections with Rohan and Gondor, the libraries at Bucklebray and Tuckborough contained much that did not appear in the Red Book. In Brandy Hall there were many works dealing with Eriador and the history of Rohan. Some of these were composed or begun by Meriadoc himself, though in the Shah he was chiefly remembered for his herb-lore of the Shah and for his reckoning of years, in which he discussed the relation of the calendars of the Shah and Brie to those of Rivendell, Gondor, and Rohan. He also wrote a short treatise on old words and names in the Shah, showing special interest in discovering the kinship with the language of the Rohirrim of such shire words as Matham and old elements in place names. At great smiles, the books were of less interest to shire folk, though more important for larger history. None of them was written by Peregrine, but he and his successors collected many manuscripts written by scribes of Gondor mainly copies of summaries of histories or legends relating to Elendil and his heirs. Only here in the Shah were to be found extensive materials for the history of Numenor and the arising of Sauron. It was probably at great smiles that the tale of years was put together with the assistance of material collected by Meriadoc. Though the dates given are often conjectural, especially for the Second Age, they deserve attention. It is probable that Meriadoc obtained assistance and information from Rivendell, which he visited more than once. There, though Elrond had departed, his sons long remained, together with some of the high elven folk. It is said that Celeborn went to dwell there after the departure of Galadriel, but there is no record of the day when at last he sought the Grey Havens, and with him went the last living memory of the elder days in Middle-earth. The End This ends the author's note, marking the end of the recorded book's production of The Lord of the Rings Trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien, narrated in its entirety by Robert Inglis. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an appendix to The Lord of the Rings entitled The Annals of the Kings and Rulers. This book chronicles in detail the Numenorean kings, the House of Ale, and Durin's Folk. The chief purpose of this appendix is to further illuminate the War of the Ring, and it alludes to the legends of the First Age, including the creation of the Silmarilli, the Three Jewels, and the founding of the Realm of Numenor. The Annals of the Kings and Rulers is primarily concerned with the Second and Third Ages, the war against Zauron, the establishment by Elendil of the Numenorian realms in exile, Arnor and Gondor, the taking of the One Ring by Isildur, the history of the stewards of Gondor, and the destruction of the One Ring, which marks the end of the Third Age. Tolkien also recounts the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, the third and final union of the Eldar and the Edain, and their reign in the Fourth Age, which restored the branches of the Half-Elven. The Annals of the Kings and Rulers, also narrated by Robert Inglis, rounds out the saga of the rings.
the legends, histories, and lore to be found in the sources are very extensive. Only selections from them, in most places much abridged, are here presented. Their principal purpose is to illustrate the War of the Ring and its origins, and to fill up some of the gaps in the main story. The ancient legends of the First Age, in which Bilbo's chief interest lay, are very briefly referred to, since they concern the ancestry of Elrond and the Numenorean kings and chieftains. The dates given are those of the Third Age, unless they are quoted as Second Age or Fourth Age. The Third Age was held to have ended when the Three Rings passed away in September 3021, but for the purposes of records in Gondor, Fourth Age I began on March the 25th, 3,021. Part 1. The Numenorean Kings. Numenor. Feanor was the greatest of the Eldar in arts and law, but also the proudest and most self-willed. He wrought the three jewels, the Silmarilli, and filled them with the radiance of the two trees, Telperion and Laurelin, that gave light to the land of the Valar. The jewels were coveted by Morgoth, the enemy, who stole them and, after destroying the trees, took them to Middle-earth and guarded them in his great fortress of Thangorodrim. Against the will of the Valar, Feanor forsook the Blessed Realm and went in exile to Middle-earth, leading with him a great part of his people, for in his pride he purposed to recover the jewels from Morgoth by force. Thereafter followed the hopeless war of the Eldar and the Edain against Thangorodrim, in which they were at last utterly defeated. The Edain, Atani, were three peoples of men who, coming first to the west of Middle-earth and the shores of the Great Sea, became allies of the Eldar against the enemy. There were three unions of the Eldar and the Edain, Luthien and Beren, Idril and Tuor, Arwen and Aragorn. By the last, the long-sundered branches of the half-elven were reunited, and their line was restored. Luthien Tenuvil was the daughter of King Thingol, great cloak of Doriath in the First Age. But her mother was Malian, of the people of the Valar, Beren was the son of Barahir, of the first house of the Edain. Together they wrested a Silmaril from the Iron Crown of Morgoth. Luthien became mortal and was lost to elvenkind. Dior was her son. Elwing was his daughter and had in her keeping the Silmaril. Idril Celebrindel was the daughter of Turgon, king of the hidden city of Gondolin. Tuor was the son of Huor of the house of Hador, the third house of the Edain, and the most renowned in the wars with Morgoth. Earendil the Mariner was their son. Earendil wedded Elwing, and with the power of the Silmaril passed the shadows and came to the uttermost west, and speaking as ambassador of both elves and men, obtained the help by which Morgoth was overthrown. Earendil was not permitted to return to mortal lands, 
and his ship, bearing the Silmaril, was set to sail in the heavens as a star, and a sign of hope to the dwellers in Middle-earth, oppressed by the great enemy or his servants. The Silmarilli alone preserved the ancient light of the two trees of Valinor before Morgoth poisoned them, but the other two were lost at the end of the First Age. Of these things the full tale, and much else concerning elves and men, is told in the Silmarillion. The sons of Iarendil were Elros and Elrond, the Perithil, or half-elven. In them alone the line of the heroic chieftains of the Edain in the First Age was preserved, and after the fall of Gilgalad the lineage of the high elven kings was also in Middle-earth only represented by their descendants. At the end of the First Age the Valar gave to the half-elven an irrevocable choice to which kindred they would belong. Elrond chose to be of elven kind, and became a master of wisdom. To him, therefore, was granted the same grace as to those of the high elves that still lingered in Middle-earth, that when weary at last of the mortal lands they could take ship from the grey havens and pass into the uttermost west, and this grace continued after the change of the world. But to the children of Elrond a choice was also appointed, to pass with him from the circles of the world, or, if they remained, to become mortal and die in Middle-earth. For Elrond, therefore, all chances of the War of the Ring were fraught with sorrow. Elros chose to be of mankind and remain with the Adain, but a great lifespan was granted to him many times that of lesser men. As a reward for their sufferings and the cause against Morgoth, the Valar, the guardians of the world, granted to the Adain a land to dwell in, removed from the dangers of Middle-earth. Most of them, therefore, set sail over sea, and guided by the star of Yarendil, came to the great Isle of Elena, westernmost of all mortal lands. There they founded the realm of Numenor, there was a tall mountain in the midst of the land, the Meneltama, and from its summit the far-sighted could descry the white tower of the haven of the Eldar in Eresea. Thence the Eldar came to the Adain, and enriched them with knowledge and many gifts, but one command had been laid upon the Numenorians, the Ban of the Valar. They were forbidden to sail west out of sight of their own shores, or to attempt to set foot on the undying lands. For though a long span of life had been granted to them, in the beginning thrice that of lesser men, they must remain mortal, since the Valar were not permitted to take from them the gift of men, or the doom of men, as it was afterwards called. Elros was the first king of Numenor, and was afterwards known by the high elven name Tar-Miniator. His descendants were long-lived but mortal. Later, when they became powerful, they begrudged the choice of their forefather, desiring the immortality within the life of the world that was the fate of the Eldar, and murmuring against the ban. In this way began their rebellion, which, under the evil teaching of Sauron, brought about the downfall of Numenor and the ruin of the ancient world, as is told in the Archalabith. These are the names of the kings and queens of Numenor. 
Elrostaminator, Vardamir, Tar Amandil, Tar Elednil, Tar Meneldor, Tar Aldarion, Tar Ankalime, the first ruling queen, Tar Anarion, Tar Surion, Tar Telperien, the second queen, Tar Minastir, Tar Kiryatan, Tar Atanamir the Great, Tar Ankalimon, Tar Telemaite, Tar Vanimelde, the third queen, Tar Alcarin, Tar Kalmakil. After Kalmakil, the kings took the scepter in names of the Numenorian or Adonaic tongue. Ar Adunachor, Ar Zimrathon, Ar Sakalthor, Ar Gimilzor, Ar Inziladun. Inziladun repented of the ways of the kings and changed his name to Tar Palantir, the far sighted. His daughter should have been the fourth queen, Tar Miriel, but the king's nephew usurped the scepter and became Artharazon the golden, last king of the Numenorians. In the days of Taralendil, the first ships of the Numenorians came back to Middle-earth. His elder child was a daughter, Silmarian. Her son was Valandil, first of the lords of Andunie in the west of the land, renowned for their friendship with the Eldar. From him were descended Amandil, the last lord, and his son Elendil the Tall. The sixth king left only one child, a daughter. She became the first queen, for it was then made a lord of the royal house that the eldest child of the king, whether man or woman, should receive the sceptre. The realm of Numenor endured to the end of the Second Age and increased ever in power and splendour, and until half the age had passed, the Numenorians grew also in wisdom and joy. The first sign of the shadow that was to fall upon them appeared in the days of Tar Minastir, eleventh king. He it was that sent a great force to the aid of Gilgalad. He loved the Eldar but envied them. The Numenorians had now become great mariners, exploring all the seas eastward, and they began to yearn for the west and the forbidden waters and the more joyful was their life, the more they began to long for the immortality of the Eldar. Moreover, after Minastir the kings became greedy of wealth and power. At first the Numenorians had come to Middle-earth as teachers and friends of lesser men afflicted by Sauron, but now their havens became fortresses, holding wide coastlands in subjection. Atanamir and his successors levied heavy tribute, and the ships of the Numenorians returned laden with spoil. It was Tar Atanamir who first spoke openly against the ban and declared that the life of the Eldar was his by right. Thus the shadow deepened, and the thought of death darkened the hearts of the people. Then the Numenorians became divided. On the one hand were the kings and those who followed them, and were estranged from the Eldar and the Valar. On the other were the few who called themselves the faithful. They lived mostly in the west of the land. 
the kings and their followers little by little abandoned the use of the elder in tongues. And at last the twentieth king took his royal name in Numenorean form, calling himself Ar Adunachor, Lord of the West. This seemed ill-omened to the faithful, for hitherto they had given that title only to one of the Valar, or to the elder king himself. And indeed, Ar Adunachor began to persecute the faithful, and punished those who used the elven tongues openly. And the Eldar came no more to Numenor. The power and wealth of the Numenorians nonetheless continued to increase, but their years lessened as their fear of death grew, and their joy departed. Tar Palantir attempted to amend the evil, but it was too late, and there was rebellion and strife in Numenor. When he died, his nephew, leader of the rebellion, seized the scepter and became king Ar-Pharazon. Ar-Pharazon the Golden was the proudest and the most powerful of all the kings, and no less than the kingship of the world was his desire. He resolved to challenge Sauron the Great for the supremacy in Middle-earth, and at length he himself set sail with a great navy, and he landed at Umbar. So great was the might and splendor of the Numenorians that Sauron's own servants deserted him and Sauron humbled himself, doing homage and craving pardon. Then Arpharazon, in the folly of his pride, carried him back as prisoner to Numenor. It was not long before he had bewitched the king and was master of his council, and soon he had turned the hearts of all the Numenorians, except the remnant of the faithful, back towards the darkness. And Sauron lied to the king declaring that everlasting life would be his who possessed the undying lands, and that the ban was imposed only to prevent the kings of men from surpassing the Valar. But great kings take what is their right, he said. At length Arpharazon listened to this counsel, for he felt the waning of his days and was besotted by the fear of death. He prepared then the greatest armament that the world had seen, and when all was ready, he sounded his trumpets and set sail. And he broke the ban of the valor, going up with war to wrest everlasting life from the lords of the west. But when Arpharazon set foot upon the shores of Arman the Blessed, the valor laid down their guardianship and called upon the One, and the world was changed. Numenor was thrown down and swallowed in the sea, and the undying lands were removed forever from the circles of the world. So ended the glory of Numenor. The last leaders of the faithful, Elendil and his sons, escaped from the downfall with nine ships bearing a seedling of Nimloth and the seven seen stones, gifts of the Eldar to their house. And they were borne on the wings of a great storm and cast upon the shores of Middle-earth. There they established in the northwest the Numenorian realms in exile, Arnor and Gondor. Elendil was the high king, and dwelt in the north at Anuminas, and the rule in the south was committed to his sons, Isildur and Anarion. They founded there Osgiliath, between Minas Ithil and Minas Anor, not far from the confines of Mordor. For this good at least they believed had come out of ruin, that Sauron also had perished. But it was not so. 
Sauron was indeed caught in the wreck of Numenor, so that the bodily form in which he long had walked perished. But he fled back to Middle-earth, a spirit of hatred borne upon a dark wind. He was unable ever again to assume a form that seemed fair to men, but became black and hideous, and his power thereafter was through terror alone. He re-entered Mordor, and hid there for a time in silence. But his anger was great when he learned that Elendil, whom he most hated, had escaped him, and was now ordering a realm upon his borders. Therefore, after a time he made war upon the exiles, before they should take root. Orodruin burst once more into flame, and was named anew in Gondor, Amon Armath, Mount Doom. But Sauron struck too soon, before his own power was rebuilt, where is the power of Gilgalad had increased in his absence. And in the last alliance that was made against him, Sauron was overthrown, and the One Ring was taken from him. So ended the Second Age. The Realms in Exile The Northern Line Eriador, Arnor, and the Heirs of Isildur Eriador was of old the name of all the lands between the Misty Mountains and the Blue. In the south it was bounded by the Grey Flood and the Glandwin, that flows into it above Tharbad. At its greatest Arnor included all Eriador, except the regions beyond the Loon, and the lands east of Grey Flood and Loudwater, in which lay Rivendell and Hollin. Beyond the Loon was Elvish country, green and quiet, where no men dwelt. But dwarves dwelt, and still dwelt, in the east side of the Blue Mountains, especially in those parts south of the Gulf of Loon, where they have mines that are still in use. For this reason they were accustomed to pass east along the Great Road, as they had done for long years before we came to the Shire. At the Grey Havens dwelt Kirdan the shipwright, and some say he dwells there still, until the last ship set sail into the west. In the days of the kings, most of the high elves that still lingered in Middle-earth dwelt with Círdan, or in the seaward lands of Lindon. If any now remain, they are few. The North Kingdom and the Dúnedain After Elendil and Isildur, there were eight high kings of Arnor. After Iarandur, owing to dissensions among his sons, their realm was divided into three. Arthodine, Rudar, and Cardolan. Arthodine was in the northwest, and included the land between Brandywine and Loon, and also the land north of the Great Road, as far as the Weather Hills. Rudar was in the northeast, and lay between the Etten Moors, the Weather Hills, and the Misty Mountains, but included also the angle between the Horwell and the Loudwater. Cardolan was in the south its bounds being the Brandywine, the Grey Flood, and the Great Road. In Arthodyne, the line of Isildur was maintained and endured, but the line soon perished in Cardolan and Rudar. There was often strife between the kingdoms, which hastened the waning of the Dúnedyne. The chief matter of debate was the possession of the Weather Hills and the land westward towards Bree. Both Rudar and Cardolan desired to possess Amonsul, Weathertop, which stood on the borders of their realms. For the Tower of Armonsul held the chief palantir of the north, 
and the other two were both in the keeping of Arthurdine. It was in the beginning of the reign of Malvegil of Arthurdine that evil came to Arnor. For at that time the realm of Angmar rose in the north beyond the Etten Moors. Its lands lay on both sides of the mountains, and there were gathered many evil men, and orcs, and other fell creatures. The lord of that land was known as the Witch-King, but it was not known until later that he was indeed the chief of the Ringwraiths, who came north with the purpose of destroying the Dúnedain in Arnor, seeing hope in their disunion, while Gondor was strong. In the days of Argeleb, son of Malvegil, since no descendants of Isildur remained in the other kingdoms, the kings of Arthurdine again claimed the lordship of all Arnor. The claim was resisted by Rudar. There the Dúnedain were few, and power had been seized by an evil lord of the hillmen, who was in secret league with Angmar. Argeleb therefore fortified the weather hills, but he was slain in battle with Rudar and Angmar. Arveleg, son of Argeleb, with the help of Cardolan and Lindon, drove back his enemies from the hills, and for many years Arthurdine and Cardolan held in force a frontier along the weather hills, the Great Road, and the Lower Horwell. It is said that at this time Rivendell was besieged. A great host came out of Angmar in 1409, and crossing the river entered Cardolan and surrounded Weathertop. The Dúnedain were defeated, and Arveleg was slain. The tower of Armonsul was burned and razed, but the Palantir was saved and carried back in retreat to Fornost. Rudar was occupied by evil men subject to Angmar, and the Dúnedain that remained there were slain or fled west. Cardolan was ravaged. Arafor, son of Arveleg, was not yet full-grown, but he was valiant, and with aid from Círdan he repelled the enemy from Fornost and the North Downs. A remnant of the faithful among the Dúnedain of Cardolan also held out in Tyrn Gorthad, the Barrow Downs, or took refuge in the forest behind. It is said that Angmar was for a time subdued by the elven folk coming from Linden and from Rivendell, for Elrond brought help over the mountains out of Lorien. It was at this time that the Stores, that had dwelt in the Angle, between Horwell and Loudwater, fled west and south, because of the wars and the dread of Angmar, and because the land and clime of Eriador, especially in the east, worsened and became unfriendly. Some returned to Wilderland, and dwelt beside the Gladden, becoming a riverside people of fishers. In the days of Argaleb too, the plague came into Eriador from the southeast, and most of the people of Cardolan perished, especially in Minhiriath. The hobbits and all other peoples suffered greatly, but the plague lessened as it passed northwards, and the northern parts of Arthurdine were less affected. It was at this time that an end came of the Dúnedain of Cardolan, and evil spirits out of Angmar and Rudar entered into the deserted mounds and dwelt there. It is said that the mounds of Tyrn Gorthad, as the Barrow Downs were called of old, are very ancient, and that many were built in the days of the old world of the First Age by the forefathers of the Adain, before they crossed the Blue Mountains into Beleriand, 
of which Lindon is all that now remains. Those hills were therefore revered by the Dúnedain after their return, and there many of their lords and kings were buried. Some say that the mound in which the ring-bearer was imprisoned had been the grave of the last prince of Cardolan, who fell in the war of 1409. In 1974 the power of Angmar arose again, and the witch-king came down upon Arthurdine before winter was ended. He captured Fornost, and drove most of the remaining Dúnedain over the loon. Among them were the sons of the king. But King Arvedwe held out upon the North Downs until the last, and then fled north with some of his guard, and they escaped by the swiftness of their horses. For a while Arvedui hid in the tunnels of the old dwarf mines near the far end of the mountains, but he was driven at last by hunger to seek the help of the Lossoth, the snowmen of Thorhel. These are a strange, unfriendly people, remnant of the Thorodwaith, men of far-off days, accustomed to the bitter colds of the realm of Morgoth. Indeed, those colds still linger in that region, though they lie hardly more than a hundred leagues north of the Shire. The Lossoth house in the snow, and it is said that they can run on the ice with bones on their feet, and have carts without wheels. They live, mostly, inaccessible to their enemies. On the great Cape of Forghel, that shuts off to the northwest the immense bay of that name, but they often camp on the south shores of the bay at the feet of the mountains. Some of these are Vedwe found in camp by the seashore, but they did not help the king willingly, for he had nothing to offer them save a few jewels which they did not value, and they were afraid of the witch-king, who, they said, could make frost or thaw at his will. But partly out of pity for the gaunt king and his men, and partly out of fear of their weapons, they gave them a little food and built for them snow-huts. There Arvedui was forced to wait, hoping for help from the south, for his horses had perished. When Círdan heard from Aranath, son of Arvedui, of the king's flight to the north, he at once sent a ship to Forghel to seek for him. The ship came there at last after many days, because of contrary winds, and the mariners saw from afar the little fire of driftwood which the lost men contrived to keep alight. But the winter was long in loosing its grip that year, and though it was then March, the ice was only beginning to break, and lay far out from the shore. When the snowmen saw the ship, they were amazed and afraid, for they had seen no such ship on the sea within their memories. But they had become now more friendly, and they drew the king and those that survived of his company out over the ice in their sliding carts as far as they dared. In this way a boat from the ship was able to reach them. But the snowmen were uneasy, for they said that they smelled danger in the wind, and the chief of the Lossoth said to Arvedwe, Do not mount on this sea-monster. If they have them, let the seamen bring us food and other things that we need, and you may stay here till the witch-king goes home. For in summer his power wanes, but now his breath is deadly, and his cold arm is long. But our Vedui did not take his counsel. He thanked him, and at parting 
gave him his ring, saying, This is a thing of worth beyond your reckoning, for it's ancientry alone. It has no power, save the esteem in which those hold it who love my house. It will not help you, but if ever you are in need, my kin will ransom it with great store of all that you desire. In this way the ring of the house of Isildur was saved, for it was afterwards ransomed by the Dunedine. It is said that it was none other than the ring which Felagund of Nargothrond gave to Barahir, and Beren recovered at great peril. Yet the counsel of the Lossoth was good, by chance or by foresight, for the ship had not reached the open sea when a great storm of wind arose, and came with blinding snow out of the north, and it drove the ship back upon the ice, and piled ice up against it. Even the mariners of Kirdan were helpless, and in the night the ice crushed the hull, and the ship foundered. So perished our Vedue last king, and with him the Palantiri were buried in the sea. These were the stones of Anuminus and Amonsul. The only stone left in the north was the one in the tower of Emin Beride, that looks towards the Gulf of Lune. That was guarded by the elves, and though we never knew it, it remained there until Cierdan put it aboard Elrond's ship when he left. But we are told that it was unlike the others, and not in accord with them. It looked only to the sea. Elendil set it there, so that he could look back with straight sight, and see Eresea in the vanished west. But the bent seas below covered Numenor forever. It was long afterwards that news of the shipwreck of Forachel was learned from the snowmen. The Shire folk survived. The war swept over them, and most of them fled into hiding. To the help of the king they sent some archers who never returned, and others went also to the battle in which Angmar was overthrown, of which more is said in the annals of the south. Afterwards, in the peace that followed, the Shire folk ruled themselves and prospered. They chose a thane to take the place of the king, and were content, though for a long time many still looked for the return of the king. But at last that hope was forgotten, and remained only in the saying, When the king comes back, used of some good that could not be achieved, or of some evil that could not be amended. The first shire thane was one Bakka of the Marish, from whom the old Bucks claimed descent. He became thane in 379 of our reckoning. After our Vedue, the North Kingdom ended, for the Dunedain were now few, and all the peoples of Eriador diminished. Yet the line of the kings was continued by the chieftains of the Dunedain, of whom Aranoth, son of our Vedue, was the first. Arahel, his son, was fostered in Rivendell, and so were all the sons of the chieftains after him and there also were kept the heirlooms of their house, the ring of Barahir, the shards of Narsil, the star of Elendil, and the scepter of Anuminas. The scepter was the chief mark of royalty in Numenor, the king tells us, and that was also so in Arnor, whose kings wore no crown, but bore a single white gem. The Elendilmere, Star of Elendil, bound on their brows with a silver fillet. In speaking of a crown, 
Bilbo no doubt referred to Gondor. He seems to have become well acquainted with matters concerning Aragorn's line. The scepter of Númenor is said to have perished with Ar-Tharazon. That of Anúmenas was the silver rod of the lords of Andúnie, and is now perhaps the most ancient work of men's hands preserved in Middle-earth. It was already more than five thousand years old when Elrond surrendered it to Aragorn. The crown of Gondor was derived from the form of a Numenorean war-helm. In the beginning it was indeed a plain helm, and it is said to have been the one that Isildur wore in the Battle of Dagolad, for the helm of Anarion was crushed by the stone cast from Barad-dor that slew him. But in the days of Altanatar, Alcarin, this was replaced by the jewelled helm that was used in the crowning of Aragorn. When the kingdom ended, the Dúnedain passed into the shadows and became a secret and wandering people, and their deeds and labours were seldom sung or recorded. Little now is remembered of them since Elrond departed. Although even before the watchful peace ended, evil things again began to attack Eriador or to invade it secretly, the chieftains for the most part lived out their long lives. Aragorn I, it is said, was slain by wolves, which ever after remained a peril in Eriador and are not yet ended. In the days of Arahad I, the orcs, who had, as later appeared, long been secretly occupying strongholds in the Misty Mountains so as to bar all the passes into Eriador, suddenly revealed themselves. In 2509, Celebrion, wife of Elrond, was journeying to Lorien when she was waylaid in the Redhorn Pass, and her escort being scattered by the sudden assault of the orcs, she was seized and carried off. She was pursued and rescued by Eladan and Elrohir, but not before she had suffered torment and had received a poisoned wound. She was brought back to Imladris, and though healed in body by Elrond, lost all delight in Middle-earth, and the next year went to the havens and passed over sea. And later in the days of Araswil, orcs, multiplying again in the misty mountains, began to ravage the lands, and the Dúnedain and the sons of Elrond fought with them. It was at this time that a large band came so far west as to enter the Shire, and were driven off by Bandobras Tuk. There were fifteen chieftains, before the sixteenth and last was born, Aragorn the second, who became again king of both Gondor and Arnor. Our king, we call him, and when he comes north to his house in a numinous restored, and stays for a while by Lake Evendim, then everyone in the Shire is glad. But he does not enter this land and binds himself by the law that he has made, that none of the big people shall pass its borders. But he rides often with many fair people to the great bridge, and there he welcomes his friends, and any others who wish to see him, and some ride away with him and stay in his house as long as they have a mind. Thane Peregrine has been there many times, and so has Master Samwise the mare. His daughter, Eleanor the Fair, is one of the maids of Queen Evenstar. It was the pride and wonder of the northern line that, though their power departed and their people dwindled, through all the many generations the succession was unbroken from father to son. Also, 
Though the length of the lives of the Dunedain grew ever less in Middle-earth, after the ending of their kings the waning was swifter in Gondor, and many of the chieftains of the north still lived to twice the age of men, and far beyond the days of even the oldest amongst us. Aragorn indeed lived to be one hundred and ninety years old, longer than any of his line since King Arvegil, but in Aragorn Alessa the dignity of the kings of old was renewed. Gondor and the Heirs of Anarion There were thirty-one kings in Gondor, after Anarion, who was slain before the Barad-dûr. The war never ceased on their borders. For more than a thousand years the Dúnedain of the south grew in wealth and power by land and sea, until the reign of Atanatar II, who was called Alcarin the Glorious. Yet the signs of decay had then already appeared, for the high men of the south married late, and their children were few. The first childless king was Falastur, and the second, Namakil I, the son of Atanata Alcarin. It was Osterher, the seventh king, who rebuilt Minasanor, where afterwards the kings dwelt in summer rather than in Osgiliath. In his time, Gondor was first attacked by wild men out of the east. But Tarosta, his son, defeated them and drove them out, and took the name of Romendakil, East Victor. He was, however, later slain in battle with fresh hordes of Easterlings. Turamba, his son, avenged him, and won much territory eastwards. With Taranon, the twelfth king, began the line of the ship kings, who built navies and extended the sway of Gondor along the coasts west and south of the mouths of Anduin. To commemorate his victories as captain of the hosts, Taranon took the crown in the name of Falastor, lord of the coasts. Eärnil I, his nephew, who succeeded him, repaired the ancient haven of Pelagia and built a great navy. He laid siege by sea and land to Umbar, and took it, and it became a great harbour and fortress of the power of Gondor. The great cape and landlocked firth of Umbar had been Numenorean land since days of old, but it was a stronghold of the king's men, who were afterwards called the Black Numenoreans, corrupted by Sauron, and who hated above all the followers of Elendil. After the fall of Sauron, their race swiftly dwindled or became merged with the men of Middle-earth. But they inherited, without lessening their hatred of Gondor. Umba, therefore, was only taken at great cost. But Eärnil did not long survive his triumph. He was lost with many ships and men in the great storm of Umba. Kiriandil, his son, continued the building of ships. But the men of Harad, led by the lords that had been driven from Umbar, came up with great power against the stronghold, and Kiriandil fell in battle in Haradwaith. For many years Umbar was invested, but could not be taken because of the sea power of Gondor. Kiriahe, son of Kiriandil, bided his time, 
and at last, when he had gathered strength, he came down from the north by sea and by land. And crossing the river Hanen, his armies utterly defeated the men of Harad, and their kings were compelled to acknowledge the overlordship of Gondor. Kiriahir then took the name of Hyamendakil, South Victor. The might of Hyamendakil no enemy dared to contest during the remainder of his long reign. He was king for one hundred and thirty-four years, the longest reign but one of all the line of Anarion. In his day, Gondor reached the summit of its power. The realm then extended north to Celebrant, and the southern eaves of Mirkwood, west to the Grey Flood, east to the inland sea of Rune, south to the river Harnan, and thence along the coast to the peninsula and haven of Umbar. The men of the Vales of Anduin acknowledged its authority, and the kings of the Harad did homage to Gondor, and their sons lived as hostages in the court of its king. Mordor was desolate, but was watched over by the great fortresses that guarded the passes. So ended the line of the ship kings, Atanata Alcarin, son of Hire Mendakil, lived in great splendour, so that men said, Precious stones are pebbles in Gondor for children to play with. But Atanata loved ease, and did nothing to maintain the power that he had inherited, and his two sons were of like temper. The waning of Gondor had already begun before he died, and was doubtless observed by its enemies. The watch upon Mordor was neglected. Nonetheless, it was not until the days of Valakar that the first great evil came upon Gondor, the civil war of the kinstrife, in which great loss and ruin was caused and never fully repaired. Minalkar, son of Kalmakil, was a man of great vigour, and in 1240 Namakil, to rid himself of all cares, made him regent of the realm. From that time onwards, he governed Gondor in the name of the kings until he succeeded his father. His chief concern was with the Northmen. These had increased greatly in the peace brought by the power of Gondor. The king showed them favour, since they were the nearest in kin of lesser men to the Dunedain, being for the most part descendants of those peoples from whom the Adain of old had come. And they gave them wide lands beyond Anduin, south of Greenwood the Great, to be a defence against men of the east. In the past, the attacks of the Easterlings had come mostly over the plain between the Inland Sea and the Ash Mountains. In the days of Namakil I, their attacks began again, though at first with little force, but it was learned by the regent that the Northmen did not always remain true to Gondor, and some would join forces with the Easterlings, either out of greed for spoil, or in the furtherance of feuds among their princes. Minalkar, therefore, in 1248, led out a great force, and between Rovanian and the Inland Sea he defeated a large army of the Easterlings, and destroyed all their camps and settlements east of the sea. He then took the name of Romendakil. On his return, Romendakil fortified the west shore of Anduin as far as the inflow of the Limlight, and forbade any stranger to pass down the river beyond the Emin Wheel. He it was that built the pillars of the Argonath at the entrance to Nenhithuel. 
but since he needed men and desired to strengthen the bond between Gondor and the Northmen, he took many of them into his service and gave to some high rank in his armies. Romendakil showed a special favour to Vidogavia, who had aided him in the war. He called himself King of Rovanian, and was indeed the most powerful of the northern princes, though his own realm lay between Greenwood and the river Kelduin. In 1250, Romendakil sent his son Valakar as an ambassador to dwell for a while with Vidugavia, and made himself acquainted with the language, manners, and policies of the Northmen. But Valakar far exceeded his father's designs. He grew to love the northern lands and people, and he married Vidumave, daughter of Vidugavia. It was some years before he returned. From this marriage came later the war of the kinstrife for the high men of Gondor already looked askance at the Northmen among them, and it was a thing unheard of before that the heir of the crown, or any son of the king, should wed one of lesser and alien race. There was already rebellion in the southern provinces when King Valakar grew old. His queen had been a fair and noble lady, but short-lived according to the fate of lesser men, and the Dúnadáin feared that her descendants would prove the same and fall from the majesty of the kings of men. Also, they were unwilling to accept as lord her son, who, though he was now called Eldakar, had been born in an alien country, and was named in his youth Vinitharia, a name of his mother's people. Therefore, when Eldakar succeeded his father, there was war in Gondor. But Eldakar did not prove easy to thrust from his heritage, to the lineage of Gondor he added the fearless spirit of the Northmen. He was handsome and valiant, and showed no sign of aging more swiftly than his father. When the confederates, led by descendants of the king, rose against him, he opposed them to the end of his strength. At last he was besieged in Osgiliath, and held it long, until hunger and the greater forces of the rebels drove him out, leaving the city in flames. In that siege and burning, the tower of the dome of Osgiliath was destroyed, and the Palantir was lost in the waters. But Eldakar eluded his enemies, and came to the north, to his kinsfolk in Rovanion. Many gathered to him there, both of the Northmen in the service of Gondor, and of the Dúnedain of the northern parts of the realm. For many of the latter had learned to esteem him and many more came to hate his usurper. This was Castamir, grandson of Kalimeta, younger brother of Romendakil II. He was not only one of those nearest by blood to the crown, but he had the greatest following of all the rebels, for he was a captain of ships, and was supported by the people of the coasts and of the great havens of Pelagia and Umbar. Castamir had not long sat upon the throne before he proved himself haughty and ungenerous. He was a cruel man, as he had first shown in the taking of Osgiliath. He caused Ornendil, son of Eldakar, who was captured, to be put to death, and the slaughter and destruction done in the city at his bidding far exceeded the needs of war. This was remembered in Minasanor and in Athelion and there love for Castamere was further lessened when it became seen that he cared little for the land, and thought only of the fleets, and purposed to remove the king's seat to Pelagia. 
Thus he had been king only ten years, when Eldakar, seeing his time, came with a great army out of the north, and folk flocked to him from Cullenarthon, and Anorian, and Ithilien. There was a great battle in Labenin at the crossings of Eroe, in which much of the best blood in Gondor was shed. Eldakar himself slew Castamir in battle, and so was avenged for Onendil, but Castamir's sons escaped, and with others of their kin and many people of the fleets they held out long at Pelagia. When they had gathered there all the force that they could, for Eldakar had no ships to beset them by sea, they sailed away, and established themselves at Umbar. There they made a refuge for all the enemies of the king, and a lordship independent of his crown. Umbar remained at war with Gondor for many lives of men, a threat to its coastlands and to all traffic on the sea. It was never again completely subdued until the days of Elessar, and the region of South Gondor became a debatable land between the corsairs and the kings. The loss of Umbar was grievous to Gondor, not only because the realm was diminished in the south and its hold upon the men of the Harad was loosened, but because it was there that Artharazon the Golden, last king of Numenor, had landed and humbled the might of Sauron. Though great evil had come after, even the followers of Elendil remembered with pride the coming of the great host of Artharazon out of the deeps of the sea, and on the highest hill of the headland above the haven they had set a great white pillar as a monument. It was crowned with a globe of crystal that took the rays of the sun and of the moon, and shone like a bright star that could be seen in clear weather, even on the coasts of Gondor, or far out upon the western sea. So it stood, until after the second arising of Sauron, which now approached, Umba fell under the domination of his servants, and the memorial of his humiliation was thrown down. After the return of Eldakar, the blood of the kingly house and other houses of the Dunedain became more mingled with that of lesser men, for many of the great had been slain in the kinstrife, while Eldakar showed favour to the Northmen, by whose help he had regained the crown, and the people of Gondor were replenished by great numbers that came from Rovanian. This mingling did not at first hasten the waning of the Dunedain, as had been feared, but the waning still proceeded, little by little, as it had before. For no doubt it was due above all to Middle-earth itself, and to the slow withdrawing of the gifts of the Numenorians after the downfall of the Land of the Star. Eldakar lived to his two hundred and thirty-fifth year, and was king for fifty-eight years, of which ten were spent in exile. The second and greatest evil came upon Gondor in the reign of Telemnar, the twenty-sixth king, whose father Midardil, son of Eldakar, was slain at Pelagia by the corsairs of Umba. They were led by Angamaite and Sanga Hyanda, the great-grandsons of Castamir. Soon after, a deadly plague came with dark winds out of the east. The king and all his children died, and great numbers of the people of Gondor, especially those that lived in Osgiliath. Then for weariness and fewness of men, the watch on the borders of Mordor ceased, and the fortresses that guarded the passes were unmanned. 
Later it was noted that these things happened even as the shadow grew deep in Greenwood, and many evil things reappeared, signs of the arising of Sauron. It is true that the enemies of Gondor also suffered, or they might have overwhelmed it in its weakness. But Sauron could wait, and it may well be that the opening of Mordor was what he chiefly desired. When King Telemnar died, the white trees of Minas Anor also withered and died. But Torondor, his nephew, who succeeded him, replanted a seedling in the citadel. He it was who removed the king's house permanently to Minas Anor, for as Gilead was now partly deserted and began to fall into ruin, few of those who had fled from the plague into Ithilien or to the western dales were willing to return. Torondor, coming young to the throne, had the longest reign of all the kings of Gondor, but he could achieve little more than the reordering of his realm within and the slow nursing of his strength. But Telumetar, his son, remembering the death of Minadil, and being troubled by the insolence of the corsairs, who raided his coasts even as far as the Anfalas, gathered his forces, and 1810 took Umbar by storm. In that war the last descendants of Castamir perished, and Umbar was again held for a while by the kings. Telumatar added to his name the title Umbardakil. But in the new evils that soon befell Gondor, Umbar was again lost, and fell into the hands of the men of Harad. The third evil was the invasion of the Wain Riders, which sapped the waning strength of Gondor in wars that lasted for almost a hundred years. The Wain Riders were a people, or a confederacy of many peoples, that came from the east. But they were stronger and better armed than any that had appeared before. They journeyed in great wains, and their chieftains fought in chariots. Stirred up, as was afterwards seen, by the emissaries of Sauron, they made a sudden assault upon Gondor, and King Namakil II was slain in battle with them beyond Anduin in 1856. The people of eastern and southern Rovanian were enslaved, and the frontiers of Gondor were for that time withdrawn to the Anduin and the Eminwil. At this time it is thought that the Ringwraiths re-entered Mordor, Kalimeta, son of Namakil II, helped by a revolt in Rovanian, avenged his father with a great victory over the Easterlings upon Dagolad in 1899, and for a while the peril was averted. It was in the reign of Arafant in the north, and Ondaher, son of Kalimeta in the south, that the two kingdoms again took counsel together after long silence and estrangement for at last they perceived that some single power and will was directing the assault from many quarters upon the survivors of Numenor. It was at that time that Arvedwe, heir of Arafant, wedded Firiel, daughter of Ondaher, 1940. But neither kingdom was able to send help to the other, for Angmar renewed its attack upon Arthedain, at the same time as the Wainriders reappeared in great force. 
many of the Wainriders now passed south of Mordor and made alliance with men of Khand and near Harad. And in this great assault from north and south, Gondor came near to destruction. In 1944, King Ondohea and both his sons, Artamir and Faramir, fell in battle north of the Morannon, and the enemy poured into Ithilien. But Aarniel, captain of the southern army, won a great victory in South Ithilien, and destroyed the army of Harad that had crossed the river Poros. Hastening north, he gathered to him all that he could of the retreating northern army, and came up against the main camp of the Wainriders while they were feasting and reveling, believing that Gondor was overthrown and that nothing remained but to take the spoil. Aarniel stormed the camp and set fire to the Wains and drove the enemy in a great rout out of Ithilien. A great part of those who fled before him perished in the dead marshes. On the death of Ondahair and his sons, our Vedui of the North Kingdom claimed the crown of Gondor as the direct descendant of Isildur, and as the husband of Firiel, only surviving child of Ondahair. The claim was rejected. In this, Pelendor, the steward of King Ondahair, played the chief part. The Council of Gondor answered, the crown and royalty of Gondor belong solely to the heirs of Meneldil, son of Anarion, to whom Isildur relinquished this realm. In Gondor this heritage is reckoned through the sons only, and we have not heard that the law is otherwise in Arnor. To this our Vedui replied, Elendil had two sons, of whom Isildur was the elder and the heir of his father. We have heard that the name of Elendil stands to this day at the head of the line of the kings of Gondor, since he was accounted the high king of all lands of the Dúnedain. While Elandil still lived, the conjoint rule in the south was committed to his sons. But when Elendil fell, Isildur departed to take up the high kingship of his father, and committed the rule in the south in like manner to the son of his brother. He did not relinquish his royalty in Gondor, nor intend that the realm of Elendil should be divided for ever. Moreover, in Numenor of old, the scepter descended to the eldest child of the king, whether man or woman. It is true that the law has not been observed in the lands of exile ever troubled by war. But such was the law of our people, to which we now refer, seeing that the sons of Ondahair died childless. That law was made in Numenor, as we have learned from the king, when Tar-Aldarion, the sixth king, left only one child, a daughter. She became the first ruling queen, Tar-Ankalime. But the law was otherwise before her time. Tar-Elendil, the fourth king, was succeeded by his son Tar-Meneldor, though his daughter Silmarion was the elder. It was, however, from Silmarion that Elendil was descended. To this Gondor made no answer. The crown was claimed by Aarnil, the victorious captain, and it was granted to him with the approval of all the Dúnedain in Gondor, since he was of the royal house. He was the son of Siriondil, son of Kalimakil, son of Alkirias, 
brother of Namakil II. Avedui did not press his claim, for he had neither the power nor the will to oppose the choice of the Dunadine of Gondor. Yet the claim was never forgotten by his descendants, even when their kinship had passed away. For the time was now drawing near when the North Kingdom would come to an end. Avedui was indeed the last king, as his name signifies. It is said that this name was given to him at his birth by Malbeth the seer, who said to his father, Avedui you shall call him, for he will be the last in Arthurdine. Though a choice will come to the Dunedain, and if they take the one that seems less hopeful, then your son will change his name and become king of a great realm. If not, then much sorrow and many lives of men shall pass until the Dunedain arise and are united again. In Gondor also one king only followed Aarnil. It may be that if the crown and the scepter had been united, then the kingship would have been maintained and much evil averted. But Aarnil was a wise man and not arrogant, even if, as to most men in Gondor, the realm in Arthurdine seemed a small thing for all the lineage of its lords. He sent messages to Avedue, announcing that he received the crown of Gondor according to the laws and the needs of the South Kingdom. But I do not forget the loyalty of Arnor, nor deny our kinship, nor wish that the realms of Elendil should be estranged. I will send to your aid, when you have need, so far as I am able. It was, however, long before Aarnil felt himself sufficiently secure to do as he promised. King Arafant continued with dwindling strength to hold off the assaults of Angmar, and Arvedwe, when he succeeded, did likewise. But at last, in the autumn of 1973, messages came to Gondor that Arthur Dine was in great straits, and that the witch-king was preparing a last stroke against it. Then Aarnil sent his son Aarnor north with a fleet, as swiftly as he could, and with as great strength as he could spare. Too late. Before Aarnor reached the havens of Lindon, the witch-king had conquered Arthurdine, and Arvedui had perished. But when Aarnor came to the grey havens, there was joy and great wonder among both elves and men. So great in draught, and so many were his ships, that they could scarcely find harbourage, though both the Harland and the Forland also were filled. And from them descended an army of power, with munition and provision for a war of great kings. Or so it seemed to the people of the north, though this was but a small sending force of the whole might of Gondor. Most of all, the horses were praised, for many of them came from the vales of Anduin, and with them were riders tall and fair, and proud princes of Rovanion. Then Círdan summoned all who would come to him, from Lindon or Anor, and when all was ready, the host crossed the Loon and marched north to challenge the witch-king of Angmar. He was now dwelling, it is said, in Fornost, which he had filled with evil folk, usurping the house and rule of the kings. In his pride 
He did not await the onset of his enemies and his stronghold, but went out to meet them, thinking to sweep them, as others before, into the loon. But the host of the west came down on him out of the hills of Evendim, and there was a great battle on the plain between Nenunial and the North Downs. The forces of Angmar were already giving way and retreating towards Fornost when the main body of the horsemen that had passed round the hills came down from the north and scattered them in a great rout. Then the witch-king, with all that he could gather from the wreck, fled northwards, seeking his own land of Angmar. Before he could gain the shelter of Karndum, the cavalry of Gondor overtook him, with Eärnor riding at their head. At the same time a force, under Glorfindel the elf-lord, came up out of Rivendell. Then so utterly was Angmar defeated, that not a man nor an orc of that realm remained west of the mountains. But it is said that when all was lost, suddenly the witch-king himself appeared, black-robed and black-masked, upon a black horse. Fear fell upon all who beheld him, but he singled out the captain of Gondor for the fullness of his hatred, and with a terrible cry he rode straight upon him. Eärnor would have withstood him, but his horse could not endure that onset, and it swerved and bore him far away before he could master it. Then the witch-king laughed, and none that heard it ever forgot the horror of that cry. But Glorfindel rode up then on his white horse, and in the midst of his laughter the witch-king turned to flight and passed into the shadows. For night came down on the battlefield, and he was lost, and none saw whither he went. Eärnor now rode back, but Glorfindel, looking into the gathering dark, said, Do not pursue him. He will not return to this land. Far off yet is his doom, and not by the hand of man will he fall. These words many remembered, but Eärnor was angry, desiring only to be avenged for his disgrace. So ended the evil realm of Angmar, and so did Eärnor, captain of Gondor, earn the chief hatred of the witch-king, but many years were still to pass before that was revealed. It was thus in the reign of King Eärnil, as later became clear, that the witch-king, escaping from the north, came to Mordor, and there gathered the other ring-raids, of whom he was the chief. But it was not until two thousand that they issued from Mordor by the pass of Kidithungol and laid siege to Minas Ithil. This they took in two thousand and two, and captured the Palantir of the Tower. They were not expelled while the Third Age lasted, and Minas Ithil became a place of fear, and was renamed Minas Morgul. Many of the people that still remained in Athelion deserted it. Eärnor was a man like his father in valour, but not in wisdom. He was a man of strong body and hot mood, but he would take no wife, for his only pleasure was in fighting, or in the exercise of arms. His prowess was such that none in Gondor could stand against him in those weapon-sports in which he delighted, seeming rather a champion than a captain or king, 
and retaining his vigour and skill to a later age than was then usual. When Aarno received the crown in 2043, the king of Minas Morgul challenged him to single combat, taunting him that he had not dared to stand before him in battle in the north. For that time, Mardil the steward restrained the wrath of the king. Minas Arno, which had become the chief city of the realm since the days of King Telemnar, and the residence of the kings, was now renamed Minas Tirith, as the city ever on guard against the evil of Morgul. Eärnor had held the crown only seven years when the Lord of Morgul repeated his challenge, taunting the king that to the faint heart of his youth he had now added the weakness of age. Then Mardil could no longer restrain him, and he rode with a small escort of knights to the gates of Minas Morgul, None of that riding were ever heard of again. It was believed in Gondor that the faithless enemy had trapped the king, and that he had died in torment in Minas Morgul. But since there were no witnesses of his death, Mardil the good steward ruled Gondor in his name for many years. Now the descendants of the kings had become few. Their numbers had been greatly diminished in the kinstrife, whereas since that time the kings had become jealous and watchful of those near akin. Often those on whom suspicion fell had fled to Umbar and there joined the rebels, while others had renounced their lineage and taken wives not of Numenorean blood. So it was that no claimant to the crown could be found who was of pure blood or whose claim all would allow, and all feared the memory of the kin strife knowing that if any such dissension arose again, then Gondor would perish. Therefore, though the years lengthened, the steward continued to rule Gondor, and the crown of Elendil lay in the lap of King Aarnil in the houses of the dead, where Aarnor had left it. The Stewards The house of the stewards was called the House of Hurin, for they were descendants of the steward of King Minardil, Hurin of Eminardnin, a man of high Numenorean race. After his day, the kings had always chosen their stewards from among his descendants, and after the days of Pelendor, the stewardship became hereditary as a kingship, from father to son or nearest king. Each new steward indeed took office with the oath to hold rod and rule in the name of the king until he shall return. But these soon became words of ritual little heeded, for the stewards exercised all the power of the kings. Yet many in Gondor still believed that a king would indeed return in some time to come, and some remembered the ancient line of the north, which it was rumoured still lived on in the shadows. But against such thoughts the ruling stewards hardened their hearts. Nonetheless, the stewards never sat on the ancient throne, and they wore no crown and held no scepter. They bore a white rod only as the token of their office, and their banner was white without charge. But the royal banner had been sable, upon which was displayed a white tree in blossom beneath seven stars. After Mardil Voronwe, who was reckoned the first of the line, 
there followed the twenty-four ruling stewards of Gondor, until the time of Denethor the second, the twenty-sixth, and last. At first they had quiet, for those were the days of the watchful peace, during which Sauron withdrew before the power of the White Council, and the ringwraiths remained hidden in Morgul Vale. But from the time of Denethor the first, there was never full peace again, and even when Gondor had no great or open war, its borders were under constant threat. In the last years of Denethor I, the race of Uruks, black orcs of great strength, first appeared out of Mordor, and in 2475 they swept across Ithilien and took Osgiliath. Boromir, son of Denethor, after whom Boromir of the Nine Walkers was later named, defeated them, and regained Ithilien. But Osgiliath was finally ruined, and its great stone bridge was broken. No people dwelt there afterwards. Boromir was a great captain, and even the witch-king feared him. He was noble and fair of face, a man strong in body and in will, but he received a morgul wound in that war which shortened his days, and he became shrunken with pain, and died twelve years after his father. After him began the long rule of Kirion. He was watchful and wary, but the reach of Gondor had grown short, and he could do little more than defend his borders, while his enemies, or the power that moved them, prepared strokes against him that he could not hinder. The Corsairs harried his coasts, but it was in the north that his chief peril lay, in the wide lands of Rovanion, between Mirkwood and the river running, a fierce people now dwelt, wholly under the shadow of Dol Guldor. Often they made raids through the forest, until the Vale of Anduin, south of the Gladden, was largely deserted. These Balchoth were constantly increased by others of like kind that came in from the east, whereas the people of Cullinarthen had dwindled. Kyrian was hard put to it to hold the line of the Anduin. Foreseeing the storm, Kyrian sent north for aid, but over late. For in that year, 2510, the Balchoth, having built many great boats and rafts on the east shores of Anduin, swarmed over the river and swept away the defenders. An army marching up from the south was cut off and driven north over the Limlight, and there it was suddenly attacked by a horde of orcs from the mountains and pressed towards the Anduin. Then out of the north there came help beyond hope, and the horns of the Rohirrim were first heard in Gondor. Eol the young came with his riders and swept away the enemy and pursued the Balchoth to the death over the fields of Cullinarthen. Kirion granted to Aeol that land to dwell in, and he swore to Kirion the oath of Aeol, of friendship at need or at call to the lords of Gondor. In the days of Beren, the nineteenth steward, an even greater peril came upon Gondor. Three great fleets, long prepared, came up from Umbar and the Harad, and assailed the coasts of Gondor in great force and the enemy made many landings, even as far north as the mouth of the Eisen. At the same time the Rohirrim were assailed from the west and east, 
and their land was overrun, and they were driven into the dales of the White Mountains. In that year, 2758, the long winter began with cold and great snows out of the north and the east, which lasted for almost five months. Helm of Rohan and both his sons perished in that war, and there was misery and death in Eriador and Rohan. But in Gondor, south of the mountains, things were less evil, and before spring came Beragond, son of Beren, had overcome the invaders. At once he sent aid to Rohan. He was the greatest captain that had arisen in Gondor since Boromir, and when he succeeded his father, 2,763, Gondor began to recover its strength. But Rohan was slower to be healed of the hurts that it had received. It was for this reason that Beren welcomed Saruman, and gave to him the keys of Orthanc, and from that year on Saruman dwelt in Isengard. It was in the days of Beragond that the war of the dwarves and orcs was fought in the Misty Mountains, of which only rumour came south, until the orcs, fleeing from Nandohirion, attempted to cross Rohan and establish themselves in the White Mountains. There was fighting for many years in the Dales before that danger was ended. When Belekthor II, the twenty-first steward, died, the white tree died also in Minas Tirith, but it was left standing until the king returns, for no seedling could be found. In the days of Turin II, the enemies of Gondor began to move again, for Sauron was grown again to power, and the day of his arising was drawing near. All but the hardiest of its people deserted Ithilien, and removed west over Anduin, for the land was infested by Mordor orcs. It was Turin that built secret refuges for his soldiers in Ithilien, of which Henneth Arnun was the longest guarded and manned. He also fortified again the Isle of Kyrandros to defend Anorion. Kyrandros means ship of long foam, for the isle was shaped like a great ship, with a high prow pointing north, against which the white foam of Anduin broke on sharp rocks. But his chief peril lay in the south, where the Haradrim had occupied South Gondor, and there was much fighting along the Poros. When Ithilien was invaded in great strength, King Folkwine of Rohan fulfilled the oath of Aeol, and repaid his debts for the aid brought by Beragond, sending many men to Gondor. With their aid, Turin won a victory at the crossing of the Poros. But the sons of Falkwine both fell in the battle. The riders buried them after the fashion of their people, and they were laid in one mound, for they were twin brothers. Long it stood, Houth in Guanor, high upon the shore of the river, and the enemies of Gondor feared to pass it. Turgon followed Turin, but of his time it is chiefly remembered that two years ere his death, Sauron arose again, and declared himself openly, and he re-entered Mordor long prepared for him. Then the Barad-dor was raised once more, and Mount Doom burst into flame, and the last of the folk of Ithilien fled far away. When Turgon died, Saruman took Isengard for his own, and fortified it.
Ekthelion II, son of Turgon, was a man of wisdom. With what power was left to him, he began to strengthen his realm against the assault of Mordor. He encouraged all men of worth from near or far to enter his service, and to those who proved trustworthy he gave rank and reward. In much that he did, he had the aid and advice of a great captain whom he loved above all. Thorongil, men called him in Gondor, the Eagle of the Star, for he was swift and keen-eyed, and wore a silver star upon his cloak. But no one knew his true name, nor in what land he was born. He came to Exhelion from Rowan, where he had served the King Thangal, but he was not one of the Rohirrim. He was a great leader of men, by land or by sea, but he departed into the shadows whence he came, before the days of Exhelion were ended. Thorongil often counselled Exhelion that the strength of the rebels in Umbar was a great peril to Gondor, and a threat to the fiefs of the south that would prove deadly if Sauron moved to open war. At last he got leave of the steward and gathered a small fleet, and he came to Umbar unlooked for by night, and there burned a great part of the ships of the corsairs. He himself overthrew the captain of the haven in battle upon the quays, and then he withdrew his fleet with small loss. But when they came back to Pelagia, to men's grief and wonder, he would not return to Minas Tirith, where great honour awaited him. He sent a message of farewell to Ecthelion, saying, Other tasks now call me, Lord, and much time and many perils must pass ere I come again to Gondor, if that be my fate. Though none could guess what those tasks might be, nor what summons he had received, it was known whither he went. For he took boat, and crossed over Anduin, and there he said farewell to his companions, and went on alone, and when he was last seen his face was towards the mountains of shadow. There was dismay in the city at the departure of Thorongil, and to all men it seemed a great loss, unless it were to Denethor, the son of Ecthelion, a man now ripe for the stewardship, to which after four years he succeeded on the death of his father. Denethor II was a proud man, tall, valiant, and more kingly than any man that had appeared in Gondor for many lives of men, and he was wise also, and far-sighted, and learned in law. Indeed, he was as like to Thorongil as to one of nearest kin, and yet was ever placed second to the stranger in the hearts of men and the esteem of his father. At the time, many thought that Thorongil had departed before his rival became his master, though indeed Thorongil had never himself vied with Denethor, nor held himself higher than the servant of his father. And in one matter only were their counsels to the steward at variance. Thorongil often warned Ecthelion not to put trust in Saruman the White in Isengard, but to welcome rather Gandalf the Grey, for there was little love between Denethor and Gandalf, and after the days of Ecthelion there was less welcome for the Grey Pilgrim in Minas Tirith. Therefore later, when all was made clear, many believed that Denethor, who was subtle in mind and looked further and deeper than other men of his day, had discovered who this stranger Thorongil in truth was, 
and suspected that he and Mithrandir designed to supplant him. When Denethor became steward, 2984, he proved a masterful lord, holding the rule of all things in his own hand. He said little. He listened to counsel, and then followed his own mind. He had married late, taking as wife Finduilas, daughter of Ardrahil of Dolamroth. She was a lady of great beauty and gentle heart, but before twelve years had passed she died. Denethor loved her, in his fashion, more dearly than any other, unless it were the elder of the sons that she bore him. But it seemed to men that she withered in the guarded city, as a flower of the seaward vales set upon a barren rock. The shadow in the east filled her with horror, and she turned her eyes ever south to the sea that she missed. After her death, Denethor became more grim and silent than before, and would sit long alone in his tower deep in thought, foreseeing that the assault of Mordor would come in his time. It was afterwards believed that needing knowledge, but being proud and trusting in his own strength of will, he dared to look in the palantir of the White Tower. None of the stewards had dared to do this, nor even the kings Aarnil and Aarnor, after the fall of Minas Ithil, when the palantir of Isildur came into the hands of the enemy. For the stone of Minas Tirith was the palantir of Anarion, most close in accord with the one that Sauron possessed. In this way, Denethor gained his great knowledge of things that passed in his realm, and far beyond his borders, at which men marvelled. But he bought the knowledge dearly, being aged before his time by his contest with the will of Sauron. Thus pride increased in Denethor together with despair, until he saw in all the deeds of that time only a single combat between the Lord of the White Tower and the Lord of the Barad-dur and mistrusted all others who resisted Sauron unless they served himself alone. So time drew on to the War of the Ring, and the sons of Denethor grew to manhood. Boromir, five years the elder, beloved by his father, was like him in face and pride, but in little else. Rather, he was a man after the sort of King Aeanor of old, taking no wife and delighting chiefly in arms. Fearless and strong, but caring little for law, save the tales of old battles. Faramir, the younger, was like him in looks, but otherwise in mind. He read the hearts of men as shrewdly as his father, but what he read moved him sooner to pity than to scorn. He was gentle in bearing, and a lover of law and of music, and therefore by many in those days his courage was judged less than his brother's. But it was not so except that he did not seek glory and danger without a purpose. He welcomed Gandalf at such times as he came to the city, and he learned what he could from his wisdom, and in this, as in many other matters, he displeased his father. Yet between the brothers there was great love, and had been since childhood when Boromir was the helper and protector of Faramir, no jealousy or rivalry had arisen between them since, for their father's favour or for the praise of men. It did not seem possible to Faramir that anyone in Gondor could rival Boromir, heir of Denethor, captain of the White Tower, 
and of like mind was Boromir. Yet it proved otherwise at the test. But of all that befell these three in the War of the Ring, much is said elsewhere. And after the war, the days of the ruling stewards came to an end, for the heir of Isildur and Anarion returned, and the kingship was renewed, and the standard of the white tree flew once more from the tower of Ecthelion. Here follows a part of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen. Arador was the grandfather of the king. His son, Arathorn, sought in marriage Gilrine the Fair, daughter of Deerhile, who was himself a descendant of Aranath. To this marriage Deerhile was opposed, for Gilrine was young, and had not reached the age at which the women of the Dúnedine were accustomed to marry. Moreover, he said, Arathorn is a stern man of full age, and will be chieftain sooner than men looked for, yet my heart forebodes that he will be short-lived. But Ivorwen, his wife, who was also foresighted, answered, The more need of haste! The days are darkening before the storm, and great things are to come. If these two wed now, hope may be born for our people, but if they delay, it will not come while this age lasts. And it happened that when Arathorn and Gilrine had been married only one year, Arador was taken by hill trolls in the cold fells north of Rivendell and was slain. And Arathorn became chieftain of the Dúnedain. The next year Gilrine bore him a son, and he was called Aragorn. But Aragorn was only two years old when Arathorn went riding against the orcs with the sons of Elrond, and he was slain by an orc arrow that pierced his eye, and so he proved indeed short-lived for one of his race, being but sixty years old when he fell. Then Aragorn, being now the heir of Isildur, was taken with his mother to dwell in the house of Elrond and Elrond took the place of his father, and came to love him as a son of his own. But he was called Estel, that is, Hope, and his true name and lineage were kept secret at the bidding of Elrond, for the wise then knew that the enemy was seeking to discover the heir of Isildur, if any remained upon earth. But when Estel was only twenty years of age, it chanced that he returned to Rivendell after great deeds in the company of the sons of Elrond. And Elrond looked at him and was pleased, for he saw that he was fair and noble and was early come to manhood, though he would yet become greater in body and in mind. That day, therefore, Elrond called him by his true name and told him who he was and whose son and he delivered to him the heirlooms of his house. "'Here is the ring of Barahir,' he said, "'the token of our kinship from afar, "'and here also are the shards of Narsil. "'With these you may yet do great deeds, "'for I foretell that the span of your life "'shall be greater than the measure of men, "'unless evil befalls you, or you fail at the test. "'But the test will be hard and long.' The sceptre of Anuminas I withhold, for you have yet to earn it. The next day, at the hour of sunset, Aragorn walked alone in the woods, and his heart was high within him, and he sang, for he was full of hope, and the world was fair. And suddenly, even as he sang, 
he saw a maiden walking on a greensward among the white stems of the birches, and he halted amazed, thinking that he had strayed into a dream, or else that he had received the gift of the elf minstrels, who can make the things of which they sing appear before the eyes of those that listen. For Aragorn had been singing a part of the Lay of Luthien, which tells of the meeting of Luthien and Beren in the forest of Neldoreth. And behold, there Luthien walked before his eyes in Rivendell, clad in a mantle of silver and blue, fair as the twilight in Elvenholm. Her dark hair strayed in a sudden wind, and her brows were bound with gems like stars. For a moment Aragorn gazed in silence, but fearing that she would pass away and never be seen again, he called to her, crying, Tinuviel, Tinuviel, even as Beren had done in the elder days long ago. Then the maiden turned to him and smiled, and she said, Who are you? And why do you call me by that name? And he answered, Because I believed you to be indeed Luthien Tinuviel, of whom I was singing. But if you are not she, then you walk in her likeness. So many have said, she answered gravely, yet her name is not mine, though maybe my doom will be not unlike hers. But who are you? Estelle, I was called, he said. But I am Aragorn, Arathorn's son, Isildur's heir, lord of the Dúnedain. Yet even in the saying he felt that this high lineage, in which his heart had rejoiced, was now of little worth and as nothing compared to her dignity and loveliness. But she laughed merrily, and said, Then we are akin from afar, for I am Arwen, Elrond's daughter, and am named also Undomiel. Often is it seen, said Aragorn, that in dangerous days men hide their chief treasure, yet I marvel at Elrond and your brothers, for though I have dwelt in this house from childhood, I have heard no word of you. How comes it that we have never met before? Surely your father has not kept you locked in his hoard? No, she said, and looked up at the mountains that rose in the east. I have dwelt for a time in the land of my mother's kin, in far Lothlorien. I have but lately returned to visit my father again. It is many years since I have walked in Imladris. Then Aragorn wondered, for she had seemed of no greater age than he, who had lived yet no more than a score of years in Middle-earth. But Arwen looked in his eyes and said, Do not wonder, for the children of Elrond have the life of the Eldar. Then Aragorn was abashed, for he saw the elven light in her eyes and the wisdom of many days, yet from that hour he loved Arwen Undomiel, daughter of Elrond. In the days that followed, Aragorn felt silent, and his mother perceived that some strange thing had befallen him, and at last he yielded to her questions and told her of the meeting in the twilight of the trees. "'My son,' said Gilrine, "'your aim is high, even for the descendant of many kings, for this lady is the noblest and fairest that now walks the earth, and it is not fit that mortals should wed with the elfkin.' "'Yet we have some part in that kinship,' said Aragorn, "'if the tale of my forefathers is true that I have learned. "'It is true.' 
said Gilrine. But that was long ago, and in another age of this world, before our race was diminished. Therefore I am afraid. For without the good will of Master Elrond, the heirs of Isildur will soon come to an end. But I do not think that you will have the good will of Elrond in this matter. Then bitter will my days be, and I will walk in the wild alone, said Aragorn. That will indeed be your fate, said Gilrine. But though she had in a measure the foresight of her people, she said no more to him of her foreboding, nor did she speak to anyone of what her son had told her. But Elrond saw many things, and read many hearts. One day, therefore, before the fall of the year, he called Aragorn to his chamber, and he said, Aragorn, Arathorn's son, lord of the Dúnedain, listen to me. A great doom awaits you, either to rise above the height of all your fathers since the days of Elendil, or to fall into darkness with all that is left of your kin. Many years of trial lie before you. You shall neither have wife nor bind any woman to you in troth until your time comes and you are found worthy of it. Then Aragorn was troubled, and he said, Can it be that my mother has spoken of this? No, indeed, said Elrond. Your own eyes have betrayed you. But I do not speak of my daughter alone. You shall be betrothed to no man's child as yet. But as for Arwen the fair, lady of Imledris and of Lorien, even star of her people, she is of lineage greater than yours, and she has lived in the world already so long that to her you are but as a yearling shoot beside a young birch of many summers. She is too far above you, and so I think it may well seem to her. But even if it were not so, and her heart turned towards you, I shall still be grieved because of the doom that is laid on us. What is that doom? said Aragorn. That so long as I abide here, she shall live with the youth of the Eldar, answered Elrond, and when I depart, she shall go with me, if she so chooses. I see, said Aragorn, that I have turned my eyes to a treasure no less dear than the treasure of Thingol that Beren once desired. Such is my fate. Then suddenly the foresight of his kindred came to him, and he said, But lo! Master Elrond, the years of your abiding run short at last, and the choice must soon be laid on your children to part either with you or with Middle-earth. Truly, said Elrond, soon as we account it, though many years of men must still pass. But there will be no choice before Arwen, my beloved, unless you, Aragorn, Arathorn's son, come between us and bring one of us, you or me, to a bitter parting beyond the end of the world. You do not know yet what you desire of me. He sighed, and after a while, looking gravely upon the young man, he said again, The years will bring what they will. We will speak no more of this until many have passed. The days darken, and much evil is to come. Then Aragorn took leave lovingly of Elrond, and the next day he said farewell to his mother, and to the house of Elrond, and to Arwen, and he went out into the wild. For nearly thirty years he laboured in the cause against Sauron, and he became a friend of Gandalf the Wise, 
from whom he gained much wisdom. With him he made many perilous journeys, but as the years wore on he went more often alone. His ways were hard and long, and he became somewhat grim to look upon, unless he chanced to smile, and yet he seemed to men worthy of honour as a king that is in exile, when he did not hide his true shape. For he went in many guises, and won renown under many names. He rode in the host of the Rohirrim, and fought for the Lord of Gondor by land and by sea. And then, in the hour of victory, he passed out to the knowledge of men of the west, and went alone far into the east and deep into the south, exploring the hearts of men, both evil and good, and uncovering the plots and devices of the servants of Sauron. Thus he became at last the most hardy of living men, skilled in their crafts and law, and was yet more than they, for he was elven wise, and there was a light in his eyes that when they were kindled few could endure. His face was sad and stern, because of the doom that was laid on him, and yet hope dwelt ever in the depths of his heart, from which mirth would arise at times like a spring from the rock. It came to pass that when Aragorn was nine and forty years of age, he returned from perils on the dark confines of Mordor, where Sauron now dwelt again, and was busy with evil. He was weary, and he wished to go back to Rivendell and rest there for a while, ere he journeyed into the far countries. And on his way he came to the borders of Lorien, and was admitted to the hidden land by the Lady Galadriel. He did not know it, but Arwen Undomiel was also there, dwelling again for a time with the kin of her mother. She was little changed, for the mortal years had passed her by. Yet her face was more grave, and her laughter now seldom was heard. But Aragorn was grown to full stature of body and mind, and Galadriel bade him cast aside his wayworn garment, and she clothed him in silver and white, with a cloak of elven grey, and a bright gem on his brow. Then more than any kind of men he appeared, and seemed rather an elf-lord from the Isles of the West. And thus it was that Arwen first beheld him again after their long parting. And as he came walking towards her, under the trees of Caraskalathon, laden with flowers of gold, her choice was made and her doom appointed. Then for a season they wandered together in the glades of Lothlorien, until it was time for him to depart. And on the evening of midsummer, Aragorn, Arathorn's son, and Arwen, daughter of Elrond, went to the fair hill, Cerin Amroth, in the midst of the land, and they walked unshod on the undying grass with Eleanor and Nefredil about their feet. And there upon that hill they looked east to the shadow and west to the twilight, and they plighted their troth and were glad. And Arwen said, Dark is the shadow, and yet my heart rejoices, for you, Estelle, shall be among the great whose valour will destroy it. But Aragorn answered, Alas, I cannot foresee it, and how it may come to pass is hidden from me. Yet with your hope I will hope, and the shadow I utterly reject. But neither, lady, is the twilight for me, for I am mortal, and if you will cleave to me, even star, then the twilight you must also renounce. And she stood then as still as a white tree, looking into the west, 
and at last she said, I will cleave to you, Dunadan, and turn from the twilight. Yet there lies the land of my people, and the long home of all my kin. She loved her father dearly. When Elrond learned the choice of his daughter, he was silent, though his heart was grieved, and found the doom long feared none the easier to endure. But when Aragorn came again to Rivendell, he called him to him, and he said, My son, years come when hope will fade, and beyond them little is clear to me, and now a shadow lies between us. Maybe it has been appointed so, that by my loss the kingship of men may be restored. Therefore, though I love you, I say to you, Arwen Undomiel shall not diminish her life's grace for less cause. She shall not be the bride of any man less than the king of both Gondor and Arnor. To me, then, even our victory can bring only sorrow and parting, but to you hope of joy for a while. Alas, my son, I fear that to Arwen the doom of men may seem hard at the ending. So it stood afterwards between Elrond and Aragorn, and they spoke no more of this matter, but Aragorn went forth again to danger and toil. And while the world darkened and fear fell on Middle-earth, as the power of Sauron grew and the barred door rose ever taller and stronger, Arwen remained in Rivendell, and when Aragorn was abroad, from afar she watched over him and thought, and in hope she made for him a great and kingly standard, such as only one might display who claimed the lordship of the Numenorians and the inheritance of Elendil. After a few years, Gilrine took leave of Elrond and returned to her own people in Eriador, and lived alone, and she seldom saw her son again, for he spent many years in far countries. But on a time, when Aragorn had returned to the north, he came to her, and she said to him before he went, This is our last parting, Estelle, my son. I am aged by care, even as one of lesser men, and now that it draws near, I cannot face the darkness of our time that gathers upon Middle-earth. I shall leave it soon." Aragorn tried to comfort her, saying, "'Yet there may be a light beyond the darkness, and if so, I would have you see it and be glad.' But she answered only with this linod, "'Oneni estel edain, uchebin estel arnim,' which means, "'I gave hope to the Dunadain. I have kept no hope for myself.' And Aragorn went away heavy of heart, Gilrain died before the next spring. Thus the years drew on to the War of the Ring, of which more is told elsewhere, how the means unforeseen was revealed, whereby Sauron might be overthrown, and how hope beyond hope was fulfilled. And it came to pass that in the hour of defeat Aragorn came up from the sea and unfurled the standard of Arwen in the battle of the fields of Pelennor, and in that day he was first hailed as king. And at last, when all was done, he entered into the inheritance of his fathers and received the crown of Gondor and scepter of Arnor. And at midsummer, in the year of the fall of Sauron, he took the hand of Arwen Undomiel, and they were wedded in the city of the kings. 
The third age ended thus in victory and hope, and yet grievous among the sorrows of that age was the parting of Elrond and Arwen, for they were sundered by the sea and by a doom beyond the end of the world. When the great ring was unmade, and the three were shorn of their power, then Elrond grew weary at last, and forsook Middle-earth, never to return. But Arwen became as a mortal woman, and yet it was not her lot to die until all that she had gained was lost. As queen of elves and men she dwelt with Aragorn for six score years in great glory and bliss. Yet at last he felt the approach of old age, and knew that the span of his life-days was drawing to an end, long though it had been. Then Aragorn said to Arwen, At last, Lady Evenstar, fairest in this world, and most beloved, my world is fading. Lo, we have gathered, and we have spent, and now the time of payment draws near. Arwen knew well what he intended, and long had foreseen it. Nonetheless she was overborne by her grief. Would you then, Lord, before your time leave your people that live by your word? she said. Not before my time, he answered. For if I will not go now, then I must soon go perforce. And Eldarion, our son, is a man full ripe for kingship. Then, going to the house of the kings in the silent street, Aragorn laid him down on the long bed that had been prepared for him. There he said farewell to Eldarion, and gave into his hands the winged crown of Gondor and the scepter of Arnor. And then all left him save Arwen, and she stood alone by his bed. And for all her wisdom and lineage, she could not forbear to plead with him to stay yet for a while. She was not yet weary of her days, and thus she tasted the bitterness of the mortality that she had taken upon her. Lady Undomiel, said Aragorn, the hour is indeed hard, yet it was made even in that day when we met under the white perches in the garden of Elrond, where none now walk, and on the hill of Cerin Amroth, when we forsook both the shadow and the twilight. This doom we accepted. Take counsel with yourself, beloved, and ask whether you would indeed have me wait until I wither and fall from my high seat unmanned and witless. Nay, lady, I am the last of the Numenorians and the latest king of the elder days, and to me has been given not only a span thrice that of men of Middle-earth, but also the grace to go at my will, and give back the gift. Now, therefore, I will sleep. I speak no comfort to you, for there is no comfort for such pain within the circles of the world. The uttermost choice is before you, to repent and go to the havens, and bear away into the west the memory of our days together that shall there be evergreen, but never more than memory or else to abide the doom of men. Nay, dear Lord, she said, that choice is long over. There is now no ship that would bear me hence, and I must indeed abide the doom of men, whether I will or nil, the loss and the silence. But I say to you, King of the Numenorians, 
Not till now have I understood the tale of your people and their fall. As wicked fools I scorn them, but I pity them at last. For if this is indeed, as the elder say, the gift of the one to men, it is bitter to receive. So it seems, he said. But let us not be overthrown at the final test. Who of old renounced the shadow and the ring? In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than memory. Farewell. Estel, Estel, she cried, and with that, even as he took her hand and kissed it, he fell into sleep. Then a great beauty was revealed in him, so that all who after came there looked on him in wonder, for they saw that the grace of his youth and the valour of his manhood and the wisdom and majesty of his age were blended together, and long there he lay, an image of the splendour of the kings of men in glory undimmed before the breaking of the world. But Arwen went forth from the house, and the light of her eyes was quenched, and it seemed to her people that she had become cold and grey as nightfall in winter that comes without a star. Then she said farewell to Eldarion, and to her daughters, and to all whom she had loved, and she went out from the city of Minas Tirith, and passed away to the land of Lorien, and dwelt there alone under the fading trees until winter came. Galadriel had passed away, and Celeborn also was gone, and the land was silent. There at last, when the Malorn leaves were falling, but spring had not yet come, she laid herself to rest upon Cairin Amroth, and there is her green grave, until the world is changed, and all the days of her life are utterly forgotten by men that come after, and Eleanor and Nefredil bloom no more east of the sea. Here ends this tale, as it has come to us from the south, and with the passing of Evenstar no more is said in this book of the days of old. Part Two. The House of Aeol Aeol the young was lord of the men of Aeotheod. That land lay near the sources of Anduin, between the furthest ranges of the misty mountains and the northernmost parts of Mirkwood. The Aeotheod had moved to those regions in the days of King Aeonil II, from lands in the vales of Anduin, between the Karok and the Gladden, and they were in origin close akin to the Beornings and the men of the west eaves of the forest. The forefathers of Aeol claimed descent from kings of Rovanion, whose realm lay beyond Mirkwood before the invasions of the Wainriders, and thus they accounted themselves kinsmen of the kings of Gondor, descended from Eldakar. They loved best the plains, and delighted in horses and in all feats of horsemanship. But there were many men in the middle vales of Anduin in those days, and moreover the shadow of Dol Guldor was lengthening. When, therefore, they heard of the overthrow of the witch-king, they sought more room in the north, and drove away the remnants of the people of Angmar on the east side of the mountains. 
but in the days of Laod, father of Aeol, they had grown to be a numerous people, and were again somewhat straitened in the land of their home. In the two thousand five hundred and tenth year of the Third Age, a new peril threatened Gondor. A great host of wild men from the northeast swept over Rovanion, and coming down out of the brown lands, crossed the Anduin on rafts. At the same time, by chance or design, the orcs, who at that time before their war with the dwarves were in great strength, made a descent from the mountains. The invaders overran Cullinarthen, and Kirion, steward of Gondor, sent north for help, for there had been long friendship between the men of Anduin's Vale and the people of Gondor. But in the valley of the river men were now few and scattered, and slow to render such aid as they could. At last tidings came to Aeol of the need of Gondor, and late though it seemed, he set out with a great host of riders. Thus he came to the battle of the field of Calebrant, for that was the name of the Greenland that lay between Silverlode and Limlight. There the northern army of Gondor was in peril. Defeated in the wold, and cut off from the south, it had been driven across the Limlight, and was then suddenly assailed by the orc host that pressed it towards the Anduin. All hope was lost when, unlooked for, the riders came out of the north and broke upon the rear of the enemy. Then the fortunes of battle were reversed, and the enemy was driven with slaughter over Limlight. Aeol led his men in pursuit, and so great was the fear that went before the horsemen of the north that the invaders of the world were also thrown into panic, and the riders hunted them over the plains of Kalanarthen. The people of that region had become few since the plague, and most of those that remained had been slaughtered by the savage Easterlings. Kirion, therefore, in reward for his aid, gave Kalinarthon, between Anduin and Isen, to Aeol and his people, and they sent north for their wives and children and their goods and settled in that land. They named it anew the Mark of the Riders, and they called themselves the Aeolingas, but in Gondor their land was called Rohan, and its people the Rohirrim, that is, the horse lords. Thus Aeol became the first king of the Mark, and he chose for his dwelling a green hill before the feet of the white mountains that were the south wall of his land. There the Rohirrim lived afterwards as free men, under their own kings and laws, but in perpetual alliance with Gondor. Many lords and warriors, and many fair and valiant women, are named in the songs of Rohan that still remember the north. Frumgar, they say, was the name of the chieftain who led his people to Eotheod. Of his son, Fram, they tell that he slew Skartha, the great dragon of Ered Mithrin, and the land had peace from the longworms afterwards. Thus Fram won great wealth, but was at feud with the dwarves, who claimed the hoard of Skartha. Fram would not yield them a penny, and sent to them instead the teeth of Skartha, made into a necklace, saying, Jewels such as these you will not match in your treasures, for they are hard to come by. Some say that the dwarves slew Fram for this insult. There was no great love between Aeotheod and the dwarves. Laod was the name of Aeol's father. He was a tamer of wild horses, for there were many at that time in the land. He captured a white foal, 
and it grew quickly to a horse, strong and fair and proud. No man could tame it. When Laod dared to mount it, it bore him away, and at last threw him, and Laod's head struck a rock, and so he died. He was then only two and forty years old, and his son was a youth of sixteen. Aeol vowed that he would avenge his father. He hunted long for the horse, and at last he caught sight of him, and his companions expected that he would try to come within bowshot and kill him. But when they drew near, Aeol stood up and called him in a loud voice, "'Come hither, man's bane, and get a new name.' To their wonder the horse looked towards Aeol, and came and stood before him, and Aeol said, Failaroff, I name you. You loved your freedom, and I do not blame you for that. But now you owe me a great guild, and you shall surrender your freedom to me until your life's end. Then Aeol mounted him, and Failaroff submitted, and Aeol rode him home without bit or bridle, and he rode him in like fashion ever after. The horse understood all that men said, though he would allow no man but Aeol to mount him. It was upon Phaleroth that Aeol rode to the field of Calibrant, for that horse proved as long-lived as men, and so were his descendants. They were the Mayaras, who would bear no one but the king of the Mark or his sons until the time of Shadowfax. Men said of them that Bema, whom the elder called Orome, must have brought their sire from west over sea. Of the kings of the mark between Aeol and Theoden, most is said of Helm Hammerhand. He was a grim man of great strength. There was at that time a man named Freker, who claimed descent from King Freyawine, though he had, men said, much Dunlendish blood, and was dark-haired. He grew rich and powerful, having wide lands on either side of the Ardorn. Near its source he made himself a stronghold, and paid little heed to the king. Helm mistrusted him, but called him to his councils, and he came when it pleased him. To one of these councils Freyke rode with many men, and he asked the hand of Helm's daughter for his son, Wolf. But Helm said, "'You have grown big since you were last here, but it is mostly fat, I guess.' And men laughed at that, for Freyke was wide in the belt." Then Freyke fell in a rage, and reviled the king, and said this at the last, "'Old kings that refuse a proffered staff may fall on their knees.' Helm answered, "'Come, the marriage of your son is a trifle. Let Helm and Freyke deal with it later. Meanwhile the king and his council have matters of moment to consider.' When the council was over, Helm stood up, and laid his great hands on Freyke's shoulder, saying, the king does not permit brawls in his house, but men are freer outside, and he forced Freyke to walk before him, out from Edorus into the field. To Freyke's men that came up he said, Be off! We need no hearers. We are going to speak of a private matter alone. Go and talk to my men. And they looked, and saw that the king's men and his friends far outnumbered them, and they drew back. Now, Dunlending, said the king, you have only Helm to deal with, alone and unarmed. But you have said much already, and it is my turn to speak. Freyke, your folly has grown with your belly. 
You talk of a staff. If Helm dislikes a crooked staff that is thrust on him, he breaks it. So. With that, he smote Freker such a blow with his fist that he fell back stunned and died soon after. Helm then proclaimed Freker's son and near kin the king's enemies, and they fled, for at once Helm sent many men riding to the west marches. Four years later, in 2758, great troubles came to Rohan, and no help could be sent from Gondor, for three fleets of the Corsairs attacked it, and there was war on all its coasts. At the same time, Rohan was again invaded from the east, and the Dunlendings, seeing their chance, came over the Isen and down from Isengard. It was soon known that Wolf was their leader. They were in great force, for they were joined by enemies of Gondor that landed in the mouths of Lefnui and Isen. The Rohirrim were defeated, and their land was overrun, and those who were not slain or enslaved fled to the dales of the mountains. Helm was driven back with great loss from the crossings of Isen, and took refuge in the Hornburg and the ravine behind, which was after known as Helm's Deep. There he was besieged. Wolf took Edoras, and sat in Medoseld, and called himself king. There Haleth, Helm's son, fell, last of all, defending the doors. Soon afterwards the long winter began, and Rowan lay under snow for nearly five months. Both the Rohirrim and their foes suffered grievously in the cold, and in the dearth that lasted longer. In Helm's Deep there was a great hunger after Yule, and being in despair against the king's council, Harma, his younger son, led men out on a sortie and foray. But they were lost in the snow. Helm grew fierce and gaunt for famine and grief, and the dread of him alone was worth many men in the defence of the bog. He would go out by himself, clad in white, and stalk like a snow-troll into the camps of his enemies, and slay many men with his hands. It was believed that if he bore no weapon, no weapon would bite on him. The Dunlendings said that if he could find no food, he ate men. That tale lasted long in Dunland. Helm had a great horn, and soon it was marked that before he sallied forth he would blow a blast upon it that echoed in the deep. And then so great a fear fell on his enemies that instead of gathering to take him or kill him, they fled away down the coombe. One night men heard the horn blowing, but Helm did not return. In the morning there came a sun-gleam, the first for long days, and they saw a white figure standing still on the dyke, alone, for none of the Dunlendings dared come near. There stood Helm, dead as a stone, but his knees were unbent. Yet men said that the horn was still heard at times in the deep, and the wraith of Helm would walk among the foes of Rohan and kill men with fear. Soon after the winter broke. Then Freyalaf, son of Hild, Helm's sister, came down out of Dunharrow, to which many had fled, and with a small company of desperate men he surprised Wolf in Medoseld and slew him and regained Edoras. There were great floods after the snows, and the Vale of Entwash became a vast fen. The eastern invaders perished or withdrew, and there came help at last from Gondor, by the roads both east and west of the mountains. Before the year 2759 was ended, the Dunlendings were driven out, 
even from Isengard, and then Freyalaf became king. Helm was brought from the Hornburg and laid in the Ninth Mound. Ever after, the white symbol Muna grew there most thickly, so that the mound seemed to be snow-clad. When Freyalaf died, a new line of mounds was begun. The Rohirrim were grievously reduced by war and dearth and loss of cattle and horses, and it was well that no great danger threatened them again for many years, for it was not until the time of King Folkwine that they recovered their former strength. It was at the crowning of Freyalaf that Saruman appeared, bringing gifts and speaking great praise of the valour of the Rohirrim. All thought him a welcome guest. Soon after, he took up his abode in Isengard. For this, Beren, steward of Gondor, gave him leave, for Gondor still claimed Isengard as a fortress of its realm, and not part of Rohan. Beren also gave into Saruman's keeping the keys of Orthanc. That tower no enemy had been able to harm or to enter. In this way, Saruman began to behave as a lord of men, for at first he held Isengard as a lieutenant of the steward and warden of the tower. But Freyalaf was as glad as Beren to have this so, and to know that Isengard was in the hands of a strong friend. A friend he long seemed, and maybe, in the beginning, he was one in truth. Though afterwards there was little doubt in men's minds that Saruman went to Isengard in hope to find the stone still there, and with the purpose of building up a power of his own. Certainly after the last White Council, in 2953, his designs towards Rowan, though he hid them, were evil. He then took Isengard for his own, and began to make it a place of guarded strength and fear, as though to rival the Barad Dur. His friends and servants he drew then from all who hated Gondor and Rohan, whether men or other creatures more evil. The Kings of the Mark First Line The first king was Aeol the Young. He was born in 2485. He was so named because he succeeded his father in youth, and remained yellow-haired and ruddy to the end of his days. These were shortened by a renewed attack of the Easterlings. Aeol fell in battle in the Wold, and the first mound was raised. Phalarof was laid there also. The second king was Brago, born 2512. He drove the enemy out of the Wold, and Rohan was not attacked again for many years. In 2569 he completed the great hall of Medoseld. At the feast, his son Baldor vowed that he would tread the paths of the dead, and did not return. Brago died of grief the next year. The third king, Aldor the Old, was born in 2544. He was Brago's second son. He became known as the Old since he lived to a great age, and was king for seventy-five years. In his time the Rohirrim increased and drove out or subdued the last of the Dunlendish people that lingered east of Isen. Harrowdale and the other mountain valleys were settled. Of the next three kings little is said, for Rowan had peace and prospered in their time. 
The fourth king, Freya, was born in 2570. Eldest son, but fourth child of Aldor, he was already old when he became king. The fifth king was Freyawine, born 2594. The sixth, Goldwine, 2619. The seventh king, Deor, was born in 2644. In his time the Dunlendings raided often over the Eisen. In 2710 they occupied the deserted ring of Isengard, and could not be dislodged. The eighth king, Gram, was born in 2668. The ninth king, Helm Hammerhand, was born in 2691. At the end of his reign, Rohan suffered great loss by invasion and the long winter. Helm and his sons, Harleth and Harma, perished. Freyalaf, Helm's sister-son, became king. The second line. This line began with the tenth king, Freyalaf Hildeson, born 2726. In his time, Saruman came to Isengard, from which the Dunlendings had been driven. The Rohirrim at first profited by his friendship in the days of dearth and weakness that followed. The eleventh king, Britta, born 2752, was called by his people Leofa, for he was loved by all. He was open-handed and a help to all the needy. In his time there was war with the orcs that, driven from the north, sought refuges in the White Mountains. When he died it was thought that they had all been hunted out, but it was not so. The twelfth king, Walder, born 2780, was king only nine years. He was slain with all his companions when they were trapped by orcs as they rode by mountain paths from Dunharrow. The thirteenth king, Falker, 2804, was a great hunter, but he vowed to chase no wild beast while there was an orc left in Rohan. When the last orc hold was found and destroyed, he went to hunt the great boar of Everholt in the Fyrian wood. He died of the tusk wounds that it gave him. The fourteenth king was Falkwine, born 2830. When he became king, the Rohirrim had recovered their strength. He reconquered the West March between Ardorn and Isen, that Dunlendings had occupied. Rowan had received great help from Gondor in the evil days. When, therefore, he heard that the Haradrim were assailing Gondor with great strength, he sent many men to the help of the steward. He wished to lead them himself, but was dissuaded, and his twin sons, Falkred and Fastred, born 2858, went in his stead. They fell side by side in battle in Ithilien. Turin II of Gondor sent to Falkwine a rich weirguild of gold. The fifteenth king, Fengal, was born in 2870. He was the third son and fourth child of Falkwine. He's not remembered with praise. He was greedy of food and of gold, and at strife with his marshals and with his children. Thengel, his third child and only son, left Rohan when he came to manhood, and lived long in Gondor, and won honour in the service of Turgon. The sixteenth king, Thengel, 
was born in 2905. He took no wife until late, but in 2943 he wedded Morwen of Losarnach in Gondor, though she was seventeen years the younger. She bore him three children in Gondor, of whom Theoden the second was his only son. When Fengal died, the Rohirrim recalled him, and he returned unwillingly. But he proved a good and a wise king. Though the speech of Gondor was used in his house, and not all men thought that good, Morwen bore him two more daughters in Rohan, and the last, Theodwin, was the fairest, though she came late, the child of his age. Her brother loved her dearly. It was soon after Thingol's return that Saruman declared himself Lord of Isengard, and began to give trouble to Rohan, encroaching on its borders and supporting its enemies. The seventeenth king was Theoden, born in 2948. He is called Theoden Ednir in the Lord of Rohan, for he fell into a decline under the spells of Saruman, but was healed by Gandalf, and in the last year of his life arose and led his men to victory at the Hornburg, and soon after to the fields of Pelennor, the greatest battle of the age, he fell before the gates of Mundberg. For a while he rested in the land of his birth, among the dead kings of Gondor, but was brought back and laid in the eighth mound of his line at Adarus. Then a new line was begun. The Third Line in 2989, Theodwin married Eomund of Eastfold, the chief marshal of the Mark. Her son, Eomer, was born in 2991, and her daughter, Eowyn, in 2995. At that time Sauron had arisen again, and the shadow of Mordor reached out to Rohan. Orcs began to raid in the eastern regions and slay or steal horses. Others also came down from the Misty Mountains, many being great Uruks in the service of Saruman, though it was long before that was suspected. Eamon's chief charge lay in the East Marches, and he was a great lover of horses and hater of orcs. If news came of a raid, he would often ride against them in hot anger, unwarily, and with few men. Thus it came about that he was slain in 3002 for he pursued a small band to the borders of the Emin Wheel, and was there surprised by a strong force that lay in wait in the rocks. Not long after, Theodwin took sick, and died, to the great grief of the king. Her children he took into his house, calling them son and daughter. He had only one child of his own, Theodred his son, then twenty-four years old, for the queen Elfhild had died in childbirth, and Theoden did not wed again. Eomer and Eowyn grew up in Edoras, and saw the dark shadow fall on the hall of Theoden. Eomer was like his father's before him, but Eowyn was slender and tall, with a grace and pride that came to her out of the south from Morwen of Losarnach, whom the Rohirrim had called Steelsheen. The third line began with King Eomer Eadig. He was born in 2991. When still young, he became a Marshal of the Mark, and was given his father's charge in the East Marches. In the War of the Ring, Theodred fell in battle with Saruman at the crossings of Isen. 
Therefore, before he died on the fields of the Pelenno, Theoden named Eomer his heir, and called him king. In that day Eowen also won renown, for she fought in that battle, riding in disguise, and was known after in the mark as the Lady of the Shield-Arm. For her shield-arm was broken by the mace of the witch-king, but he was brought to nothing. And thus the words of Glorfindel long before to King Eanor were fulfilled, that the witch-king would not fall by the hand of man. For it is said in the songs of the mark that in this deed Eowyn had the aid of Theoden's esquire, and that he also was not a man but a halfling out of a far country, though Eomer gave him honour in the mark and the name of Holdwine. This Holdwine was none other than Meriadoc the Magnificent, who was master of Buckland. Eomer became a great king, and being young when he succeeded Theoden, he reigned for sixty-five years, longer than all their kings before him, save Aldor the Old. In the War of the Ring he made the friendship of King Elessar, and of Imrahil of Dolamroth, and he rode often to Gondor. In the last year of the Third Age he wedded Lothiriel, daughter of Imrahil. Their son, Elfwine the Fair, ruled after him. In Eomer's day in the Mark men had peace who wished for it, and the people increased both in the dales and the plains, and their horses multiplied. In Gondor the king Elessar now ruled, and in Arnor also. In all the lands of those realms of old he was king, save in Rohan only, for he renewed to Eomer the gift of Kirion, and Eomer took again the oath of Aeol. Often he fulfilled it, for though Sauron had passed, the hatreds and evils that he bred had not died, and the king of the west had many enemies to subdue before the white tree could grow in peace. And wherever King Elessar went with war, King Eomer went with him. And beyond the Sea of Rune, and on the far fields of the south, the thunder of the cavalry of the mark was heard, and the white horse upon green flew in many winds until Eomer grew old. Part 3. Durin's Folk Concerning the beginning of the dwarves, strange tales are told, both by the Eldar and by the dwarves themselves, but since these things lie far back beyond our days, little is said of them here. Durin is the name that the dwarves used for the eldest of the seven fathers of their race, and the ancestor of all the kings of the Longbeards. He slept alone, until in the deeps of time, and the awakening of that people, he came to Azanulzebar, and in the caves above Khaled-Zaram, in the east of the Misty Mountains, he made his dwelling, where afterwards were the mines of Moria, renowned in song. There he lived so long that he was known far and wide as Durin the Deathless. Yet in the end he died before the elder days had passed, and his tomb was in Khazad-dûm, but his line never failed, and five times an heir was born in his house, so like to his forefather that he received the name of Durin. He was indeed held by the dwarves to be the deathless that returned, for they have many strange tales and beliefs concerning themselves and their fate in the world. 
After the end of the first age, the power and wealth of Khazad-dûm was much increased, for it was enriched by many people and much law and craft. When the ancient cities of Nogrod and Belagost in the Blue Mountains were ruined at the breaking of Thangorodrim, the power of Moria endured throughout the dark years and the dominion of Sauron. For though Aregion was destroyed and the gates of Moria were shut. The halls of Khazad-dûm were too deep and strong, and filled with a people too numerous and valiant for Sauron to conquer from without. Thus its wealth remained long unravished, though its people began to dwindle. It came to pass that in the middle of the Third Age, Durin was again its king, being the sixth of that name. The power of Sauron, servant of Morgoth, was then again growing in the world, though the shadow in the forest that looked towards Moria was not yet known for what it was. All evil things were stirring. The dwarves delved deep at that time, seeking beneath Barazinbar for Mithril, the metal beyond price that was becoming yearly ever harder to win. Thus they roused from sleep a thing of terror that, flying from Thangorodrim, had lain hidden, at the foundations of the earth since the coming of the host of the west, a balrog of Morgoth. Or perhaps they released it from prison. It may well be that it had already been awakened by the malice of Sauron. Durin was slain by it, and the year after, Nine the first, his son, and then the glory of Moria passed, and its people were destroyed or fled far away. Most of those that escaped made their way into the north, and Thrain the first, nine son, came to Erebor, the lonely mountain, near the eastern eaves of Mirkwood, and there he began new works, and became king under the mountain. In Erebor he found the great jewel, the Arkenstone, heart of the mountain. But Thorin the first, his son, removed and went into the far north to the grey mountains, where most of Durin's folk were now gathering, for those mountains were rich and little explored. But there were dragons in the wastes beyond, and after many years they became strong again and multiplied, and they made war on the dwarves and plundered their works. At last Dain I, together with Thror, his second son, was slain at the doors of his hall by a great cold drake. Not long after most of Durin's folk abandoned the Grey Mountains, Gror, Dine's son, went away with many followers to the Iron Hills, but Thror, Dine's heir, with Borin, his father's brother, and the remainder of the people, returned to Erebor. To the great hall of Thrine, Thror brought back the Arkenstone, and he and his folk prospered and became rich, and they had the friendship of all men that dwelt near for they made not only things of wonder and beauty, but weapons and armour of great worth, and there was great traffic of ore between them and their kin in the Iron Hills. Thus the Northmen who lived between Kelduin, river running, and Karnen, red water, became strong and drove back all enemies from the east, and the dwarves lived in plenty, and there was feasting and song in the halls of Erebor. So the rumour of the wealth of Erebor spread abroad, 
and reached the ears of the dragons, and at last Smaug the Golden, greatest of the dragons of his day, arose and without warning came against King Thror and descended on the mountain in flames. It was not long before all that realm was destroyed, and the town of Dale nearby was ruined and deserted. But Smaug entered into the great hall and lay there upon a bed of gold. From the sack and the burning many of Thor's kin escaped, and last of all from the halls by a secret door came Thor himself and his son Thrine the second. They went away south, into long and homeless wandering, with their family, among whom were the children of Thrine the second, Thorin Oakenshield, Freyrin and Dis. Thorin was then a youngster in the reckoning of the dwarves. With them went also a small company of their kinsmen and faithful followers. It was afterwards learned that more of the folk under the mountain had escaped than was at first hoped, but most of these went to the Iron Hills. Years afterwards Thor, now old, poor and desperate, gave to his son Thrine the one great treasure he still possessed, the last of the seven rings, and then he went away with one old companion only, called Nar. Of the ring he said to Thrine at their parting, This may prove the foundation of new fortune for you yet, though that seems unlikely, but it needs gold to breed gold. Surely you do not think of returning to Erebor, said Thrine. Not at my age, said Thor. Our vengeance on Smaug I bequeath to you and your sons. But I'm tired of poverty and the scorn of men. I go to see what I can find. He did not say where. He was a little crazed, perhaps, with age and misfortune, and long brooding on the splendor of Moria in his forefathers' days or the ring, it may be, was turned to evil now that its master was awake, driving him to folly and destruction. From Dunland, where he was then dwelling, he went north with Nar, and they crossed the Redhorn Pass, and came down into Azanulzibar. When Thor came to Moria, the gate was open. Nar begged him to beware, but he took no heed of him, and walked proudly in, as an heir that returns. But he did not come back. Nar stayed nearby for many days in hiding. One day he heard a loud shout and the blare of a horn, and a body was flung out on the steps. Fearing that it was Thor, he began to creep near. But there came a voice from within the gate. Come on, beardling, we can see you, but there's no need to be afraid today. We need you as a messenger. Then Nar came up, and found that it was indeed the body of Thor, but the head was severed and lay face downwards. As he knelt there, he heard orc laughter in the shadows, and the voice said, If beggars will not wait at the door, but sneak in to try thieving, that's what we do to them. If any of your people poke their foul beards in here again, they will fare the same. Go and tell them so. But if his family wish to know who is now king here, the name is written on his face. I wrote it. I killed him. I am the master. Then Nar turned the head, 
and saw, branded on the brow in dwarf runes, so that he could read it, the name Azog. That name was branded in his heart, and in the hearts of all the dwarves afterwards. Na stooped to take the head, but the voice of Azog said, Drop it! Be off! Here's your fee, beggar beard! A small bag struck him. It held a few coins of little worth. Weeping, Na fled down the silver load, but he looked back once and saw that orcs had come from the gate and were hacking up the body and flinging the pieces to the black crows. Such was the tale that Na brought back to Thrine, and when he had wept and torn his beard, he felt silent. Seven days he sat and said no word. Then he stood up and said, This cannot be borne. That was the beginning of the war of the dwarves and the orcs, which was long and deadly, and fought for the most part in deep places beneath the earth. Thrine at once sent messengers bearing the tale north, east, and west, but it was three years before the dwarves had mustered their strength. Durin's folk gathered all their host, and they were joined by great forces sent from the houses of the other fathers, for this dishonour to the heir of the eldest of their race filled them with wrath. When all was ready, they assailed and sacked one by one all the strongholds of the orcs that they could, from Gundabad to the Gladden. Both sides were pitiless, and there was death and cruel deeds by dark and by light. But the dwarves had the victory through their strength, and their matchless weapons, and the fire of their anger, as they hunted for Azog in every den under mountain. At last all the orcs that fled before them were gathered in Moria, and the dwarf host, in pursuit, came to Azanulbizar. That was a great vale that lay between the arms of the mountains about the lake of Haledzaram, and had been of old part of the kingdom of Hasad-dum. When the dwarves saw the gate of their ancient mansions upon the hillside, they sent up a great shout like thunder in the valley. But a great host of foes was arrayed on the slopes above them, and out of the gates poured a multitude of orcs that had been held back by Azog for the last need. At first fortune was against the dwarves, for it was a dark day of winter without sun, and the orcs did not waver, and they outnumbered their enemies, and had the higher ground. So began the battle of Azanulbizar, or Nandohirian in the elvish tongue, at the memory of which the orcs still shudder and the dwarves weep. The first assault of the vanguard, led by Thrine, was thrown back with loss, and Thrine was driven into a wood of great trees that then still grew not far from Keledzaram. There Freyrin his son fell, and Fundin his kinsman, and many others, and both Thrine and Thorin were wounded. Elsewhere the battle swayed to and fro with great slaughter, until at last the people of the Iron Hills turned the day. Coming late and fresh to the field, the mailed warriors of Nine, Gros' son, drove through the orcs to the very threshold of Moria, crying, Azog! Azog! as they hewed down with their mattocks all who stood in their way. It is said that Thorin's shield was cloven, and he cast it away, and he hewed off with his axe a branch of an oak, and held it in his left hand to ward off the strokes of his foes, or to wield as a club. In this way he got his name. 
Then Nine stood before the gate, and cried with a great voice, Azog, if you are in, come out, or is the play in the valley too rough? Thereupon Azog came forth, and he was a great orc with a huge iron-clad head, and yet agile and strong. With him came many like him, the fighters of his guard, and as they engaged Nine's company, he turned to Nine and said, What? Yet another beggar at my doors? Must I brand you too? With that he rushed at Nine, and they fought. But Nine was half blind with rage, and also very weary with battle, whereas Azog was fresh and fell and full of guile. Soon Nine made a great stroke with all his strength that remained, but Azog darted aside and kicked Nine's leg, so that the mattock splintered on the stone where he had stood. But Nine stumbled forward. Then Azog, with a swift swing, hewed his neck. His mail collar withstood the edge, but so heavy was the blow that Nine's neck was broken and he fell. Then Azog laughed, and he lifted up his head to let forth a great yell of triumph, but the cry died in his throat. For he saw that all his host in the valley was in a rout, and the dwarves went this way and that, slaying as they would, and those that could escape from them were flying south, shrieking as they ran, and hard by all the soldiers of his guard lay dead. He turned and fled backwards towards the gate. Up the steps after him leapt a dwarf with a red axe. It was Dine Ironfoot. Nine son. Right before the doors he caught Azog, and there he slew him, and hewed off his head. That was held a great feat, for Dine was then only a stripling in the reckoning of the dwarves. But long life and many battles lay before him, until old but unbowed he fell at last in the war of the ring. Yet hardy and full of wrath as he was, it is said that when he came down from the gate he looked grey in the face, as one who has felt great fear. When at last the battle was won, the dwarves that were left gathered in Azanulbizar. They took the head of Azog, and thrust into its mouth the purse of small money, and then they set it on a stake. But no feast nor song was there that night, for their dead were beyond the count of grief. Barely half of their number, it is said, could still stand or had hope of healing. Nonetheless, in the morning, Thrine stood before them. He had one eye blinded beyond cure, and he was halt with a leg wound, but he said, Good! We have won the victory! Khazad Dum is ours! But they answered, Durin's heir you may be, but even with one eye you should see clearer. We fought this war for vengeance, and vengeance we have taken, but it is not sweet. If this is victory, then our hands are too small to hold it. And those who were not of Durin's folk said also, Khazad-dum was not our father's house. What is it to us, unless a hope of treasure? But now, if we must go without the rewards and the weir-guilds that are owed to us, the sooner we return to our own lands, the better pleased we shall be. Then Thrine turned to Dine and said, "'But surely my own kin will not desert me?' "'No,' said Dine. "'You are the father of our folk, and we have bled for you, and will again. "'But we will not enter Khazad-dum. "'You will not enter Khazad-dum. "'Only I have looked through the shadow of the gate. "'Beyond the shadow it waits for you still, 
Dorin's bane. The world must change, and some other power than ours must come before Dorin's folk walk again in Moria. So it was that after Azan Albizar the dwarves dispersed again. But first with great labour they stripped all their dead, so that orcs should not come and win there a store of weapons and mail. It is said that every dwarf that went from that battlefield was bowed under a heavy burden. Then they built many pyres and burned all the bodies of their kin. There was a great felling of trees in the valley, which remained bare ever after, and the reek of the burning was seen in Lorien. Such dealings with their dead seemed grievous to the dwarves, for it was against their use. But to make such tombs as they were accustomed to build, since they will lay their dead only in stone, not in earth, would have taken many years. To fire, therefore, they turned, rather than leave their kin to beast or bird or carry an orc. But those who fell in Azan Ulbizar were honoured in memory, and to this day a dwarf will say proudly of one of his sires, He was a burned dwarf, and that is enough. When the dreadful fires were in ashes, the allies went away to their own countries, and Dine Ironfoot led his father's people back to the Iron Hills. Then, standing by the great stake, Thrine said to Thorin Oakenshield, Some would think this head dearly bought. At least we have given our kingdom for it. Will you come with me back to the anvil, or will you beg your bread at proud doors? To the anvil, answered Thorin. The hammer will at least keep the arms strong until they can wield sharper tools again. So Thrine and Thorin, with what remained of their following, among whom were Balin and Gloin, returned to Dunland, and soon afterwards they removed and wandered in Eriador, until at last they made a home in exile in the east of Eridluin, beyond the Loon. Of iron were most of the things that they forged in those days, but they prospered after a fashion, and their numbers slowly increased. They had very few womenfolk. Dis, Thrine's daughter, was there. She was the mother of Feely and Keely, who were born in the Eridluin. Thorin had no wife. But, as Thor had said, the ring needed gold to breed gold, and of that or any other precious metal they had little or none. Of this ring something may be said here. It was believed by the dwarves of Durin's folk to be the first of the seven that was forged, and they say that it was given to the king of Hazad-dum, Durin the third by the elven smiths themselves, and not by Sauron, though doubtless his evil power was on it, since he had aided in the forging of all the seven. But the possessors of the ring did not display it or speak of it, and they seldom surrendered it until near their death, so that others did not know for certain where it was bestowed. Some thought that it had remained in Khazad-dum, in the secret tombs of the kings, if they had not been discovered and plundered. But among the kindred of Durin's heir it was believed, wrongly, that Thor had worn it when he rashly returned there. What then had become of it they did not know. It was not found on the body of Azog. Nonetheless, it may well be, as the dwarves now believe, that Sauron by his arts had discovered who had this ring, the last to remain free, and that the singular misfortunes of the heirs of Durin were largely due to his malice.
for the dwarves had proved untamable by this means. The only power over them that the rings wielded was to inflame their hearts with the greed of gold and precious things, so that if they lacked them all other good things seemed profitless, and they were filled with wrath and desire for vengeance on all who deprived them. But they were made from the beginning of a kind to resist most steadfastly any domination. Though they could be slain or broken, they could not be reduced to shadows enslaved to another will, and for the same reason their lives were not affected by any ring to live either longer or shorter because of it. All the more did Sauron hate the possessors and desire to dispossess them. It was therefore, perhaps, partly by the malice of the ring, that Thrine, after some years, became restless and discontented. The lust for gold was ever in his mind. At last, when he could endure it no longer, he turned his thoughts to Erebor, and resolved to go back there. He said nothing to Thorin of what was in his heart, but with Balin and Dwalin and a few others he arose and said farewell and departed. Little is known of what happened to him afterwards. It would now seem that as soon as he was abroad with few companions he was hunted by the emissaries of Sauron. Wolves pursued him, orcs waylaid him, evil birds shadowed his path, and the more he strove to go north the more misfortunes opposed him. There came a dark night when he and his companions were wandering in the land beyond Unduin, and they were driven by a black rain to take shelter under the eaves of Mirkwood. In the morning he was gone from the camp, and his companions called him in vain. They searched for him many days, until at last, giving up hope, they departed and came at length back to Thorin. Only long after was it learned that Thrine had been taken alive and brought to the pits of Dol Guldor. There he was tormented, and the ring taken from him, and there at last he died. So Thorin Oakenshield became the heir of Durin, but an heir without hope. When Thrine was lost he was ninety-five, a great dwarf of proud bearing, but he seemed content to remain in Eriador. There he laboured long, and trafficked, and gained such wealth as he could, and his people were increased by many of the wandering folk of Durin, who heard of his dwelling in the west and came to him. Now they had fair halls in the mountains, and store of goods, and their days did not seem so hard, though in their songs they spoke ever of the lonely mountain far away. The years lengthened. The embers in the heart of Thorin grew hot again, as he brooded on the wrongs of his house and the vengeance upon the dragon that he had inherited. He thought of weapons and armies and alliances as his great hammer rang in his forge, but the armies were dispersed and the alliances broken and the axes of his people were few, and a great anger without hope burned him as he smote the red iron on the anvil. But at last there came about by chance a meeting between Gandalf and Thorin that changed all the fortunes of the house of Durin, and led to other and greater ends beside. On a time Thorin, returning west from a journey, stayed at Bree for the night. There Gandalf was also. He was on his way to the Shire, which he had not visited for some twenty years. He was weary, and thought to rest there for a while. 
Among many cares he was troubled in mind by the perilous state of the North, because he knew then already that Sauron was plotting war, and intended, as soon as he felt strong enough, to attack Rivendell, but to resist any attempt from the east to regain the lands of Angmar and the northern passes in the mountains, there were now only the dwarves of the Iron Hills, and beyond them lay the desolation of the dragon. The dragon Sauron might use with terrible effect. How then could the end of Smaug be achieved? It was even as Gandalf sat and pondered this that Thorin stood before him and said, Master Gandalf, I know you only by sight, but now I should be glad to speak with you, for you have often come into my thoughts of late, as if I were bidden to seek you. Indeed, I should have done so if I had known where to find you. Gandalf looked at him in wonder. That is strange, Thorin Oakenshield, he said, for I have thought of you also, and though I am on my way to the Shire, it was in my mind that is the way also to your halls. "'Call them so, if you will,' said Thorin. "'They are only poor lodgings in exile, "'but you would be welcome there if you would come, "'for they say that you are wise "'and know more than any other of what goes on in the world, "'and I have much on my mind and would be glad of your counsel.' "'I will come,' said Gandalf, "'for I guess that we share one trouble at least. "'The dragon of Erebor is on my mind,' "'and I do not think that he will be forgotten by the grandson of Thor. "'The story is told elsewhere of what came of that meeting, "'of the strange plan that Gandalf made for the help of Thorin, "'and how Thorin and his companions set out from the Shire "'on the quest of the lonely mountain that came to great ends unforeseen. "'Here only those things are recalled that directly concern Durin's folk.' The dragon was slain by Bard of Esgaroth, but there was battle in Dale, for the orcs came down upon Erebor as soon as they heard of the return of the dwarves, and they were led by Bolg, son of that Azog whom Dain slew in his youth. In that first battle of Dale, Thorin Oakenshield was mortally wounded, and he died and was laid in a tomb under the mountain with the Arkenstone upon his breast. There fell also Feely and Keely, his sister's sons, but Dine Ironfoot, his cousin, who came from the Iron Hills to his aid, and was also his rightful heir, became then King Dine the Second, and the kingdom under the mountain was restored, even as Gandalf had desired. Dine proved a great and wise king, and the dwarves prospered and grew strong again in his day. In the late summer of that same year, 2941, Gandalf had at last prevailed upon Saruman and the White Council to attack Dol Guldor, and Sauron retreated and went to Mordor, there to be secure, as he thought, from all his enemies. So it was that when the war came at last, the main assault was turned southwards. Yet even so, with his far-stretched right hand, Sauron might have done great evil in the north, if King Dain and King Brand had not stood in his path. Even as Gandalf said afterwards to Frodo and Gimli, when they dwelt together for a time in Minas Tirith, not long before news had come to Gondor of events far away. "'I grieved at the fall of Thorin,' said Gandalf, "'and now we hear that Dine has fallen, fighting in Dale again, even while we fought here. 
I should call that a heavy loss, if it was not a wonder, rather, that in his great age he could still wield his axe as mightily as they say that he did, standing over the body of King Brand before the gate of Erebor until the darkness fell. Yet things might have gone far otherwise and far worse. When you think of the great battle of the Pelennor, do not forget the battles in Dale and the valour of Dorin's folk. Think of what might have been. Dragonfire and savage swords in Eriador, night in Rivendell. There might be no queen in Gondor. We might now hope to return from the victory here only to ruin and ash. But that has been averted, because I met Thorin Oakenshield one evening on the edge of spring and Bree. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth. This was the daughter of Thrine the Second. She is the only dwarf woman named in these histories. It was said by Gimli that there are few dwarf women, probably no more than a third of the whole people. They seldom walk abroad except at great need. They are in voice and appearance, and in garb if they must go on a journey, so like to the dwarf men that the eyes and ears of other peoples cannot tell them apart. This has given rise to the foolish opinion among men that there are no dwarf women, and that the dwarves grow out of stone. It is because of the fewness of women among them that the kind of the dwarves increases slowly, and is in peril when they have no secure dwellings, for dwarves take only one wife or husband each in their lives, and are jealous, as in all matters of their rights. The number of dwarf men that marry is actually less than one-third. For not all the women take husbands. Some desire none. Some desire one that they cannot get, and so will have no other. As for the men, very many also do not desire marriage, being engrossed in their crafts. Gimli Gloin's son is renowned, for he was one of the nine walkers that set out with a ring, and he remained in the company of King Elessar throughout the war. He was named Elfrend, because of the great love that grew between him and Legolas, son of King Thranduil, and because of his reverence for the Lady Galadriel. After the fall of Sauron, Gimli brought south a part of the dwarf folk of Erebor, and he became lord of the Glittering Caves. He and his people did great works in Gondor and Rohan. For Minas Tirith they forged gates of mithril and steel to replace those broken by the Witch-King. Legolas, his friend, also brought some elves out of Greenwood, and they dwelt in Ithilien, and it became once again the fairest country in all the Westlands. But when King Elessa gave up his life, Legolas followed at last the desire of his heart and sailed over sea. Here follows one of the last notes in the Red Book. We have heard tell that Legolas took Gimli, Gloin's son, with him because of their great friendship, greater than any that has been between elf and dwarf. If this is true, then it is strange indeed that a dwarf should be willing to leave Middle-earth for any love, or that the Eldar should receive him, or that the lords of the West should permit it. But it is said that Gimli went also out of desire to see again the beauty of Galadriel, and it may be that she being mighty among the Eldar, obtained this grace for him. More cannot be said of this matter. The End You've been listening to the Annals of the Kings and Rulers 
by J. R. R. Tolkien, narrated by Robert Inglis. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books hopes you'll join us on another heroic quest one day soon. You'll find a wide selection of titles in the Recorded Books catalogue, including bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So to order another recorded book, or for a copy of our latest listing, call us toll-free nationwide using the telephone number found on the back of the book. You can order by phone with any major credit card or by writing to us, or by faxing us. Don't forget to ask about easy 30-day rentals by mail. On our website, you can browse the catalogue, hear about the latest releases, place orders, or tune into narrator profiles and author interviews. So visit us there at www.recordedbooks.com. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.